other day there was a knock at the door It was the FBI I said, what you here for? We heard about your song We think it's seditious I said, can we talk later? I'm doing the dishes I said, what's the problem? What's the fuss? They said, we're the FBI Don't you mess with us We can lock you up We can put you away We can make it so you never see the light of day I said, tell me, maybe do it Feldman made me do it Feldman made me do it And that's all there is to it text this morning from a former student it said we heard you on the show you were not prudent you said the effort professor is that true we really expected much better from you i said Felma made me do it Felma made me do it Felma made me do it and that's all there is to it Amazon called, it was customer service They said we need to cut it out You're beginning to hurt us You made fun of our boss You better stop now If you don't, he'll ship you off to Mindanao I said, Thelma made me do it Thelma made me do it Thelma made me do it And that's all there is to it Thelma From the lawyer from No Evil Food Who said we don't like your song or your attitude It's time now, professor, to cease and desist The folks I represent are really pissed I said, Feldman made me do it Feldman made me do it Feldman made me do it And that's all there is to it Thank you so much. That is Feldman Made Me Do It, one of the countless theme songs that the great Professor Mike Steinell has written for this show. And we'll be hearing more as I gather up my hard drive and harvest the goodies. Welcome to the mop up for January 13th. Wow. 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 46 degrees and sunny. Ronnie Spector died. Be my baby. She was uh, amazing. I I'll post to her doing Be My Baby on a show called TNT and it you just get the chills. It's a segregated audience of black kids off to the side and white kids and it's transformative it's three african-american women letting go and it's 
the world is changing. You, you go, oh, my God, the world is changing. Uh, and the way it's shot, it's you can see it on YouTube. It's Ronnie Spector singing Be My Baby on a show called TNT. And it was dynamite. So she was married to Phil Spector, who was evil. Wall of Sound, um, you know, right, changed Brian Wilson's world, changed uh, John Lennon's world. But Phil Spector was evil. And that's why the album, Let It Be, is evil. I've been listening to Phil Spector's Let It Be and then the the director's cut, Paul's cut of Let It Be. And the Let It Be that we grew up on is evil. And, and I want to talk about evil and what is real and what is not and what is manufactured. Paul McCartney, one of those recording sessions, if you're watching Get Back, the 70 day documentary about those recording sessions, Paul McCartney wanted to get back to get back to what the Beatles once were. Just get back to basics. Just do the Beatles. And, you know, you watch the documentary and you realize things happen. You know, uh, life is what happens when you're busy making plans. I believe John Lennon said that. And he turned the tapes over to Apple. I think it was Alan Klein, their new manager. He didn't like the Beatles getting back to basics. And he brought in Phil Spector, who added his wall of sound to Let It Be. And when you listen to the Let It Be album without Phil Spector's wall of sound, you realize that what we grew up on, the Phil Spector version of Let It Be, is evil. Uh, he, he, he took out all the humanity. Paul wanted to do an album that just featured the Beatles and their instruments and the lush orchestrations of Phil Spector, layer upon layer, track upon track, you lose all the humanity and you lose all the humanity because it's not real. It doesn't exist in nature. When you listen to just the Let It Be album that came out, I think it was 2000 and I don't know, 2010, 2014. You just hear the Beatles. You hear uh, the long and winding road without the violin, without the strings. And it's just Paul and the piano. It's so much better because it's it's a human being. And that's what we crave. We crave other human beings. We are social animals. And today I'm going to talk about reality. The, the Let It Be album that we were raised on was not real. It was evil. Lush orchestrations that don't exist in nature. It lacked the humanity that the real Let It Be has. Go listen to Let It Be stripped or unmasked. It's Paul's version of the Let It Be album. It is. It tells you that... We are social animals who crave humanity because humanity is reality. So today, with little time I have today, I want to talk about reality and how our inability to determine what is true and what isn't creates a chaos in our mind. And that chaos makes us susceptible to even more evil. There are 
evil people out there who don't want us to know what the truth is. Phil Spector, the wall of sound is not real. It was manufactured in a studio. And yes, it's beautiful. And, uh, you know, pet sounds. It's amazing. But it's it's not real. It's not it's not human. Reality is a human connection, period. We are social animals. We need other humans to define who we truly are and what is truly real. Anything that cuts us off from other human beings is unreal and it's sinful. Martin Luther King talked about sin. He said that segregation is sinful because anything that cuts us off from other people is a sin. Gambling is a sin because it cuts you off. You, you, you block everything out and just focus on your own winnings. Drugs are a sin because it cuts you off from humanity. And when you're cut off from humanity, you don't know what is true. You lose what is reality. You cannot have reality without humanity. You cannot know how you really feel until you're connecting with other human beings. Loneliness is a serious problem, so much so that in Great Britain, they have a minister of loneliness. You can't have a democracy or a republic if people are lonely because they can't think clearly. They are susceptible. They become vulnerable. They don't know what the truth is and evil steps in. Well, we are becoming more cut off from each other because of COVID. We don't have human connection anymore. So we're susceptible to evil people who tell you things like don't wear a mask or don't get vaccinated. Here's the truth about COVID. One in four Americans are now covered by Medicaid. That's the truth about COVID. That's what COVID has done to America. One out of four Americans are now covered by Medicaid. Medicaid, 25% of this country gets its health care entirely subsidized by the federal government. That is the truth. But that subsidy doesn't go to you. It doesn't go to the doctors or the hospitals. It first goes through the insurance companies. Think of how chaotic that is. Think how inefficient that is. Think of how it makes us it makes it impossible to find out what the truth is about our spending and and where exactly that money is going and how it's spent. Think about how stupid it makes us, how ignorant it makes us, and how it just destroys lives. The Urban Institute, meanwhile, is warning 9 million adults in America and 6 million children will lose their Medicaid coverage this year if President Biden doesn't renew the COVID public health emergency, which is set to expire on the 16th of this month. Did you know about that? I, I wonder if Joe Biden knows that the COVID public health emergency is set to expire on the 16th of this month, which means uh, close to uh, 17 million Americans can be taken off Medicaid. He didn't know that the eviction moratorium from the CDC 
was about to expire. Remember Cori Bush had to go, Congresswoman Cori Bush had to go sleep on the steps of the Capitol because Joe Biden didn't know that the eviction moratorium had lapsed and, and now it's lapsed. That's the truth. That's reality. The daily average of new COVID cases here in America are now, this can't be real, but it is 781,203 a day. 781,203 Americans are contracting COVID each day. That is a 159% increase over two weeks ago. 1,827 Americans died yesterday from COVID. That is a 51% increase over two weeks ago. We've been told that Omicron is not as deadly as Delta. Well, hospitalizations have increased 80% over the past two weeks with the epicenter currently being where I live, New York, the Northeast. New York and Rhode Island and Florida. And doctors say there's really no way to measure just how many people have COVID since when you take a home test, uh, you don't report that to the CDC. They are no longer doing contract, contact, contract, contact tracing in America. It's exploded to a point where you can no longer trace where exactly you got your Omicron. And so since we don't know uh, who's got it, the real number is hospitalizations and deaths. That's what we have to pay attention to. And there is a steep rise in COVID hospitalizations and death. In terms of the numbers, in many ways, despite the vaccination, uh, vaccines, uh, uh, this is the worst it's ever been. Not quite, but it's getting there. Up until now, hospitalizations had peaked exactly one year ago, and it felt like we were out of the woods, especially with the vaccines coming online. Well, now we have surpassed the number of hospitalizations by about 100,000, and it's still growing. So in terms of hospitalizations, which is the real deal, that's how you can measure the spread of COVID, it is worse now than it has ever been. And we're going into year three. Deaths from COVID peaked a year ago. There were about, at that peak about a year ago, there were about 3,200 deaths a day from COVID about a year ago. Right now, we are averaging close to 2,000. And that's because there's a vaccine and because too many people who could get the vaccine, won't. Uh, the Nation magazine is reporting that one third of COVID deaths in America are related to being underinsured, by the way. One third of Americans die from COVID because they're underinsured, because they have preconditions, po uh, co uh, comorbidities that were neglected because people were uninsured. We should be doing better. This is this is not good. This is not good. Before the vaccine, all we heard about was testing, testing, testing. We were told before the vaccine 
that the way out of this is testing, testing, testing. Then, as is so typical of Americans, we forgot about testing. We set our eyes upon the magic bullet, the vaccine, the quick fix, and we forgot that the real way to stop the spread is by testing. Personal responsibility. That's something both sides of the political aisle can agree on. Testing. That's a bipartisan endeavor. Test. If, if everybody could test, they would. Or enough people would test to alleviate, to mitigate the damages of COVID. But we dropped the ball on testing. I don't know why. Uh, this, I don't know why Joe Biden forgot that the eviction moratorium was about to expire. I don't know why Joe Biden, his chief of staff is Ron Klain, who ran Barack Obama's response to Ebola, which was considered a tremendous success. I don't know why they didn't get the tests out last year. First thing should have been testing. This isn't like Monday morning quarterbacking uh, because there's Monday night football. So you can still play the game on Monday. I'm not looking back and saying, well, you know, 2020 hindsight. No, we knew before the vaccine that we test our way out of this. Home testing still is uh, too expensive. It cost me $25 for two tests. I was told my insurance companies would reimburse me. I uh, doubt there is a single American who got reimbursed by their insurance company for their COVID tests. Does anybody have the time to find the receipt, then mail it in and do the paperwork and then call back three times only to be left on hold for 20 minutes to tell them that they didn't get reimbursed? Nobody, nobody got reimbursed from their insurance company for the COVID test. Nobody. The same way nobody mails in the coupons on that computer battery you just got, right? Well, the computer battery is $50, but with a mail-in coupon, it's really 35 Nobody mails it in. And when you mail it in, you don't get the refund until you call three times. It's the oldest marketing ploy in the world. They know you don't have time to, to call your insurance company to be reimbursed for this test. So you either don't buy a test because you can't afford it, or you hold on to your tests for when you think you might need them. I have one test left that I'm saving just in case I need to visit somebody who I actually care enough about that I don't want to give them the virus. Most people I'll just go see, but the people I really care about, then I'll test before. Uh, that's a real measure of love and affection. Do, do you test before you go see them? And you bring the test or test in front of me. Prove to me that you're willing to sacrifice $12.50. How much do you love me? Here, here's the test. Take the COVID test. That's the test to prove how much you love me. Today, Biden uh, said he's going to be providing 1 billion free tests. Where are they? He's been president now for almost a year. Where were the tests? Before Christmas, he announced a, a 500 million purchase, that the government was going to purchase 500 million home tests. Didn't quite explain who was going to 
dole them out. Maybe it was the post office, maybe private enterprise. There's a website to be launched this Friday that lets you sign up for a, uh, a home test, which is great unless you're blind or old or can't afford the Internet. There really are no specific details on how or who will be distributing these tests. If you have health insurance today, Biden said you will be entitled to eight free tests a month that will be reimbursed by your health insurance company. So how does this work? He's going to the government is going to spend all this money buying home tests and then the insurance companies are getting a cut. How does how or we're being charged? Is it free? Who's making money off this? Why not just give it to the post office? If you want to get a test, why not have it administered by the post office? That would be the easiest way to do that. But DeJoy still hasn't been fired as our postmaster general because they want to destroy the post office because the post office speaks truth to the lie that corporate America is more efficient than government. They have been trying to destroy the post office since Ben Franklin invented it because the post office is a shining example of what your government can do. And they have put so many shackles on the post office. The post office used to do banking. You could bank at the post office and people were happy with postal banking until the bank said, that's not fair. That's not fair. So now the banks can't do now the, the post office can't do banking. So you want to solve covid right now? President Biden, take those one billion covid tests and give them to the post office. And have them administered and delivered by the post office. Uh, we have been promised that health insurance companies will reimburse us. And we were also promised that they would not charge us for testing for the past two years. They would not charge us for treating COVID. But we've seen Americans stuck with COVID related bills that come in for the thousands. I got a uh, a uh, COVID test at a doctor's office. I saw the bill, $500. He charged, I don't know if he got paid that, but he charged the insurance company $500 for a, a COVID test. 22% uh, of Americans, according to The Nation magazine last week, put off seeing a doctor because of the costs. That's the truth. Don't you? Don't you put off seeing a doctor because you just don't want to do the copay? I keep telling you this. If COVID treatments are free, are less expensive or free, they should be free. We were promised they were free, despite the surprise bills that even I have gotten for a simple test. But let's just say you're uh, for the sake of argument, let's just say Getting treated for COVID is free in America, which we were told it would be. You're still not going to go to the doctor because 
What if your wet cough turns out to be something other than COVID? Then the cough to treat it will bankrupt you. Americans, it's not good enough to say to Americans, hey, if you have COVID, if you think you have COVID, go to your doctor. Because if it's not COVID, you're, you're not going to go because you're smart enough to know if this isn't COVID, I'm going to be bankrupted. If, if this is emphysema or pneumonia, I got to pay for this. You can't just keep putting Band-Aids over a broken, diseased healthcare system. Americans on a gut level know that this healthcare system isn't working. They don't trust it. I got charged $500 for a COVID test, or at least my insurance company did. I don't trust, and I have a good health care plan. I, nobody in America trusts their doctor, their insurer. They don't trust that if they have COVID, that they won't be bankrupted. Well, uh, Biden also uh, announced plans to distribute high-quality masks to every American, didn't say he was going to do it through the post office. Uh, th this was talked about at the height of COVID uh, when Trump was president. The idea was poo-pooed. The idea of mailing to every American a free COVID test was poo-pooed by Jen Psaki, the White House press spokesperson. Three months ago, she sarcastically said, what do you want us to do? Mail everybody a, a, a home test? Yes. Yes. So that's the truth. That's the reality. And the reason we are not getting our COVID looked at is because we don't trust our healthcare system. Well, I'll get back to that in a second. A lot of you have asked me how to honor Bob Saget, who passed away Sunday. If you want to honor Bob Saget, please donate to the Scleroderma Research Foundation. Right now, go to srfcure.org and give. That is srfcure.org and give. Bob Saget dedicated most of his free time to srfcure.org, as well as those suffering from scleroderma. He would make time to visit and work the phones for people suffering from scleroderma, a disease that took his sister way too young. I don't ask for much on this show, so please go to srfcure.org and that is the best way to honor Bob Saget's memory. A lot of people are mourning the loss of Bob Saget. It seems to be hitting people uh, hard, especially people who never actually met Bob. He, he didn't try to let you know who he really was. He came across as, you know, dirty daddy. But when you discover how big his heart was, most of you already knew that it, it seems to hit you really hard and, and a lot of people it, i'm not going to build this up into something that it isn't but people are really upset about bob passing but let me say something about mourning celebrities about mourning people who we've never really met prince philip 
died last year, and I took that really hard when Prince Philip died. He represented duty. <laughs> kind of like Bob Saget. Different kind of duty. But uh, Prince, Philip to me, Prince Philip, to me, never met the guy. I'm not British. I had no skin in that game. But for some reason, Prince Philip, to me, represented getting up every morning, putting on your uniform, shaving, and doing what is expected of you no matter what. It wasn't forced on me. I'm not a, a royal subject. It's just something that I decided. He, for some reason, Prince Philip was a surrogate grandfather or whatever, but Philip's death for a lot of people, it hit us hard. Uh, it And so that was his job, his death the death of Prince Philip was supposed to hit us hard. That's the job. That's why there's the pageantry, because it allows the people of Great Britain, some of the people of Great Britain, to, to mourn together, to mourn something larger, to mourn, uh, to mourn him, but to really mourn a loved one that you're thinking about, and to mourn a period that we, a period in our history that we grow fond of the further away we get from it. And we do have to be careful here because there, there is, it's not real. And it's okay that it's not real until it becomes dangerous. And we have to be careful here when we, uh, we allow ourselves to get consumed by the deaths of celebrities. We, we should be sad, but in many ways, it's not real. Uh, Robin Williams' daughter this week wrote on social media after Bob Saget died. She warned us to watch ourselves. Don't get too caught up in the mourning of public figures. And again, we're we are all sad about Bob, but if you didn't know him, well, then you think you knew him. And if you think you knew him, you only know what he wanted you to know about him. And you, you have to be careful. He is not your father or your brother or your closest friend. He is a celebrity we all loved, and the best way to remember him is to go to srfcure.org and give. It's important to remember that celebrities, and we do have a problem. Zach Galifianakis was talking about the absurdity of, of how we worship celebrities in, in, in this country and how dangerous it is, and I, I agree with him. I... I've always seen celebrities to be like pets. They're safe to love and they're safe to mourn because it's all done at a distance. I know we have a lot of pet owners. I used to be a big pet owner and I'm vegan, but pets are not human beings. Either are celebrities, unless they're your friends or your loved ones. The Pope last week warned what I have been warning about for years. He says we're spending way too much time with our pets at the expense of human beings. And I've been saying this. I know a lot of people don't want to hear this. I'm a vegan. 
I, I've had more cats than I choose to remember. And I've had uh, four dogs who I do choose to remember. Uh, our pets are not humans. I miss all my dogs. And, uh, and I won't admit it, but I miss all my cats, even the ones I, I miss the cats I hated the most because they were the funniest. I miss my pets, right? I don't have pets anymore except the mice. Uh, I, I love all my pets and I love everybody's pets, but those relationships are kind of like the relationship between Jeff Bezos and whatever whore has convinced him he looks ripped without his shirt on these days. Every couple of years since the divorce, there will be a whore who convinces Jeff Bezos that he looks ripped without his shirt on. But that's not a real relationship. That, that, that's kind of like our relationship with pets. Our pets are kind of like Jeff Bezos's whores. Now, pets are incredibly important. They're more important than Jeff Bezos's whores. Uh, pets teach us to be selfless. They teach us about unconditional love. They teach us to be good stewards of the planet, but it's still a one-sided relationship. It's not the same thing as a human connection. A human connection is what we need. It's what keeps us alive. As I said earlier, it tells us what reality is, what the truth is. I understand that when you're lonely, and we're all lonely right now, pets bring comfort. More and more people are adopting cats and dogs because of COVID, because of the isolation, and they bring great comfort. They are a great substitute for a human connection, but they are not human beings. And I happen to believe there is a direct connection between the increasing amount of money and time Americans spend on pets uh, and the decreasing amount of time and money we spend on humans who really need us. As we focus more and more on our pets, we focus less and less on, oh, I don't know, the homeless, the uninsured. Uh, I think that's not, I don't think pets are the cause of homelessness, but I do think it's a way of coping with homelessness. And I think it allows us to uh, find solace where maybe we don't deserve it. Maybe we don't deserve to be made to feel good by a cat or a dog when we're neglecting other human beings, especially our friends and our loved ones. And the same applies to celebrities. I love Bob Saget and he was real. He was real to all of us. And we should remember, however, if you didn't really know Bob Saget, he was kind of like your pet. He never hurt you. He never demanded too much. He meant whatever you needed him to mean to you. And while that's real, it's also not real. And so maybe you're mourning, you're projecting on to your to Bob a sadness about something else. I'm not saying not to be sad about Bob, 
but there's probably a loved one. Well, I know that there's a loved one. We've lost 800,000 so far due to COVID. There are real people we know who we might not have done too good a job mourning. And so, again, it's easier to mourn a celebrity who we've never met than it is to mourn somebody we knew and and miss. You're you're sad about Bob, but you're really sad about things in your your real life. And too often we use the death of a celebrity to deflect the real pain in our lives. It's too easy to mourn a celebrity because it's all presented in such a neat and tidy package with a bow on top of it. But life isn't that way. Isn't that way? Uh, human connection real human connection is much harder. And uh, I worry that we are slowly edging away from other people because of COVID and because of technology. And when we edge away from people, when we are no longer connected to other human beings, we lose our sense of reality and it makes us susceptible to evil people. The evil forces in this world, like Phil Spector, they want to give us a wall of sound to cover over our humanity. They don't want us to be raw and real. You don't, they don't want you to hear John Lennon's voice cracking. They want everything to sound like what doesn't exist in nature. And that's evil. It really is. Phil Spector was evil. As beautiful as Be My Baby was and The Wall of Sound, anything that isn't human uh, and then manipulates you for to, to feel a certain way for profit, in the end, it's evil. And so celebrities are not really real. The people in your life or who should be in your life, they're real and they should come first. And that includes your pets. Your pets should come before celebrities do, but your pets are not as important as the friends and relatives who and the least among us, the people living in homeless shelters, the people who are uninsured, they are more important than your pets. Uh, people come first, not corporations, not the needs of corporations. People come first. It's just that simple. You know, we're surrounded by chaos and what is true and what isn't true. Human connection. Simplify all your problems down to what, how do I connect with another human being? What decisions am I making in my day that allows me to connect and help with another human being, like giving to the Scleroderma Foundation that Bob supported. That's real because you're helping another human being. Pick up the phone and make the calls. Uh, donate to real candidates and stay connected to people uh, re in reality. You know, uh, Facebook isn't reality, Zoom, isn't reality. We can't, we have to socially distance, but you know, you can take a walk with someone, 
Keep your distance. Don't let real human connection slip away from you. But if you can't stop it from slipping away from you, get a dog. Stuart Rhodes, and then if you can't get a dog, get a cat because they're easier to take care of, but they're not as close to a human as a dog is. If you want something resembling a, a perfect human being, get a dog. If you want a funny human being, get a cat. Cats are funny, but dogs are the next best thing to a human. Stuart Rhodes, the founder and leader of the far-right Oath Keepers militia group, has been arrested and charged with seditious conspiracy for last year's attack on the U.S. Capitol. This is interesting. This is the first time the Biden Justice Department has brought a charge of sedition against anybody connected with the attack on the Capitol. It's interesting. Uh, was it sedition? We were, we've pretty much said it was a riot, but now they're saying some, it's interesting. Let's see how far they get with this. I'm not sure what's going on here. I'm not sure what's going on other than the Democrats seem to be heading into the midterms doing their own version of MAGA, Make America Great Again, MAGA. Uh, you know, all I read about is how the, the Republicans are a threat to our democracy, that we're losing our democracy. It sounds a lot like Make America Great Again. Uh, I keep hearing we have to restore America to its former glory. I'm seeing the same rhetoric right now when they talk about January 6th. I'm seeing the same rhetoric from the Democrats now that I heard from Trump six years ago. It's this reactionary ploy to paint this country as an apocalyptic wasteland where our democracy, our freedoms are hanging by a thread. The more Jeremiads I hear against the GOP and their vision for America, the more I hear from the Democrats, make America great again. Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, they're selling a, a cousin of make America great again, a fear that we're falling behind. We're about to lose all our freedoms if we allow the GOP to win. Uh, that's what they're offering in November, essentially. Make America great again. We're, you know, we're being, there's, there's, a, there's a them out there. And uh, we're being scared and terrified. Or they're trying to make us scared and terrified. Americans never make the right decisions when we're scared. We end up with the Patriot Act when we're scared. We end up with Guantanamo Bay. We end up with the toxic asset relief program when we're scared. We invade Iraq and Afghanistan when we're scared. Scaring us rather than dealing with the crisis that's really in front of us is easier. It's easier to scare us about a potential crisis than the actual crisis in front of us. We have a, a cataclysmic crisis, a, a once in a generation, once in a century crisis. COVID 
in front of us. But instead, the Democrats can't seem to address that. So they scare us about a future crisis. And it's political. They're saying things can get a lot worse. It's easier to say things could be a lot worse than fixing the things that <laughs> are making our lives worse. We've we've lost more than 800,000 Americans so far from COVID. I went over those numbers with you. It's time to stop scaring us about what could happen. Something really bad has happened. Don't tell me things can get worse. Uh, it's like somebody punching their wife and saying, but I didn't kill her. Our healthcare system is wrecked. So not sure I want to hear that if we don't vote for the Democrats, we're going to lose our democracy. I don't want to hear that democracy is hanging by a thread when our healthcare system has collapsed. It's being held together by smoke and mirrors. So you want to fix our democracy, our government, Medicare for all. Focus on what's really important, not some abstraction like our democracy and our personal freedoms or what Trump could do if he becomes Speaker of the House in, in 2022. Those that just creates chaos and confusion. Work the problem at hand and the problem at hand is COVID and the solution is Medicare for all. There are only so many hours in the day, which means there are only so many problems you can address Medicare for all. This is the crisis. This is what you fix. You fix our health care crisis. You fix our democracy. Pageantry no longer cuts it. Prayer vigils, hearings about January 6th. That's not our top priority when 800,000 Americans are dead from COVID and counting. And this is a problem when you don't care about human beings, which I think uh, our, our leadership is lousy with people who don't care about other humans. When you don't start with what is best for humans, how do I connect with humans and make their lives better? When you don't start each morning with that, then your life lacks focus and you cannot be happy. We are social animals. You cannot succeed. You can't have a life well lived if you don't come from a place of how do I connect with other human beings and make their lives better unconditionally? Uh, we have leadership on in Washington, in corporate America, at the very top, the richest 1%, in the media. We have people running the show who wake up each day with a million things on their plate because they don't know what they really should be tackling. So they'll spend their entire life attempting to tackle all of it instead of focusing on what's really important. We're seeing that in this Biden White House. The truth is President Biden. The truth is Speaker Pelosi. There are only three or four things 
that need to be done each day. And there are only three things that need to be done each day over and over, day after day, until you no longer have to do it. One of those three things is making sure that every American has free health care. And you get up every morning and you do that every day until you no longer have to do it. You have to have priorities. And if you don't have priorities, if you don't put the well-being of humans first, then everything is a top priority and you have nothing but chaos, confusion, paralysis, America. This is a paralyzed country because we're off in 20,000 directions. The rap against Trump is he was a merchant of chaos. What a great expression, merchant of chaos. And each day was a fresh chaos, uh, fresh chaos, right? Fresh crisis. And yet it hasn't even been a year since Trump left office. And it's hard to remember what all those manufactured crises were. Can you remember every day? It was one new thing that we had to focus on. He was a he was a merchant of chaos and he succeeded in creating chaos because we are a nation, a government. We are a people who no longer are taught what is right and what is wrong. We are a nation. We are a government. We are a people uh, who lack critical thinking. We have become a nation, a government, a people who put money, material goods, put jobs, ambition ahead of human decency. And because of that, we have no idea on what to prioritize. Uh, Democrats run on jobs, not human decency, human decency. If you know what human decency is, you know how to fix things. You know what to focus on. We have very few people other than Bernie and AOC who maybe Ted Lieu, uh, who know what human decency is. And that's all about uh, Laura Nader talks about controlling processes. And uh, that's part of the controlling processes at the very top the people high above they they do they are not decent they do not want us to think about human decency that's why they've co-opted all organized religion to teach us to think about anything but human decency we have corporate heads government heads people who run our colleges uh they thrive on confusion. They want confusion because there's only one thing that's really important, and that is love of your fellow human being. But you can't exploit and make money uh, if that's what all of us are focused on. So they confuse every issue when it gets down to just one thing. What is basic human decency. They don't want that. They don't want us to love one another.
They want us to feel unloved. So we need things. So we need a leader to believe in. Uh, buy this. But if you buy this instead of that, you'll get this. But you don't want to get this when you really need to get that. And if you get that, then you will finally feel like this. But be careful because feeling like this could lead to you feeling like that, in which case you need to buy this. And on and on it goes. And it's designed to exhaust you. Uh, so we're exhausted. We are ex all of us. Look at me. I look like shit. I'm looking at the monitor. We're all exhausted. Uh, the answer is simple. What is best for your neighbor? That's it. What is not what's best for you? What is best for your neighbor? It's that simple. What is best for your neighbor? You know, economists right now can't explain this great resignation. They can't explain how it's possible that another four million Americans quit their jobs last month, even though savings rates are dwindling. Remember, they they try to smoke us out in September, that extra three hundred dollars a week in unemployment gone. They, they smoked us out of our homes to get to work. We still kept quitting. They got rid of the child tax credit, $300 a month. They trying to smoke us out to get us to work for slave wages. We're, we're still quitting. They can't explain it. Our savings rates have dwindled. They can't explain it because they economists lack the vocabulary to understand basic human decency that Americans are exhausted and they don't care anymore how much money they have or don't have or what they owe. They are exhausted. We are exhausted. We thought we're more exhausted now than we were a year ago because we thought that once Trump left office, once this merchant of chaos left, that the chaos would stop. Remember that? Vote for Joe Biden. It's, it, things are going to calm down. What we didn't realize was that Trump wasn't the merchant of chaos. The merchants of chaos are the richest 1%, the people who control our government. The people in charge are, and they've always been, the merchants of chaos who want to keep us confused and frightened. Trump was just honest about it. He ripped the Band-Aid off. That's all he did. It's always been the president's job, our government's job, the police, the all the institutions, academia that have been, all these institutions captured by the ruling class, their job is to provide the veneer of order to make it look like they have everything under control because they do. And the way they keep everything under control is they keep us in a perpetual state of chaos that is our fault. They present this veneer of law and order and civilization and our 
on a, on a granular level, you and I are in perpetual states of chaos. And we think, well, if I turn on the TV, everything seems orderly. This chaos just, it must be me. So we're, we're trying to internalize the chaos. It's our fault. But now because of COVID, we're beginning to see we're staying home. We're getting to look, take a step back and look at it and go, wait a second. That's not me that's causing the chaos. The 99%, we, the gift of COVID, uh, besides all the right-wing shock jocks who were anti-vaxxers and died from it, besides that, uh, the gift of COVID is we realize that our lives have always been in chaos, always before COVID. And you don't know what you're going through until you have the time and COVID has given us the time to, to stop and look. You know, you, uh, your life is, is purposely chaotic, not because of you, because of the controlling processes. If you work for Walmart or Amazon, you have no idea what your schedule is until the very last minute. They want you on edge. That's how they designed their software. So you never know what next week's schedule is, because that way, you don't go looking for another job. You're constantly playing defense if you're part of the 99%. The bills are coming in and you're, you're always on defense. If I buy insulin for my husband, that means I'll put the groceries on this card and pay off the other card with this card. And they got you, they got you exactly where they want you, just juggling numbers in your head on how to buy things and how to get to work and pick up the kid at a daycare center you can't afford. Meanwhile, the government, our leaders, they're not supposed to be in a state of chaos. They're supposed to present themselves as having everything under control. Gridlock in Washington is the way things are supposed to work. Getting something done in Washington, that's chaotic. Gridlock, inability to do anything, that maintains order. So January 6th, terrible day in American history, that, that fractured the veneer that the people at the top had everything under control. And they do have everything under control because they have all the power and all the money and they were never really in threat. There was never really a threat to whomever is running things in DC. On January 6th, the real powers were never in threat. And we're beginning to see that with COVID. Americans are getting to see things clearly. This is a one in a century opportunity to take stock of who we are as a people and as a nation. And we know the system is not working. We finally, because we're not part of it, we're really not a part of it. We, we thought we were a part of it before COVID because we were so busy on the hamster wheel. But now we know we're not a part of it. We're just victims of it. If you're working right now, you know exactly what you're part of now. There, there's no more. They can't lie to you anymore. Hence the great resignation. I don't care how much I owe. I don't care how little is in my bank. I'm exhausted. 
the system isn't working for us and it never did. But COVID has afforded all of us the time to take a step back and discover the controlling processes that create so much unnecessary chaos in our lives. Look at us. It's not just it's not just government. It's not just our job. You know that your boss is full of shit now, but you begin to see that, you know, uh, a lot of your friends are full of shit. A lot of your friends create unnecessary chaos because they don't want real, they don't want to be a real friend and have a real human connection. They rather have Sturm and Drang. More people are staying home. They're no longer running to an office. And it doesn't matter what the real estate industry wants to happen. The, the idea of going to an office, those days are over. There will still be offices, but in the grand sweep of things, offices, office parks, those industrial parks uh, with people crowded on top of one another, destroying the planet, driving two hours each way to work and back because they can't afford to own a home in the city they work, it never made sense. And if you don't see that it never made sense, you're a dinosaur and we're not going back to that. Something new is happening, not for everybody, but for enough people that it's going to change everything. You know, when cars came around, they still made, you know, buggy whips. Ah, that's water. They still people still rode horses, but cars changed the world, right? We're not going back. Something new is happening. The future is coming. And the question is, will we control it or will capital, big money, control it? Right now, the future is controlled by capital. And that's because the left lacks leadership in America. It has lacked leadership since Taft-Hartley. The, the left, because of controlling processes, the left has been stripped of leadership because of Taft-Hartley. Taft-Hartley stripped us of a labor movement. So whatever reason, the left lacks leadership. And because we lack leadership, we lack vision, we lack focus, and we are always playing defense when capital reimagines our future, which capital always does. We are letting Wall Street reimagine our future through technological advances that keep us in a perpetual state of precarity. This is as old as capitalism. This is as old as the Industrial Revolution. We call it chaos but it's really precarity. We do not feel secure about our jobs, our health, our family, our ability to keep a roof over our head, our ability to educate our kids, feed ourselves. We don't feel secure about our future because we are in a constant state of precarity. We are never allowed to feel safe. Now it's crime. Crime is, um, you know, be careful. Don't go out there. It's dangerous. They call it chaos. Sometimes we call it 
chaos, but it's really terror, the terror of not having a secure future. And that is our fault. It is the fault of the left because we can't imagine the future. We allow big tech and Wall Street to imagine our future and then we react. We, we are never proactive when it comes to the future. COVID is a crisis. COVID, therefore, is an opportunity to reimagine the future. And capital has already reimagined the future. They have used COVID to reimagine what the world is going to look like 30 years from now with or without COVID. They're reimagining a world where it doesn't matter if we ever eradicate COVID. What is the left imagining? What are we offering other than century-old ideas? I'm not seeing any new ideas coming from the left. Facebook has changed its name to Meta, as in Metaverse, as in imagine social media being immersive. What if you could put on a pair of goggles and without ever leaving your chair, attend a party with all your Facebook friends in a virtual space that feels and smells more real than reality? This isn't a science fiction conceit. This is where we are going in two to five years. This isn't a futuristic wet dream. This is happening. This is what Wall Street, this is what Facebook, this is what big tech is doing right now. This is how they are reimagining our future. Body suits that allow you to grope another human thousands of miles away. Virtual offices will be as serendipitous as real ones, but there won't be a two-hour commute. You will just work in your home. Your home will be your office. You will go days without being in contact with another live human being. They will strip you of a human connection. And when we are stripped of human connections, we no longer know what the truth is. We are no longer able to prioritize. We are susceptible to evil. They are reimagining a future where our brains will be rewired by themselves, just by constant exposure to virtual reality that we will just, you know, our brains are, are rewired by Facebook. They, they use the same rewiring techniques that casinos use with slot machines. You know, pornography rewires the brain. Our brains will be rewired. Dating, sex, all will be done in the metaverse. This is what Zuckerberg is planning. This is the next, this is the next bubble. This is the next investment bubble. Loneliness will be commodified. That's a pain point. They always look for where people are in pain and how do you solve it just enough 
So it's not solved, but you can collect money. Loneliness is a pain point. Remember I said Great Britain has a minister of loneliness. Loneliness will seemingly get tackled through a new kind of dating app where the perfect partner is out there, just not, you know, in your country. Marriages will take place in the virtual world without the couple ever really meeting one another. We are years away from that. I mean, when you think about Zoom, I mean, it is conceivable to have a... I, I mean, I've made friends with people on Zoom and have never met them in the material world. Well, we're getting to a point where with the metaverse, we will be able to have relate, loving relationships with people who we've never met in person. It's uh, It'll feel like touching. And in many ways, it will be better because it's cleaner and more efficient. It's kind of like having a human as a pet or a human as a celebrity. It's so much easier than having to deal with a real human being. You, you will, a lot of you will know somebody who is married to somebody in a relationship and they have never, ever actually touched you know, here's my sperm did you get it in the mail let's raise a virtual family you have the baby and and we'll put on our goggles or eventually the, you won't need goggles you'll either put it you know there'll be contact lenses this is happening you know Go remember google glass uh i think in 2015 you know why google glass didn't get sold it scared the shit out of Google. They saw they were entering Terminator country. And they go, whoa, 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 whoa. You mean I can put on this, these glasses and say, there's David Feldman, born, social security number, network. I mean, this is, that, that's where we're at, where you're going to be able to put on a pair of contact glasses and say to your contact glasses, who is this person? I'll tell you their name, their address their criminal record, what they're worth, their religion. This is where we're heading, or at least that's how big tech and Wall Street is reimagining our future right now. This isn't my being alarmist. This is the truth. They want to strip us of the human connection, self-driving cars, anything that requires humanity they want to strip us of. Apple has two big moves coming. The iPhone right now is what keeps Apple a $3 trillion company. Its market cap is $3 trillion. In other words, if you wanted to buy Apple outright, it would cost you $3 trillion to buy the entire company. But if you, try, if you started buying Apple, this, the stock price would go up and it would probably cost you $5 trillion. You need to learn this kind of stuff because your enemy knows it and they're doing it to you. Uh, what's happening with Apple, what's coming next is an iPhone that you wear as a pair of glasses, soon to be contact lenses. Microsoft knows the future is coming. You know, it got into Xbox and video games. You don't play video games, right? 
But trust me, your kids do. Uh, soon, Microsoft, soon you will be playing video games because you will be transported into these virtual worlds that are much more desirable than your actual world. Imagine Westworld. Remember the movie Westworld, the HBO series? But you don't have to travel to Westworld. We're not talking about robots. We're talking about a pair of glasses where you are immersed in a world, an alternative metaverse of your choosing. We're talking about video games becoming life where we really can't tell if we're interacting with an avatar, something representing us. I didn't see the movie Avatar. Maybe this is what it's about. I don't know. We're, it's, we're, we're heading towards a real place, a real time when you will enter a metaverse and interact with an avatar representing what you think is a real life human being or maybe a computer generated being who uh, as the future moves on, will no doubt be a virtual sexual partner who may or may not be real. That's all happening in, in an immersive virtual reality. We, we always imagine the Jetsons, right? With, with robots. And that's not how it's going to work. We're just going to, it's going to be even lazier than that. It's, we're just going to sit and imagine it. Uh, this is not far-fetched. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Unless we, on the left, put them on the defensive. Until If we don't get proactive, we are just going to be responding. We're going to be taking fire, as we always do, unable to know what's coming next. Uh, we know climate catastrophe is going to get worse and we will have climate catastrophe refugees millions and millions of americans flooded out of their homes flooding into your neighborhood people from florida are going to be coming north and how do you control them you give them a pair of goggles to wear here you miss florida put on these goggles we've created your own your old hometown this is happening this is what capital sees as our future. You can't imagine what they see, but Jeff Bezos is getting the F out of here. Elon Musk, he's getting the F out of here. Elon Musk, self-driving cars on Earth, which means they'll be controlled up on the moon or Mars. They, this is, they're insane. Uh, and we don't know how to stop big tech and its unholy alliance with big money. And until the left figures that out, uh, we are effed because they 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 have it all right now. Their motto is it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is permission. We have congressional leaders loading up on tech stocks right now. Ro Khanna, who was Bernie's surrogate on the campaign trail, is buying up millions in big tech. Nobody is going to stop this unless the left offers up a big idea to counter what are big ideas coming from big tech and big money. If the left continues 
to not see what is happening, not what is coming, what is happening, uh, we will uh, no longer be playing defense because we will have been defeated. And that's the truth. At some point, the left will stop playing defense. We will be defeated because we are out of ideas. I'm not saying them. I hear old ideas. And I hear a lot of people saying that this is crazy talk. Well, I've been doing a lot of reading of the financial papers, and those people are crazy. They're sociopaths. They seem to, even though they're crazy and they're sociopaths, they get what they want. Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Zuckerberg, these are sociopaths. It, it's crazy talk, the stuff they talk about, and uh, it comes to fruition. I've lived long enough to see the future poo-pooed right up until it arrived. Things in motion stay in motion unless you come up with an opposing force. The left has not stopped that. When there is money involved, it's really hard to stop things in motion from staying in motion. You know, you will hear about the dot-com bust of 2001. And this, to me, is so important. It, it is so important to remember. I remember the dot-com bust in 2001. And there are lessons that were learned but not taught to the left, to ordinary Americans. We just remember the dot-com dot bust, the bubble that burst, the comeuppance that Silicon Valley received from the uh, the bust in 2001. That's the received lesson. But that's not the lesson. The dot-com bubble began in 1995. Now, pay it. This is, this is really important. The dot-com bubble started in 1995 when a lot of you were just born. It's hard to believe there was not an internet in 1995. There was really no internet. There was really no email. There was, but there was, there was no Amazon. Uh, there was really no internet commerce before 1995. There's video on YouTube from Conan, his show on NBC. He's talking to Bill Gates from Microsoft about this thing called the internet in 1995. They were just coming out with like uh, uh, Netscape, this browser, uh, like to, like browsing the like you couldn't explain to people at a certain age what a browser meant. So that was 2000 and, uh, 1995. Bill Gates is on Conan within talking about this thing called the Internet. Within 15 years, by 2010, 2011, none of us could imagine what life was like without YouTube. Within 15 years, YouTube, Amazon, shopping on Amazon, Google. But the Internet was poo-pooed uh, in 1995, and it was especially poo-pooed in 2001. Six years after Bill Gates was on Conan, and I think he was promoting a book called The Road Ahead, describing the Internet, right? This is like 95 when Bill Gates is describing the Internet. Six years later, there was the dot-com bust. And that's the lesson that, that was taken, is that, well, they really learned their lesson, how crazy 
big tech and Wall Street were. All these companies promising things. This is how they laugh at the 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 dot com the dot com bubble. Companies promise, promising promising things like being able to shop for groceries online, being able to buy pet supplies online, being able to have your clothes tailored online. All these companies were jokes when the dot com bubble burst. They and they all went belly up. And we laughed at their stupidity to think that people were going to shop for groceries online. We laughed. It was the dot-com bubble bursting and fortunes were lost. But here's the thing. The companies disappeared, but what they were promising came to fruition. Their ideas were gobbled up and stolen by the big boys, Amazon, Apple, Google. Everything that was promised Everything they said the Internet was going to do, it has done and more. Yes, there was a dot com dot com bubble that burst and people went bankrupt and belly up. And the people who threw money at these companies lost fortunes. But the promise of the Internet, the promise of those companies that went belly up have come to fruition and more. You know, I remember they're, they're talking of a collective mind, the Internet being this uh, living, breathing, ever changing, growing collection of hives and packets and communities and knowledge. And it seemed so futuristic. And when the dot com bubble burst, everybody laughed. But it's here. We just couldn't imagine it. And now, something way beyond our capacity to envision, social media is destroying our democracy and our lives and the left. We can't control it. We can't control it. We offer nothing. We Each year, the Internet technology creeps slowly into our lives, and we just can't imagine what our lives would be without it and the People who profit off of all of this continue to imagine the unimaginable. Half of what they imagine is amazing and the other half is killing us. It's apocalyptically horrible. And we on the left can't out reimagine what our enemy, big tech and Wall Street is imagining, imagining. So we fall prey to them. We fall prey to their marketing. Steve Jobs was embraced by a lot on the left as a visionary. As a, as a visionary of the left, he was a visionary, but he was no leftist. He just knew how to speak our language. He knew how to take LSD and make money off it. Think different, just enough to make money. The future is coming. And like I said, we will be on the defensive until there is nothing left to defend. It's it's big tech that has to be on the defensive. It's Wall Street that has to be on the defensive. We have to be proactive. We have to see COVID as the crisis with the opportunity. We have to imagine the future. We're not offering a counter narrative to what big tech 
is forcing down our eyeballs. We cannot allow big tech to write the future. And the problem is we don't know what we want. We don't know what kind of future we want. But big tech does. Wall Street, big money knows what it wants. It wants everything. Literally, it wants everything. They see a future where even our own reality is owned by them. They see a future where reality is a choice that's sold to us. You can order a reality from Apple or Google or Facebook. It's like ordering, you know, at Starbucks, you know, you can you can choose all different types of reality while the planet burns. We're flooded and we'll just sit in our room, like kind of like something out of Inception, while big tech allows us to choose an alternate reality while everything around us is gobbled up by big money and big tech. This isn't Tron. This isn't ex machina. These this is reality. This is this is happening. So what are we going to do? How are we going to make sure we don't repeat the mistakes we made when the Internet came on the scene? None of us understood the Internet until it was too late. That's why Amazon never had to pay state and local taxes. Amazon wasn't a new idea. It was the Sears catalog from 100 years ago. It was mail order. But nobody really understood what a browser was and what e-commerce was. So they tricked us and they said, hey, we're a new idea. So don't make us pay state and local taxes. And so... Just because of that, just because of one tweak of the tax code where Amazon doesn't have to pay state and local taxes, it knocks every book and record store out of business just because Amazon could save you money. You could save like three or four dollars on a book because it was tax free. And then it decimated Main Street because nobody understood what e-commerce was until it was too late. One little tweak of the tax code is what turned Amazon into this piranha, this this whale that gobbled up everything. Uh, so if we don't understand the metaverse, if we don't understand what they're planning for us with these self-driving cars, we're going to be reactive instead of proactive. And we've learned that with big tech, by the time we want to react, we can't. They own us. Uh, they own us. Google and let me just see, is Ben here yet? Okay, I'll keep going. Google and Facebook. Their entire business model isn't new. It's just advertising. That's all it is. But 80%, this is important to remember, 80% of Google's revenue comes from ads. 98% of Facebook's revenue is just ads. Those stupid ads that you see, that's where all their money comes from. And here's how to stop it. There, there some, one of the ways to stop it is click on those ads. Every time you see an ad, click on it. Click on those ads. Every click costs an advertiser as much as 
anywhere between 25 cents to $5. It depends what time of the day you're clicking on a Google ad or a Facebook ad. They charge per click. So if you hate a gun manufacturer, click on their ad. You just took maybe two bucks out of their coffers. Click on those ads. Every click costs them a few dollars. Nobody will tell you this. Now, you'll see more ads for guns. Well, okay, keep clicking on them. I don't need to be advertised to. I might as well be advertised to by my enemy. And I'd rather click on their, this is what I do. I click on my enemy and it costs them money. They have, every time I click on a, on a Donald Trump ad or Marjorie Taylor Greene ad, it costs them anywhere between a quarter and $2. And they keep sending me more ads like that. And if I'm in a bad mood, I just keep clicking and I'm taking money out of their pocket. If all of us just clicked away on the ads for the products we have no intention of buying, we hurt the company that's advertising to us. And eventually we hurt Google and, and Facebook because eventually people are gonna realize advertising doesn't work. And that's where all of Facebook and Google's revenue comes from. This is the dirty secret about Google and Facebook. Every time you click on that ad, uh, it costs the advertiser a lot of money. Uh, so click on a Trump ad, take money out of his pocket. And like I said, if everybody starts doing this, eventually people are going to stop. If you don't buy the gun when you advertise, the, it's called an ROI, return on investment, right? Eventually the gun manufacturer is gonna say, the ROI is, negligible. It doesn't pay to advertise on Google and Facebook because David Feldman's listeners have figured out how to game the system. Uh, nobody talks about this. Nobody. This is the business model for Google. Like 98% of Facebook is you clicking on one of those stupid ads. Uh, and those ads have gobbled up 70% of America's digital advertising. I don't know how this happened. Uh, newspapers, blogs, they don't get the revenue. Google and Facebook get it. Newspapers and magazines are at the mercy of Google and Facebook. Google and Facebook don't create content. They aggregate it and then they charge for the advertising this is why local newspapers are going out of business, because Google and Facebook get 70 percent of digital advertising. How did this happen? How did we allow this to happen? Well, Google and Facebook, they they wrote history. They they reimagined the future and the geniuses who own magazines and newspapers by the time they realized what had happened to them, it was too late. And they all started to go out of business. And it can't be stopped. Australia tried to control digital advertising with Facebook and Google. Google and Facebook is more powerful than Australia. Australia tried to protect local journalism from the predatory practices of Facebook and Google, and they couldn't do it.
because Facebook and Google was writing history before we understood what that history was to correct it. So what is the solution? Well, there are a couple of solutions. They're the old solutions like breaking them up. But to break up Google, to break up Facebook, that requires a leadership on the left who understands what breaking up a corporation looks like. That would require a Bernie uh, Sanders type or dare I say an Elizabeth Warren who is not a leftist, but understands why and how to break up big tech uh, and will explain to us what that looks like. She'll explain to us why breaking up big tech benefits everybody, including the people lucky enough right now to own stock in big tech. See, we lack financial literacy. The Americans who are lucky enough to own stock in Apple and Google, they're terrified when they hear Oh, they're going to break up Google. If we had leadership that would explain that breaking up Google is actually good for the investors, we could accomplish this. But we don't have the leadership. We don't have the politicians. We don't have the journalists who are going to walk the American people through the steps of what breaking up Facebook looks like. It doesn't exist. And therefore, we have no imagination. We can't imagine a, a world without Facebook, Google or Amazon devouring, devouring everything. And that's why things in motion stay in motion, because we are not thinking big. We are not thinking big on the left. I will on uh, Monday's show, because I'm out of time, I will introduce to you on Monday's show how the left can counteract my platform to counteract big tech and big money and how we can swing as hard and big as they do. Because like I said, if we keep being on the defensive in a few more years, there will be nothing left to defend. Oh, stop it. Oh, my God. You're, you're embarrassing me. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Joining us now in Georgia is Ben Burgess. He is a columnist for Jacobin, and he is the host of Give Them an Argument. Say hello to Ben Burgess. Hello there, Ben Burgess. Hello there, David Feldman. Uh, did you make it safely to the uh, the home in Georgia? Uh, no, I died on the way. Ah, another another one of my friends is gone. Uh, well, I should mention that Ben Burgess was the author of Christopher Hitchens, <laughs> what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. And everybody should go buy that book. Uh, you're a just to remind you, you are a, a a philosophy professor, a columnist for Jacobin, and you host Give Them an Argument. So I've been talking uh, 
during the opening of this show that the left yeah. does not reimagine the future. You do. Uh, I say there are three big ideas that we can sell that reimagines okay. the future and is the equal and opposing force that stops big tech and big money from devouring us. What do you okay. think are the three biggest ideas that we should be talking about to the exclusion of everything else until we get them? Um, on, on the big tech issue or just in general? In general. To me, most of what I read now is noise, distractions, mm -hmm. democracy is in its death throes, uh, uh. Ukraine. You know, it, we're just putting our fingers in in the hole of the dike and not seeing the big water coming over the top. What do we do uh, not only to to stop the water from flowing all over us, but to harness that water and use it for our own benefit? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is is just that we that we need a vastly larger and more powerful labor movement because we're never going to get um, the kind of political change that we want. And I don't just mean like um, radical, deep, you know, changes to the structure of society. Although I'd like those also, uh, but but even even more, even much more imaginable things. You know that that you you know that you could see how they would work. You know that that you know that we could have that they have in other countries in many cases. Uh, even those things, I don't think we're going to get as long as the current balance of power is what it is. Um, and and I think that um, and I think that like the the way to the way to change that is to have an organized working class, and that uh, that we can't. Have um, you know? I, I mean, I because I, I think that like if you think about things like, you know, why did you know Bernie Sanders you know lose the lose the primaries? I mean, there are a lot of reasons that you could say, and a lot of them would have some element of truth to it, right? But like, I think the biggest thing is even if there's a way that if all the stars had aligned just right uh, and everything had come together in exactly the right way with all these other things, he could have won. It was always a really narrow, steep path uh, because of lack of, of institutional power. I think that if I think that if if he'd become president, uh, actually implemented anything, you know, would have been would have been really difficult because of the lack of any kind of organized counterbalance to uh, to the power of, of business to uh, in you know which would have inevitably you know instituted massive resistance uh, to to his agenda. So. I think that's the uh, I think that's the biggest. Do you mind thing. if I push back? Sure, go for it. I'm at a DSA meeting, and okay, and I'm gonna I'm arguing with you. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. Uh huh. But, but it's not working. In other words, I'm hearing the labor unions. Well, labor unions are a 150 year old idea. I believe in Christian Smalls. I believe in Amazon. But to me, that's kind of an incrementalist approach to solving the bigger problems. When I look at what Elon Musk is thinking, when I look at what Wall Street is thinking, 
they're not afraid of us unionizing. That's a red oh, herring. Yes, they are. Oh, they absolutely are. They pull out all the stops to stop it. I mean, look at the, I mean, in, in Buffalo, that first Starbucks that was organized, uh, that's one little Starbucks. That's a, you know, tiny number of people who, who work there. And it is one tiny little dot on, you know, a, uh, a map spread out over a bulletin board of, uh, of everything that company, uh, that company owns, you know, that, uh, but, Look at how hard they work to try to stop that one little coffee shop. I, I understand from, that, but that, I, you know, I, from, I honestly from, from organizing their day. And as far as the idea that it's 150 years old, I mean, my God, like what Elon Musk and the rest of those guys you're talking about are pushing is just a reversion to ways of organizing the economy that are even older than that. Uh, that is the sort of casual labor precarity, no guarantees of anything. All that stuff is the world that we had before workers started to organize. So, I mean, if you're going to say workers organize this old idea, that's a much older idea. Okay. Again, I am the beneficiary of the Writers Guild. I love unions. I wish everybody had a union. And I, I, you know, the star, another Starbucks just went union. I worry that these are little battles that mm -hmm. we, we can win and lose. And it's a little ground game where we win a little, lose a little, but we're not thinking as big. For example, what about unionizing capital? In mm -hmm. other words, if a union, if that Starbucks goes union, there's a mm -hmm. special fund that invests in Starbucks where the workers, where you, you would have to elect politicians who would tweak the tax code so that when a company buys, does a stock buyback, which happens all the time now, a portion of that stock that's bought back has to be turned over to employees as part of their pay. And there are ways to do that through just tax incentives you don't you don't you don't write a law that says you must give this you make it through the tax code you make it in a company's best interest to turn a portion of that stock buyback over to the employees so they own a share of the company and that money is incentivized to be unionized as a voting block in the corporation yeah, so I think we're having two different discussions here. One is... But I'm raising my voice. Oh. Okay. Um, well, all right. Maybe so I, I have some kind of... You're being rational and calm. I'm passionate. Ergo, and I just use the word ergo, I'm winning. I noticed that, yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll just I'll just put up a show of keeping on going despite that. So um, I, I think that we're maybe having two different discussions. Well, I'm here. just saying we don't have big uh, ideas. We we don't have new sure, ideas. Sure, sure, sure. Well, okay, okay. So so first of all, I'd say let's not equate those two big ideas and new ideas. Secondly, because I, I I think how old or new an idea is by itself tells you very little. Uh, but. Um, but I, I think that one discussion we're having is about like what policies you'd like to see enacted. And the other discussion is about what how we could change the balance of power so that all the policies we want to be enacted could start to be enacted. Right. Like so 
I'm talking about the second thing. Now, if you want to talk, if you want to talk about the first thing, not about how we actually achieve the kind of movement that that could carry it out, or, you know, that could like successfully, uh, you know, organize people to show up and knock on doors, that could that could have that could do all of the unglamorous war physician things you're talking about in order to actually like get the power to start doing these things. Uh, but about what you do given that power, then yeah, sure. I mean, I think that, um, you know, some version of what you're talking about is like, uh, you know, co-determination, um, you know, which is, you know, that you have to have worker representatives on, on boards and, you know, you're talking about an extremely mild incrementalist version of that, you know, that you wouldn't require it, but you maybe incentivize it a little bit. Uh, you know, I mean, my point just related to discussions would be that uh, if it was enough of an incentive that uh, that um, you're, you know, like Elon Musk's and Jeff Bezos and everybody actually thought they were going to lose some power as a result of it, then they would fight like hell to stop it from happening. And uh, and this the second discussion would become relevant again. But sure, I mean, I want to go beyond code determination. I want to, you know, I want to have a system where uh, where you know firms are owned entirely either by workers or by the larger community uh, or by or by both. You know, and 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 I want to decommodify to take outside of the market entirely. You know, essential things that we all need like healthcare. Uh, education, uh, if you know, if this has the shiny sheen of newness to it, broadband, right? I right. think that would be. Are, are, I think things, that would absolutely... are things getting worse or getting better in this in America, in terms of for, for the for the ninety nine percent? Are things worse now or better than they the were ten years ago when Occupy first started? things worse now i mean i think um i mean i guess that's a little bit tricky because uh like that's after we'd started to get uh a little like you know some of obamacare had already been implemented stuff like that uh but we were also just i mean you know it's easy to just say like worse because you know that's like kind of the default response always right you know because you want to emphasize uh, how shitty and unjust you know things are in every way. I don't know. I mean, the uh, in in some ways it's certainly much worse. I mean, we have a uh, we have a worldwide pandemic. You know, that's that's very far from over. That's uh, that's going on. Uh, the result of the way that that was handled has led to massive wealth transfers upwards. Um, you know, we're we're starting to. You know, we've seen a uptick uh, the last couple of years, uh, is my understanding, in uh, in violent crime, which is, by the way, an issue the left doesn't take you know seriously as it should. Uh, you know, there, there are definitely lots of things that have gotten worse. I'd say that if there's something better, it's it's not so much the kind of immediate like um, immediate payoff kind of better as that maybe you know, we're starting to get the infrastructure of something that we would need to, to actually counter some of this garbage, right? right? So I, I, I think that, you know... You know what I, I remind, you know what, I, I'll tell you what I feel uh, like. I feel like when, when, when I get mad at the left, mm -hmm. it's kind of like getting mad at a people who uh, have a different pigment who are brought to this country and are uh -huh. turned into slaves and then are freed and then uh, for a hundred years are beaten down every single day 
and then you say, well, why are Irish? Huh? The Irish. The Irish. I'm just saying, yeah. and then and then yeah. blaming. So there there is this illusion, and I I fall prey to it, where I think, you know, why is the left not doing this and not doing that? Well, because they're beaten down every single day uh -huh. of their lives, and they don't have access to power and the media. So I, I get I get frustrated that the left doesn't march in lockstep the way the right does. But that's always been the case. And so it's not fair to blame the left for being scattered and not having fresh new ideas, because there's nobody who speaks for the left. There really isn't. There's no leadership on the left. Mm -hmm. How do do we need a a Bernie Sanders to be the the voice? Do we need a party on the left? That's yes, mm -hmm. we do, right? Yeah, no. I mean, I, I think having having somebody like Bernie as as a, as a really visible symbol is a great thing. I mean, I think part of the problem is that a lot of what we're talking about realistically, when we talk about the left, is not what that term has really historically meant, uh, which which is a like some sort of force in politics that's that's linked to you know organized working class that you know that that's engaged in certain kind of political battles, and you know to a great extent what we're really talking about is like you know some journalists and academics and activists uh, who you know who tend to tilt kind of middle class uh, and who are maybe morally committed uh, to to some left wing ideas but aren't really linked organically to a movement that, could, that has, um, you know, that organizes people on the basis of shared self-interest, which is the only thing that's ultimately effective. Uh, and, so could an argument so, be made, Professor Ben Burgess, that, David Feldman. that maybe the left right now is just as bad as the Biden administration, where they'd rather uh, peacock themselves present mm -hmm. in a certain way, but not actually roll up their sleeves and fight for something. Because I don't know what the again, I'm not beating up on the left. I'm just frustrated. Uh, it's easy to beat up on the left the same way it's easy to beat up on somebody who, uh, you know, is walking for the first time and tripping, you know, and, and people are trying mm -hmm. to trip them along the way. But I'm not I, I'm hearing nebulous things uh, like an all of the above approach, even when you say, you know, the labor movement. Um, I don't think that's personally. I know you're right. It just doesn't feel big enough. It just doesn't feel well, like. I, I, I mean, again, what are we talking about? We're we talking about goals. or We're we talking about strategy because strategy. I think we're, OK. Uh, I'm not then, sure. Then what's? I mean, I guess, I guess I'd just say, what's the like? I mean, yeah. I mean, what's the bigger thing? I mean, if if we could if we could just skip ahead uh, to um, to having like a viable you know third party that could actually win elections or whatever general strikes barricades in the streets you know right. like what like if if we could if we could do some of the, you know if we could just will any of those things into into existence then you know I'm I'm for it but I I don't think we can I I think that like 
And I think, honestly, one of the problems with the left is this kind of, um, you know, this kind of demand, like, insistence on immediate gratification that I think is really linked to the fact that for a lot of people, realistically, um, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's not in my interest to say, but it's true, right? I, th- I think that they, like, their primary mode of involvement with left-wing politics is basically listening to podcasts and interacting with people on the internet. So, uh, so they, 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 like, I think just the things that actually build effective social movements, you know, I mean, if, if you look at the history of the labor movement or you look at the history of, you know, the civil rights movement in the fifties and sixties, et cetera, which are like, a lot of them are extremely boring and extremely slow, you know, kind of organizing people in church basements and UV halls and all that stuff. It, it, it's, it sounds like, no, we got to have some kind of like quick fix. That's, that's not that. And I mean, if we can, then we should like, I mean, I think in certain, in certain ways, the burning campaign was an attempt at a, at a, a kind of a shortcut. to to what would have taken way longer otherwise. And if that opportunity arises, you should absolutely, run with it but i mean i i think that they like reality is under no obligation to um to cater to you know to our frustration okay uh so you both you and harvey jk have said labor 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 and and i should listen to that uh, and so tell me it 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 doesn't feel like you know, two Starbucks going union. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like there's a groundswell of support for labor in this country the way there used to be. It feels like Americans, they give lip service to unions. I'm not talking about the politicians like Biden. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about when I talk to ordinary Americans, they've never been the beneficiary of a union. They fall and pray to the propaganda against unions. A lot of people who do belong to unions have had been left with bad taste in their mouths because of controlling forces on the other side. But still, uh, oh, sorry, was that? I'm just trying to figure out. Like so, what is so, this? So what is this country? And and what is the character so, of this country? What do we believe right now? We can't go back to the '30s. We have a, a new generation of Americans, younger people who believe in socialism, but rightfully they don't want to work. I mean, that's a, that, what, 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 is, what, what does it mean to say that we can't go back to the '30s? I don't understand what that means. The, the '30s, I think, was the golden age of the labor movement in america okay so 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 why is it that you think that that can't be replicated just because like i i mean honestly this sounds like something that bill clinton might say you know it's like oh we can't you know we you know we can't go back to the 1930s we have to build a bridge to the 21st century and like on a rhetorical level like i get why that has a feel of being right to it but like tell me rationally why that actually is true why not because again i i want I want what you want. I would love to nationalize our economy. And that I think what we're up against with capital is new, fresh ideas. 
and new and fresh trumps old, tired, but true ideas. In other words, a union but, is a gr uh, but, They but, will I defeat mean, us, all, what, but they defeat us with that. So, so, OK, but that like you're just kind of repeating yourself, like, like say that something is new and fresh is I mean, first of all, it's meaningless. Like usually it's applied to things that are, are not at all new, that they're the furthest thing imaginable from being new. Uh, you know, like when, like certainly if you're talking about like, you know, what are these new fresh ideas the right or the capitalists or any of the, you know, any of them have, right? Like, no, they're all, they're all, you know, advocated things. There's some variation on something that's existed longer than the labor movement has. Uh, you well, know, my so. experience, my experience with the labor movement is, is limited, but yeah. I've, I, I, I've, learned it at warp speed because show business ha things happen quicker. And so what like Comedy Central. OK, yep. try to go. They try to get Comedy Central to go union and capital has is very slippery. They've fought this battle a million different types times. So Comedy Central isn't a signatory to the Writers Guild, the individual shows have to be the signatories. So you have to sign show by show. And Comedy Central is owned by Viacom, which is owned by CBS. So they've they figured out a way, Capital figured out a way that CBS, which owns all these television networks and all these shows, doesn't have to be a union signatory. You have to sign each individual producer and it's it and they and I, the lesson i took from that is it's a ground game it's constant vigilance you have to fight every step of the way the problem is people in the union get rich mm -hmm. they no longer have the same skin in the game that i have you get older you become a producer you become an executive you're still a member of the union but you don't really need it and that there are games and tricks that they know how to play to well, sure. defend I mean, the unions. I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, earlier, your example of a new fresh idea was tax incentives. And if there's any game that capital knows how to play, you know, I mean, that's that's got to be the one, right? Like that the, uh, you know, is working, figuring out how to creatively work the tax code. I know. Uh, but but the uh, but like, I, I think we're also like, I think we've kind of gone from talking about strategy to tactics right in other words that like okay sure i mean all the stuff you're talking about are like the sort of specific tactical headaches of uh of trying to you know organize unions given the way that the game is currently rigged and you know we could certainly have a discussion about how you know labor can respond to that you know tactically whether like sort of going through this you know uh nlrb kind of system that uh that you know that was established in the 30s uh, you know, is is always the is always the best option. Whether you know whether more, you know, wildcat strikes, whether more experimenting with you know minority you know unions, you know, where where you're not even trying to to get you know recognition, uh, you know, like might have a role, etc. Uh, you know, whether you know return to the kind of tactics that in the 30s were most effective, which were outside of legality entirely, you know, like sit down strikes, uh, you know, might might have a role. And I think those were all good tactical questions but what i haven't really heard right because like the tax the tax incentives for uh you know stock ownership transfers workers thing that's like a very detailed policy idea 
but I haven't heard what the sort of alternative strategy well, I, is. Well, I do have, I mean, I do, I'm, I'm going to talk about this on Tuesday's show, and I've been talking about it. I, obviously I'm pro-union, but we've lost. First of all, we've lost. If 8%, 7% of uh, private business yeah, is union. It's, 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 it's a huge loss, but it is, uh, I mean, it's, it's, yes. I mean, obviously that's the bitter fruit of many, many defeats, but there's also, uh, but, but you're also comparing that to what, right? Like what's the area in which, uh, we re, we retain more power or potential for power, uh, than, you know, where, I mean, there is one place that, you know, working people have the most potential power, which is, of the point of production where you can, but what you know, if theoretically, why, okay, so you, you're smart shut, shut, shut it down, right? So, 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 like, what's like at that same level of generality? Like, what's the, what's the alternative place? Like, like, is is it uh, kill the head? You know, kill the head. Go for the money. Which, which, which go means what? Go get the capital. In other words. Well, I mean, but go get the capital is a policy goal. That's not a that's not a strategy for achieving it, right? Like you could have your tax incentive thing. That could be a policy that a future left wing government could carry out. But the question is, how are you going to get the power to be in any position to implement that in the first well, place? Well, I, I actually think, well, my plan, and I am running for office on this. I'm kidding. Is social security the we have to start a conversation? where Social Security, where there are trillions of dollars, is invested in stocks. But, but, that's, but that's another policy idea, yes, right? It is. Like, like it's, oh, it's, 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 it's a beginning of the net. Hang on. Sure. It's OK. Hang on. You want you want you want to nationalize the economy. So do I. And I think it starts with a political effort. And, and and the the byproduct of this is unions and unions would be a part of this. But government ownership, 10 percent ownership in the banks in corporations where we have a say with the board of directors. This is something where there would be a left right alliance. Wall Street, it's a Trojan horse where when we have a government that takes the 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 trillions of dollars sitting in social security and invests in etfs and the s p 500 and buys on the dips and when the when when instead of the federal reserve propping up the economy when the stock market crashes the the treasury department goes in and buys on the dips which wall street would love because it would provide an undergirding to the stock market, but it would be the government, the Treasury, that owned that stock and would have a seat at the table. This is this yeah. is big. And so so but, but but the question is not whether it's big or not. The question is everything you just said, except for one part of one sentence, was the idea for what policies we would like to see implemented. Fair enough. But the question I'm asking is not what policies will want to be implemented, but how you get the power to be in any position to have any influence over policies. And the one part of one sentence that I heard just now that was that sounded like it said it was something about a strategy was you use the phrase left right alliance. Uh, and so 
So what's the alternative strategy here? Not that you try to uh, organize the working class, but that you that you have what you uh, you have like a some sort of alliance with with some kind of right wing politicians. No, or, no, the government. My, I think the end game. What we should want is a government, a democratization of the economy. Isn't that what we want? And 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 those th that pathway is already built into, believe it or not, capitalism. If the government buys up, we're allowed to buy stock in companies. So this should be on the table and discussed. And we should be buying a instead of bailing out Delta, we should give them five billion dollars and say we now get 10 percent ownership yeah, but, but, but you're but you just but i keep on asking what the strategy to achieve these policies is you keep on telling more about poor policy. Well, it's not, it's, well it's, first of all it's not even discussed and, and that would oh, be oh, okay oh, okay that's fine i mean if, if you just want to talk about policy ideas there are lots i'm in favor of that go way beyond beyond this and I think some that are already very popular that, you know, that go that are in some ways more radical, you know, like Medicare for all. But I think that uh, but I think that uh, that, again, you know, if we're talking about whether like labor, you know, rebuilding the labor movement is a thing to focus on, that's a discussion about strategy for building power to be in any position to have an effect on what policies happen. And everything you're telling me is if you just sort of a skip to the part where you have that power, then what policies would you like to try to use it to bring about? Well, to me, that's how you get, that's how you get but, the but, power. But, but, but how do you, but again, like, oh, okay, so the, the strategy is just, is just advocate better policies and then the power will come. Well, if, if now we prime the pump and get this discussion out there, there will be a financial emergency that's baked into our system. And if we can get the conversation, see, Americans, including me, don't understand all this stuff. But I do know that the, Fe the Fed acts unilaterally in an undemocratic way to rescue capitalism every 10 years. Why does okay. the federal, so instead of the Federal Reserve buying up junk bonds, why doesn't the Treasury instead prop up our economy on the dip when the stock market crashes 50 percent okay we're buying stock in the s p 500 we now america what what how could you argue if capitalism is good it should be good for everybody why can't it be good for our government why does uh Goldman Sachs get to be the beneficiary of a rising stock market, but not the federal government. If it's such a great investment, why can't we invest some Social Security and some of our extra surplus uh, into the stock market? That would give us a that would give us a seat at the table with corporate America where we would say. You you have we would give us voting shares i mean i i think if the claim is that the strategy is to advocate this really specific kind of hard to follow wonky policy idea it should i be. i am not i'm not wowed by that strategy i think i think i think the left already advocates ideas that are 
I love you. I love you. I really do love you. Here's what I'm concerned about, because I've been reading the financial pages. I've I've been really I've I've made a decision. I really want to learn what these monsters, these sociopaths are thinking. And one of the things that I'm worried about is that a lot of people on the left. And I, I love you. I, do, I worship you. I do. And I'm not arguing with you. I really care about what's happening to this shithole we call America. And what I'm worried about is the people on the left. Don't understand. What capital really wants and what they're planning to do to us. This is what I'm worried about. And if we and when you say the American government buying shares of a corporation, you call that wonky and complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I, I think, I, yes, I think that's, I, I that think it, was, that worries was, me was, that you think that that's, we're going to have, so, that so, worries so, me yeah, that if, think, if you think that's wonky, then the America, we are effed as a nation because then, you, that, you know, you know, what's, you know, what, you know, what's a lot simpler, less wonky, uh, just, uh, just legally require, uh, you know, co-determination like in Germany that you have to, you know, you have to give workers a certain number of seats on the board of directors or, you know, you know, what's much less wonky just saying like, you know, the uh, uh, we should nationalize the health insurance sector, Medicare for all, which is already incredibly popular. I mean, the problem, the reason why um, the you know left wing policies don't happen isn't that we, you know, isn't that we don't have ideas that would be popular if people took them seriously. Uh, and some cases already are popular, but like, you know, I don't think people are outraged. They don't happen because it doesn't sound like things that really might happen. You know, I think the problem is the lack of any power to uh, to have the influence to carry any of this stuff out in the first place. And if your if your idea is, well, our strategy is not like thinking about, OK, where can you build power? Where do ordinary people have the most influence? You know, but your strategy is. Um, you know, we just need to like have like more clever ideas that people will rally to them. I mean, I, 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 I guess we just really disagree about what the problem is. Do you, do you think we have to wrap it up? Uh, I appreciate this. I, this is great. I suspect the problem is people who don't have money don't understand how investments work. And so, and so they, they are uh, bulldozed by experts. Like, I don't think most of us understand. We don't, none of us know how the Fed works. None of us, the 99 percent has not been trained to understand how a corporation works, what voting shares are, and and that that there's a way to democratize a corporation that that I don't think we we I don't think we know how we've learned enough because we have no money. So we don't learn about this. Do you think that's a, a serious concern that we that maybe we don't know enough about Wall Street and what they want and what they're planning because we don't have any money? Uh, we have no skin in the game. I don't think that the problem is lack of education about the intricacies of uh, of finance. I think the problem is lack of power to carry out political preferences. I think that if we could just, I think that if if we could somehow snap our fingers and make it the case that tomorrow there was a national referendum 
on whether to institute Medicare for all and, you know, uh, or, you know, whether to, you know, to tax, you know, to tax the big corporations and, uh, uh, and, and use it, you know, and use it for, you know, for some sort of like, you know, UBI wealth transfers. I think, I think it would win. Okay. You know, I, 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 I think today, right today, I think it would already win. I think the problem is, of course, we're never going to get that. And the, you know, the problem is not so much buy-in for at least basic reforms. Maybe not all the crazy long-term stuff I would want, but at least basic reforms. I think the problem is not lack of popular buy-in. I think the lack, the problem is lack of popular power to you know to bring about uh, those those reforms. And that right now the the biggest problem is that people think, yeah, that'd be nice if they could happen, but it sounds like stuff that's never going to happen. And, you know, why take it seriously? Right. I, I just looked at the clock. Everybody, I apologize. And uh, I've kept it, the, the Hershenfelds waiting. Uh, ben Burgess, Professor Ben Burgess is author of Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong and Why He Still Matters. And I just got it. No, so awesome. I, I will give the Feldman guarantee next week. I love you. This was this was great. Read him over at Jacobin. Too, follow him on Twitter. Listen to give them an argument. And uh, I agree with everything you said. I do. Okay. I, I really do. I'm just I'm just trying. Uh, let me bring in. Thank you, Professor Ben Burgess. Uh, Dr. Philip uh, Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst. Sorry to keep you waiting. Uh, but my previous patient was in crisis and uh, uh, I'll give you more time if you can spare. And Ethan Hershenfeld is a brilliant comedian, beloved thug thug Jew. Go on YouTube right now and Red Notice, the number one movie on Netflix. Do you want to pick up on what we were just talking about? Because I have some questions I wanted to ask, but. I do, actually. First of all, apology is not accepted, but we can talk about some other time. When I go to the dentist, I expect to be kept waiting. Not when I, you know, come on to David Feldman's show. You're right. I apologize. I think you're leaving out human nature in all of this. Uh, people, for the most part, do know what's good for them. You don't have to understand the machinations of the Federal Reserve in order to buy a share of stock in General Motors. But a lot of people don't have the money for that share of stock. And that's what stops them. Did you ever read, you know who Abraham Kahn was? Uh, the editor of the Forverts, the Yiddish very socialist newspaper around 1900. And he wrote a book, The Rise and Fall, I'm not sure and fall, but The Rise at least of David Levinsky. And David Levinsky grows up in abject poverty in Russia. He's an orphan. He comes to the US. He's surrounded by socialists. You think he's gonna turn into a socialist. He does not. After a lot of struggle and, and poverty and starvation and this and that, he becomes a capitalist. He becomes a very lonely capitalist because uh, Abraham Khan wants to put a moral into this story. 
But you know, a lot of people want to buy the shares in General Motors. And so what I'm saying, and then I'll change the subject, is... I know what you're saying. Do it as a group. But Yeah, as a, a Trojan a horse. Of, right. A lot of the human nature says, I'm going to do it for myself. I don't, I don't really buy the human nature argument. I've heard you make this before, and it I feel like it's it's a... Uh, it's a little bit cynical, it's a little bit sad, and it's a little bit just accepting the horrors that we're stuck with. It, it's sad. It's sad. It is. I mean, it works for people who are on the Upper East Side. Uh, no, not to cast aspersions, but, you know, if, you, if your big choice is Gristides or Whole Foods, you know. But so you're saying if your big next is time. Medication or, or Hormel chili, then, you know. So you're saying next time we have a blizzard and we don't plow the streets on the Upper East Side, you just say to the people on the Upper East Side, it's human nature. Don't blame me. It's, it's a combination of human nature and mother nature. And <laughs> let it. Let it and, and vengeance. <laughs> I don't I don't have I don't have. What do you prefer? Let, let me ask you, let me ask you a question, Ethan. What do yeah. you prefer? I don't know, care what the answer is in terms of what, what is true, but what do you prefer? Nature? Mint or chocolate chip. <laughs> Mint, oh, I thought you were ice cream. Okay, what, what was the Nature question? or nurture? Not what is the truth, not what shapes us, yeah. but if you had yeah. to pick nature. I prefer nature because there's, there's more room, it's, there's trees, nurture is <laughs> a little too warm, it can get sweaty. I like nature. And you can go for a walk. In nurture, you can't go for a walk. You're just tied there. It's, it's very restricting. I don't, nurture, nurture makes me nervous. And it's, it's yeah. clingy. Nurture can be very clingy, right? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of laundry in nurture. In nature, there's no laundry. I really prefer nature. You can just air dry. In nature, you just put it out in the sun, you know, air dry. Nurture, it's very, it's a mess. Um, what I was going to say is I don't have all the answers when it comes to these big questions. I mean, people think I do. I have one of those faces. People just they, they all, all the time, they come up to me and they say, you know, this guy, this guy clearly knows. He has the answer to the big questions. And I really don't. Um, it's disappointing. I, I have directions. If you need to know like how to get places, I'm very good with that. And if I don't know, I'll make it up. But I don't have, I don't have answers to the big questions, but I know this. I was just reading this story the other night. It's, it's called, I was telling my father about it. It's called uh, The Dream of a Ridiculous Man. Should, I recommend everyone reads it. It's incredible. It's by Dostoevsky. The Dream of a Ridiculous Man. And it really goes to the heart of what you and Ben were just talking about. And it, it, it draws a distinction between the earth we live on and an alternate earth where everyone just loves other people as much as they love themselves. Just put everyone else's... Uh, needs and desires, put them on above or at least on on par with your own and instantly in the snap of a finger the planet uh, changes all these problems go away and i know you can say it's very easy to say well yeah but that's ridiculous that can never happen but you know i think i think we, we got to try we got to try to some degree well, otherwise what are we doing we're, so, look at the path we're on Doctor, we're on a one we're on a, we're on a train and it's just heading right into that the, and the bridge is out that's where we're at dr hershenfeld Yes, I, could I just exhausted myself. I'm I sorry. could never be a psychiatrist, 
because okay. I get an idea in my head and I'm utterly convinced that this is it's a grand unifying theory. And I mm. think this is what we need to do. And if you just did this, you would be happy. And I won't take no for an answer. How do you how do you keep from saying to a patient who is suffering like to a kid, there's no monster underneath your bed. Sleep underneath your bed and see if a monster bothers. How do you keep from just telling somebody this is what the truth is? <laughs> from learning that that doesn't work. It's not, it, but it's it's not a, a, a controlled double blind study. You, you haven't tried that. It might work. It might work. Well, you're right. I don't have all the answers either. Like you profess yeah. that you don't have all the right answers. David Feldman, he has all the right answers because he'll tell people this, that, whatever comes into his mind. Because it doesn't matter what I think. Right. But I, I, I think if you want to give advice like that, though, it's just very simple. You just have to you one would need to just change their business card from therapist or psychoanalyst to life coach. Yeah. And if you're a life coach, which is a perfectly good, it's a good gig also. Uh -huh. I think it helps. It helps people. So I think I well, I've, I've said I, I would like to be America's grandfather. Where, okay. you know, one eighth, you should you know, I'm going to scream at you. But you should only factor in one eighth. I should only have one eighth of an, a factor in your decision making. I think people need. But that's, with the, that's with steps, right? So there's some step. Or is that the great grandparents? That's the great. No, what am I? America's great great grandparents. America's on. great granddad. I'm one six of your, right? You have four grandparents and two. So that's six. So I'm one six of. Of oh, oh, I see, I see. Yeah, right, right. okay. And yeah. I'm going to tell you um, what people yeah. need a people need a crazy Jewish grandfather screaming at them. That's why Bernie would have been a great president. Mm -hmm. And you listen yeah. to him people one six of the time. If he can get one yeah. six, like that's how I would run for office. I'm your yeah. crazy Jewish grandfather, and you should one six of my ideas are worth listening to. The other stuff, yeah. it's. Um, I want to um, go, go ahead. Yeah. I, I, no, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Bob Saget passed away. Great man. And the more you learn yes. about Bob Saget, the sadder and the bigger the loss. I said to a couple of people who called me who didn't know him, they said to me, you know, I'm really taking this bad. And I said, to one of them, knock you it said off. Bad, you said badly. badly. Right. And somebody, you corrected them. Yes. Somebody called me, never met Bob. Uh, and so I'm really taking this badly. And I said, knock it off. Okay. Am I wrong? That's why you're not, that's why you're not a psychiatrist. <laughs> but no, you, you are getting to something important, which is that there's a thing now on social media when someone dies, people just scour their phones for any photo they happen to have with that person. Everyone just wants to post a photo with the dead guy. That's the thing nowadays. Here I am. I met this guy backstage somewhere. I have a selfie with the dead guy. 
I don't. I'm, I'm not a fan of that. What, but I once what, met the dead guy. When when the nation mourns, I'm not saying you shouldn't be sad that Bob passed away. I mean, I knew him, and I'm very upset. Uh, but to me, there's an is there an avoidance at play here, Doctor, where people are, hey, Emil, I'm not trying to avoid you. We're running 10 minutes behind because somebody couldn't keep his mouth shut. I'm not going to tell you who, but it rhymes with Jew. Uh, <laughs> is there an avoidance here, a national avoidance when we fixate on the deaths of people we don't know as opposed to the people we do know and should care more about there's an avoidance of thinking about our own deaths it's much nicer to think about somebody else's death and i have a list of people whose deaths i often think about <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I sh actually sent it. I sent it to uh, to the doctor yesterday. It, there's a nice three and a half minute set. Uh, Bob Saget doing his three and a half minute set at Dangerfield, and Rodney Dangerfield introduces him. He does a time a very quick set, three and a half minutes. Uh, it's from 1984. It's really it's worth watching. It's really yeah. good. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was. It was great. It was a great man. Yeah. Um, um, oh, I wanted to uh, just before because I know things are tight schedules. I did uh, picking up a little distance. Doctor Hershenfeld, there's a distance here. I feel you're not present. Really? Yeah, I feel like you want to say something. Not yet. Okay. When I, I'm not bashful. When I want to say something, I'll say it. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to say something right now, which is I, I was I was struck by that uh, Djokovic story, you know, um, the tennis player, uh, the tennis player in Australia who who lied on his on his travel document um, about his positive tests. And, you know, that mendacious Serb. Djokovic. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> I that's a great when you wrote the mendacious serb I thought that's like that's somebody who would open for me who I couldn't follow the mendacious serb yeah it's like a magician <laughs> anyway um I did notice that serb it sounds like a an, a, a racial epithet and I realized it's just like if you just say Jew it's just because it's the one syllable thing like right. Croat it doesn't sound like an insult because it's two syllables Croat but Serb he's a Serb it's just there's something about it the one syllable it's not good to be a one syllable ethnicity now I noticed I that the Serb behold that thought now I noticed growing up that Serbs were frowned upon, but they were very good to the Jews. Were, aren't the Serbs? No. <laughs> oh. You got the wrong. You got the, the Bulgarians. Yes, the Serbs. Forget about it. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't think we should be engaging in these okay. broad generalizations. Yes, we should. No. <laughs> but let's do it. <laughs> but let's. But let's. He brought it up, not me. Well, I brought just it up. Trying to correct the record. Right, if you yeah. if you take a baseline, if you look at the Balkans, if you take a baseline, yeah, yeah, that everybody is bad to the Jews. 
<laughs> but I that's I heard Serbs. You want a ranking? I you heard a ranking. I heard that Sir, if you looked at Croats versus Bosnians versus Serbs, yeah. that it was the Serbs who who were less cooperative with the Nazis than the Croats. Right, could be. I got. I got. I haven't read that book. What about the Macedonians? I, I don't know. Well, don't your know. name is Philip. Okay. Let Philip answer about the Macedonians. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's a different um, Macedonia. I'd like I to hear sing. this man's pip point already. <laughs> yes. I did sing once in Bulgaria, and there was a, a woman who was the first violin in the orchestra there, and she was Jewish, and her family was Jews, and they had never left Bulgaria because, as my father mentioned, there actually was a – the king there was very helpful to saving the Jews of, of Sofia, Bulgaria. from they, they were actually literally loaded on the trains. He, he went and got them loaded off the trains. The king put a yellow star on his own sleeve – as did much of the population, and they marched down to the train station. All right, really? More detail. I didn't know that detail. Yeah, the Bulgarians? Yeah. Bulgarians. Yeah. Bulgarians. Yeah. Um, can, can I? But please. No. Hitler. No, he, Sorry. He's, okay. He's uh, trying, all right. All right. Go he's ahead. trying to make a point. Yes, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm on edge. Go ahead. I apologize. No, no, I want to make my point before we're out of time because it's very important. So, the um, Djokovic lied on his travel document. He said that he had had a negative test when he hadn't something. And then he called it misinformation. Weirdly, as though someone else did it, he lied on his travel document. But uh, people people think that, that was the first time it was not. 1982 at the U.S. Open, Shlomo Glickstein, <laughs> the Israeli tennis star, Shlomo Glickstein lied on his travel document when he checked the box under religion, Presbyterian. <laughs> Scandalous did not make the front page. Also, Bjorn Borg, that same year at the, at the US Open. Bjorn Borg, it's unclear whether it was a typo or it was an intent intent to lie, but he switched he switched the umlauts. So he was listed not as Bjorn Borg, but as Bjorn as, as Bjorn Berg. So that was unclear, but it was also scandalous. Did not make the papers. And finally, this was an episode of it's 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 nothing shy of probably the greatest moment of professional sports pandering in history. That very same year at the US Open, 1982, at Flushing Meadows, Yvonne Lendl listed his name on his travel document as Yvonne Yentl. <laughs> Pandering to the New York audiences, and uh, so listen. He I, uh, he, he yeah. beat Billie Jean King, I believe. Yentl. He he competed against in the women's tournament. Yeah, that was uh, Bobby Bobby Riggs. Bobby Riggs. Going out of the um, anyway, those are some other episodes of mendacious tennis stars. The mendacious Serb. Uh, also, the the Serb. Interestingly, you would think that Djokovic would um, would be one of those players who did the Serb and volley. But no, <laughs> he's more of a backcourt player. <laughs> okay. David, you were saying. Well, I was going to bring up Thank something you for uh, indulging me. The, that Hitler, I'm not making this up, was... Are, are we the, still talking about tennis stars? Well, Bulgarians. That, that Hitler oh. was one of the first proponents of fecal transplants. And <laughs> I'm serious. And, and, and the, his doctor gave, gave him Bulgarian... The, the big Bulgarian worker that 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 was supposed to make Hitler robust to 
get fecal transplants from Bulgaria. Look it up. So it's interesting. I didn't know wow. this about uh, the king of Bulgaria. And did he pay a price for yeah, it? I'll find, I'll find some documentation. Oh. No, no, no. He, uh... he won. Interesting. Yeah. What are we reading? Yeah. I'm... Well, I just told you, I read that short story, yeah. um, uh, The, the uh, Dream of a Ridiculous Man, um, in this little volume of Dostoevsky short stories. So now I was talking to a friend about that. He said, you got to read Crime and Punishment, which I, I haven't read since high school. And I started it. It's fantastic. Oh, my God. Don't tell me what happens. But wow. Do you like Columbo? I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even up to the crime part. That's how slowly I read. So. Columbo is based on Crime and Punishment. The, okay. The, the, I'm serious. The back and forth with the inspector. Oh. And what oh, are you wow. reading, Doctor Hershenfeld? I'm reading a book about, about Hitler that Ethan gave me as a gift about the five days in December. Forty-one. Forty-one. When Hitler made his most fatal mistake. He said, Yavol, I will take the Bulgarian poop in my poop. <laughs> Five days? No. In which he made, and nobody knew what he was going to decide. It was after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And in those five days, and, and the United States had still not come into the war in Europe. They were going to come in in, in, uh, in Asia because of Pearl Harbor. And in those five days, with nobody knowing what he was going to do, he decided to declare war on the United States. And that was his end. He was done for. Would we have gone since Japan was part of some kind of was the Axis? Axis. Wouldn't we have found our way in through Japan? Maybe not, because there was a huge isolationist party in the United States who wanted to do nothing with or for Europe. Right. Right. And and they they were very powerful. They were Republicans, of course, and um, doing I think business. If Hitler had. Not well, yes, right. They wanted to do business. And if, if Hitler had not declared war in the United States, we might not have entered the war. And there would have been a different result. England would have gone down, for sure. Because we had stopped, because of the attack on Pearl Harbor, we stopped sending England and Russia as many war supplies as we had been because we needed them now. And then it would have just so, been Stalin versus Hitler back and forth, a fight. And, Church and Churchill versus Hitler. But he would have and lost. Churchill would have lost, yes. And, and, so was it, on the and the world would have been divided into... Communism versus fascism. Could have been. You never Interesting. know. Interesting. May the worst man. Anyway, uh, doctor, who wrote, is this Winnick? Did, who wrote the book? Two guys. Um, Siegfried and Roy. 
can never remember the, the author's names, but yeah. Two guys. It's like this. You, you, you inherited that from me. Yeah. And lastly, before you go, Dr. Hershenfeld, yes. uh, how yeah. worried are you? A year ago, a year, and a, a year and four months ago, you were worried about Trump and the country. How worried are you now? Very. I said, did you see that movie, Don't Look Up? Yes. Okay. Now, people say it's not a good movie. I'm not a great movie critic, but um, I thought it was a very good movie. I agree. I thought it was great. What's that? It was great. I loved it. And and the message, the message is true. Uh, we have leaders who are telling us, don't look up because you'll get scared if you look up. And terrible things are happening. I think mostly to the environment, but also politically. Yes, put me in the worried column. Right. Well, I'm in the worried but resigned, so I'm past the worry. I'll do what I can, but I, I've, I won't say I've given up, but uh, I think all is lost. No, don't give up. That's all is lost. I don't be a defeat. I, I'm angry and worried. I'm angried by this all yeah. very angry i want yeah. to stay angry well i'm keeping people waiting dr phil okay. fell thank you so much and thank you so much David. thank you sorry Peace. to keep you waiting uh ethan and it's not i told you i'm not accepting your apology so <laughs> save your breath <laughs> and ethan plug some gigs besides thug thug oh. chew on youtube Oh, yeah. So I think I mentioned, uh, listen to that novel on audio, on, on audio, on audible, uh, the Netanyahu's it's called. It's an interesting novel. I'm chapter five. It's very fun. And then I'm in this radio, this other radio drama coming out from Broadway video called Method. It's called Method. And it Z Zachary Quinto is, is, is in it. That actor from uh, various things. Um, oh, and next week, uh, we'll see me on Bull, Bull. on CBS. CBS. Bull. CBS Bowl. Fantastic. And, and David, he is a fantastic photographer, and I'm bugging him to do something oh. with his photographs. He's, okay, he's, just he's just fantastic. Yes. He's just fantastic. I need, a, I need a photo editor to help me put a book together of all this stuff I have. So if anyone in, the, in your audience wants to get in touch with me who, who works in that world, that's anybody who can do. What does photo editing mean? They would go. They would help me go through thousands and thousands of photos to try to put together a book. You know, I have someone who has a real eye. I, there was a guy from the FBI who was going through all my photos, but uh, <laughs> but I don't think he had a good eye. The stuff he picked that uh, he isolated, I didn't think it was. They have a very particular thing they're looking for. <laughs> yeah. Thank all right. All right. Uh, thank you so much. I, we all look for we love you guys. We do. We're God bless. Thank you. If there's anybody. Bye. bye. Thank you, doctor. If there's anybody in the Zoom room who would like to help Ethan, I think there probably are. Uh, contact Dan in the newsroom before Emil Guillermo joins us. Let us go to Dan in the newsroom. Dan, are you there? And when should we do, when should we do 
uh, community billboards, sir. Okay, uh, why don't we do it? But if you're ready, we could do it after Emil, after the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Just let me know, Dan Frankenberger. Well, joining us in California is the youthful. Look at you. Emil Guillermo, PETA podcast. It's the gong. It's the gong. PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He is the host of their podcast. I want to ask you about pig hearts. Yes. And pig transplants. And then I want to. Please. And you are also a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Welcome, sir. It's good to be here on. Uh, everyone's already calling us. This is probably one of the worst days, weeks of uh, Joe Biden's presidency. It's not even a year old. And I, I've just been following just how terrible the week has been for him. But anyway, it's good to be with well, you, Well, hang David. on, hang on. What, what, what didn't he do now? Oh, it's not what he didn't do. It's just, you know, like I wrote in my column on the Aldiff blog, I called his speech on Tuesday, his I have a dream speech, you know, the dream that Christian Cinema and Joe Manchin would like go away and get out of his way. And so he can get a celebration by MLK Day, you know, celebrating MLK and the voting rights, uh, uh, passage of voting rights acts, the, 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 you know, the freedom to vote and also the John Lewis Act. But after today, it just didn't seem like, I don't know what's going to happen. I think he's going to have another major defeat coming on next week. And um, I, it's just, it's just depressing. I mean, I, I like listening to the Hershenfelds because, you know, I like to, you know, tag on to what they say. I, I watched Don't Look Up To uh, the other day. Well, talk to, me, but talk to me about Biden for a second because sure. he wants to do an exemption on the filibuster, keep the filibuster, except when it comes to civil rights legislation. Well, he wants to make an exception, and there have been exceptions made on fiscal policy, like lifting the debt ceiling, which is why Kristen Sinema's thing today was really like, oh, just, you know, the hypocrisy. What did she say? It, well, she said that, oh, she's for voting rights, but she's not for lifting uh, the the filibuster because that would be uh, that, that would add to the disease of the divisiveness of our country, which you know she's demonstrating right there on the Senate floor the disease that is the divisiveness of our country. It's uh, like I said, there are so many examples of hypocrisy now. It's just commonplace. You you, you can't even flag hypocrisy. It, it's better to. Uh, because it's just always there. Kevin McCarthy, you know, after the statement he made a year ago about how Trump had to bear some, you know, semblance or some responsibility for what happened on January 6th. Today, he pretty much says he's not going to go testify. He's going to dare the, the January 6th committee to to to, uh, to subpoena him. But to see a son of California from Bakersfield stand up there looking smug and just you know, dodging all the direct questions about why he's changing his mind after a year, you know, and why he's not going to go and talk about January 6th, because, you know, the committee, he says, is supposed to create legislation and I don't have anything to add to legislation. I, you know, and 
that which is BS, right? It's mm-hmm. it's no longer a BS world. It's a BH world. We're beyond hypocrisy now. It's just this is the way it is. You know, we're, we can't expect the truth. There's no truth. There's just self-interest. There's no public interest. It's just like, uh, like you know, Ethan and the doctor were saying, it's like it makes you, and like you were saying, you're angry, you're frustrated, you want to do something, but we're kind of stuck with this. We have to realize that we have been through worse. You know, I mean, that, because look, inflate, here's the other piece of bad news. Inflation's up to 7%, right? The highest since is in 40 years. 40 years when we first met, it was bad. Wasn't that bad. Inflation was double digits, 13, 14%. But when we actually met, it was like at three. And so now it's at seven. It's bad. But we can, you know, we're, we're going to find a way to deal with it. I mean, ALDEF is upset if that voting, if that right to vote act doesn't, doesn't pass because there's provisions that would get rid of gerrymandering. And the whole thing that ALDIF is working on now are, are creating these unity maps, which would create Asian American districts in New York City, which there haven't been, but the independent commission that did the, the map making, you know, essentially drew, drew out the Asian Americans. So a coalition of community groups came together and said, here are the better maps, you know, uh, New York legislature and, and Governor Hochul pass this. And, and that's the, the fight that they're in. So there will always be people out there fighting, you know, the bad things that are happening. And unfortunately, it looks like we're just in this bad way now Yeah, where we have to keep fighting. And that, that's the frustrating thing. There was hope. There, I mean, there was real hope. I mean, I came on here in January when Biden and, uh, you know, that January a year ago when Biden and um, Harris came on and we thought, hey, this is going to be this is going to be something. And I don't know what happened. I saw Biden today or Harris today on the Today Show or on Thursday, rather, on the Today Show uh, uh trying to prop up Biden and trying to say, hey, you know, look, we're, we're doing it now with, on everything, you know, from the mass to voting rights. And she looked tired. She looked tired. And I'm looking at the Washington Post, which will be out on Friday, and they're saying things like time for Harris to cut Biden loose and then things like, oh, Biden is in trouble. Hey, you know, that this is, it's going to snowball. And I don't, it doesn't look good for the midterms. It just doesn't look good at all. It just means that if you're fighting for your cause, gear up because the fight's going to get tougher. Interesting. Interesting. I, you know, I, I can't stand listening to Biden speak. He's just not a great communicator. And that's all he has to offer, by the way, is being the great communicator. That's all he's offering is healing the nation through pageantry. And he's not good at it. But I did think what little I saw of that speech, was it yesterday? I thought, Tuesday, oh. yeah. I, th- I thought, well, that's not bad. You know, which side are you on? You want to be on George Wallace's side or John Lewis's? I thought this is, but what is he fighting for? He's fighting for inches. You know, this, this yeah. bill, Yes, we need a voting rights bill. We need to make Election Day a national holiday. Absolutely. Uh, But if he swung for the fences, you couldn't suppress 
there, it would be impossible to suppress the votes. If he's if you swing for the fences, I would wait in line 24 hours to vote for Bernie. See, but he's, in, not, in way, he's not you're, giving us a reason to vote. That's the problem. Well, you're you're right in a way that some of the the measures in the voting the two voting rights bills that passed the House and are now up before the Senate, they're kind of incremental, but they're they're big steps, you know, to yes. make a national voting rights holiday, and then also the whole thing about getting rid of gerrymandering. That's a good deal, and mail uh, the, and the mail John, in ballots for everybody. I agree. Right. The, the John Lewis thing, uh, restoring what the uh, Supreme Court took away, that's important because those were the, the federal oversights on any kind of BS, uh, you know, state law changes in the election laws. So th that restores that. What the so Democrats need, what the Democrats need, the only yeah. thing that is going to save this country is a landslide, a Democratic a president who wins big. And on his coattails, brings in a new, you know, Biden Democrats. We've yeah, had that need, in the past. We've yeah, they, had they massive. Need, you're right. They need a mandate. They need that kind of thing. And right now, the margin is so slim that Biden has nothing. He's got a. Uh, you know, like he said the other day, you've, you've got a whole Senate who could act like a president and, and hold up everything. Right. Because they need 50 votes, you know, a simple majority. And then, the, you know, with the filibuster, you only get that with the filibuster because you need 60 votes, you know, uh, otherwise. See, and then, you know, what. Let me offer history, alternative history to you. Sure. Another four years of Trump uh, would have been horrible, but but uh, the more I read about the Trump presidency, the more I see that he is the worst president this country ever had, and he brought in the worst people in the world, but they were incompetent. They were stupid. They, you know, there were something like, you know, 50, 60 lawsuits challenging the elections. Not a single one held up. They couldn't spell. They couldn't argue. They went before Trump appointed judges and they said, you know, we're charging voter fraud. And the judge said, OK. Uh, where's the evidence? Well, there is no evidence. So is there voter fraud? No, there's no voter fraud, but there could be case dismissed. I mean, it was, you know, Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell and Giuliani. There are still institutions in place where only the truly craven will follow Trump to the gates of hell and they're incompetent. I'm not saying there's nothing to worry about, but had we had another four years of Trump, hear me out, McConnell, things would have gotten worse, but there were dishonest, honest brokers, which is why we should have the faith to have elected, to have nominated Bernie. See? Yeah. I had enough faith in the Joint Chiefs of Staff, 
the Supreme Court, McConnell, even Kevin McCarthy, that yeah. if Trump got reelected, that there were institutionalists who would have tamped down his ambitions, which is why if you love this country, if you have faith in America, you nominate Bernie and swing for the fences, because had Bernie had Bernie gotten the nomination, it would have been two things would have three things would have happened. One is he would have been destroyed, which, you know, by, that Trump would have destroyed him and the mainstream media would have destroyed him and he would have gone down. The second thing that would have happened is he, it was a tight election. The, the mandate didn't arrive and there was a coup d'etat. You know, Pence wouldn't certify and January 6th would have been January 6th through right now. But the third thing is he could have gotten the big surprise, the big mandate, the crazy Jew, the socialist from Vermont. And as 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 COVID tore through the country and he's really a one issue guy, Medicare for all. At some point, people would have to step up. This is the third option where even the mainstream media goes, you know what? We got to get behind this guy. One of three things would have happened, all of which I think. Uh, would have been better than what we have now. <laughs> uh, two out of three would have been better than what we have now. Well, I don't know. Maybe you're right. I don't know. I remember when George McGovern was running and everyone was behind him. He beat out, uh, you know, uh, Eugene McCarthy. And he was he was the vision and he got beaten badly by Richard Nixon. So he beat out Humphrey. Was it was it was it Humphrey? Yeah. Uh, no, no. But McGovern, he beat out Muskie. First, it was Muskie yeah. who was the front runner. And, right. and then and, Humphrey got into it. But, uh, but Eugene McCarthy was more 68. But, but no, but I'm saying uh, he be he got he, he lost by landslide to Nixon. Sure. And Mondale right. lost yeah. by a landslide to Reagan, which means this country is capable of having landslides. Yeah. You know, we think that, you know, we need a landslide and you don't get a landslide unless you swing for the fences and take the big well, chance. Well, we definitely need something moving because right now we can't agree on anything. And I thought that after January 6th, you know, we see the videos after a year. We can't agree on we can't agree on what January 6th was. Right. And then and that's why I had a little hope for Biden when he came out and said, well, what country do you want to be? Martin what is Luther King, you know, who's King? What is January? Look, what? January 6th, horrible. Yeah. I, they should be rounded up. Yeah. But what does it matter now? So it, it's looking, we should do all the things they're doing. But, uh, but, but the I'm American people don't care about January 6th. The American people, know, they're but, being evicted. They're dying from COVID. Right. But what I'm saying is that after, on the, on the anniversary date, 
which just happened, we should have been able to agree that it was bad and that we should, something should bring together our country. And there's nothing that seems to, to do that anymore. You can't you can't shame a country where the political leaders are all narcissists. You can't shame. You can't shame. That, that was the whole thing about Biden saying, are you on? on the team of Martin Luther King or George Wallace of, you know, Abraham Lincoln or, or Jefferson Davis. You can't shame people. I mean, that's an obvious, right. Oh, of course, you know, I'm, I'm right there with, uh, with Lincoln. I'm right there with MLK, but you can't, you can't shame our nation anymore when the leaders are so self-serving and so full of themselves. And well, really, you know what uh, you bring up history and I mentioned yeah. this last week, there's there, yes. there I'm a, I'm a Kennedy assassination freak. I love going through the history of it. I want to get to the bottom of who killed Kennedy. We haven't yet? We haven't gotten. That being said, Lyndon Johnson knew that time moves and you can't wallow in the past. He probably had something to do with the Kennedy assassination Whatever. There, the point is, what's done is done. The American people, you can't say to the American people this. You cannot say to the American people, our president was assassinated. We are going to get to the bottom of who killed Kennedy. If you do that, then, the, then all, you, all your precious capital is used looking into who killed Kennedy, and then you're going to find out, uh, as Mick Jagger said, it was you and me. Uh, uh, sympathy for the devil. You can spend the year after the Kennedy assassination trying to find out if it was the CIA, the mafia, the Russians, the Republicans, or, or you can say, uh, Reverend Barry Lynn, we're 10 minutes behind, if, if, if you don't mind. Thank you, sir. Or you can say, folks, we're going to honor the president and we're going to pass civil rights. We shall overcome. And that, Strom Thurmond voted for it. <laughs> Strom Thurmond voted for it? Yeah. He did. I didn't know yeah. that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, we're going to pass Medicare. Looking into the Kennedy assassination, yeah, there was a cover-up and Johnson was part of it. But he honored the memory by moving forward and passing the most important legislation since the New Deal. We are wallowing in the past by harping on January 6th and getting to the bottom of it. The American people are in crisis. 800,000 and counting dead from COVID. They do not care about January 6th. All right, I, I'm not obsessed by January 6th. I'm just saying it should be a rallying point for our democracy, no. that's all. That's no, it, all. it isn't. And, it's but a, also, it's a, it, it also takes Mayor Garland a long time. I don't even know if he's still gonna be around. It, it, is, it shouldn't be a rallying point. You can't get people. You, what you say, when you say remember the Maine, remember mm -hmm. Pearl Harbor, remember 9-11, it's go to war. 
Okay, if you want me to remember January 6th, then you better be taking us to war the way George Bush took us to war after September 11th, the same way uh, uh, Roosevelt took us to war after Pearl Harbor and after the Maine, McKinley took us to war. Otherwise, shut the fuck up about it and pass Medicare for all. Take us to war over January 6th or shut the fuck up about it. Sorry, Emil, I got worked up, but it's like it's just pageantry and candlelight vigils that mean nothing. Well, it certainly did not have my, my point is it just didn't have the kind of effect that it should have. And, of course uh, not, because it, they're not. Yeah. The, you remember the Kennedy assassination. You take the memory of the Kennedy assassination and you give a civil rights legislation, Medicare, Medicaid, equal housing. All right, all right, all right. I look. I understand. Yeah, just, I, just I, I keep understand going. Your point. Never forget I, November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. Fuck you and the, and your and your memories and and the well, the eternal I, flame. Who gives a shit about the eternal flame and the memory of Jack Kennedy? Do something with that memory. Well, this is why a lot of people uh, in the civil rights community boycotted Biden's speech on Tuesday when he was talking about voting rights. You're saying, come on, take some action. And he actually made, I thought, a very good speech for Biden. He, he, he set it up. He said, you know, what side you're going to be on. And even that has failed. So I don't know what's going to happen come uh, the holiday. You know, the King family says we don't want a uh, celebration without legislation. Uh Good. It's been promised, but I don't know if it's going to happen. So let's see. You know, I, I'm just saying. That let's activism, go. We go to war in this country. Yeah, well, let's go to war. Let's go to war. Activists are geared up to fight their battles in terms of redistricting, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, rights, Asian American rights, you know, voting rights. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, individual communities are they're, they're not giving up, but the hope of help from the federal at the federal level is not quite he can't as we thought. He, he can't do it biden cannot pull he can't pull it off he he we we elected him to be the the griever in chief to to after after you know he, he still won't stop going to funerals did you know that he still thinks no, he's, he's vice president. All he does is go to funerals. He thinks he's vice president because that's what he does best. He'll eulogize and, and talk about the afterlife. And let's pray instead of actually doing it. He was it is he is not the man for the moment. He is well, not you know, the, the man for the moment. We, we don't have much of a bench, right? We had of, Bernie, uh, but Clyburn well, yeah, and Obama well, and Elizabeth fucking Warren. Wouldn't endorse Bernie if Elizabeth Warren had endorsed Bernie. Yeah, uh, sorry. No, I, I, I'm getting. I, I agree I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm not. Getting I'm, not worked I'm, up here, I'm getting worked up. I apologize. That's right. No, look, I you know, we're friends. And so yeah. I, I, I understand. But there are a couple other things I wanted to mention. Sorry. I know yes. you want to mention the pig heart, but I wanted to mention my wife was on uh, Tucker Carlson again. I, that should not remind <laughs> you of your wife, the pig heart. I had to kick her up. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, she, you know, cause she represents Peter. She was on Tucker Carlson uh, this week and I got some, you know, some people said, what is PETA doing humanizing, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson, this 
this person, or Fox. What's he doing humanizing Fox? It just so happens that in our divided world, animals are the, the one thing that brings people together. And I just wanted to explain this whole PETA, Fox, Fauci connection here. Okay. Because the, the Peter Fox the right. is, who is Peter Fox again? P <laughs> no, PETA, Fox, and Fauci. I want to explain that connection because, you know, uh, some people, there's some pushback around PETA because they say, well, why are you supporting, you know, why are you appearing on Fox? Why because are you PETA is a Fox. They're, it's a Fox. They're pro Fox. They're pro Fox. Definitely pro Fox. It's an animal. The, the animals are the common ground. And it's only coincidence that they seem to be humanizing the extreme right. But the extreme right thing goes off on Fauci and Fauci kind of lost his cool and he called, uh, you know, Rand Paul a moron, which, you know, he, he might be right on some in some respects. But Rand Paul um, kind of badgered uh, Fauci. The, the point about well, the reason the, why the right hates Fauci is because they want to blame all of the virus and everything and the leadership on Fauci. That's not PETA's argument. PETA is blaming Fauci and and former NIH director Francis Collins on on spending billions of dollars on useless animal experiments over decades and this is what's keeping American science really behind the times it needs a modernization and they see Fauci Peter sees Fauci as in the way and why why Fauci must go. So there they've come there's this unholy alliance between the two. And I'm just saying that when people look at uh, at the Fox Fauci and you know PETA connection, they don't explain this and they don't explain a story that was in the Washington Post last fall that talked about this science in the shadows. And that is the kind of autocratic science led by Francis Collins and by Anthony Fauci. Collins has since been has since retired, but they were told in no uncertain terms not to fund certain experiments. It was a government. It was a federal directive, specifically Wuhan, but they did it anyway. They gave federal money, and it went to the lab, and the Washington Post talked about this exposed the power and that's that's worth talking about that's worth not having you you you, you can't have that kind of science mm -hmm. that's a kind of arrogance that we don't need in our democracy now where fox comes in and sort of screws up this whole thing is that they they take the next step which hasn't been proven it hasn't been proven that the virus escaped Wuhan and went out into the public. They can't, no one can prove that. But it, it is proven because this week, redacted emails came out that said, yes, Wuhan funded by NIH, the US, Fauci, Dr. Collins, they were using gain of function uh, experiments to, you know, try to see if they, you know, what about this virus? Not proven if it escaped from the lab, but it is proven that it was funded. And that's the kind of science that the, the emails that were unredacted, which came out this week, no one's talking about it. 
but you know, it's in the intercept and it's in, uh, you know, a couple of British publications. No one's talking about, but it does show that Collins and, and Fauci knew about it. Didn't want to talk about it. And, you know, that to me is enough reason to get rid of Fauci. And, but see the, the extreme, right. They're coming at it from, you know, they, they're coming at it from that, that, that there's proof that it did escape the lab. There's no proof yet that it escaped the lab and did some, you know, and, and, and that's the source. But there is proof that it was funded by NIH. And it is, it is true that Fauci did it. And it is true that Fauci tried to soft pedal it. Okay. I let people know. Yeah. Okay. Not a topic. I, that, that, not a topic that, I like that, to discuss on this show. I I know, but I and I'm just saying that this is why you see what you know the different groups sort of there. There's no real alliance except for the animals, right? And 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 except for the funding, the funding part, right? Um, the right brings up, you know, the whether the virus escaped. There's nothing that, right. There's nothing there that uh, that proves that. Right. This is this is, you know, I have uh, I said uh, the top of the show that we need priorities. You know, there are only three or four things we should be focusing on. Uh, and this is one of the things I'm not qualified to talk about. And uh, people should, you know, another they should tune into another show to I'm serious. <laughs> well, uh, the yeah, origins yeah, well, of the origins of COVID, part, you know, it's just not my well, wheelhouse. Well, David, this is part of the whole idea of, you know, well, the, the, you want you want every look, the silos are the silos for one reason. And that's because people are attracted to their silo and that's right. all they do. And you know, sometimes there's... I think that here is... Let, let me just say about this. Uh, I, first of all, I love you and I apologize for getting worked up. And it wasn't... I hope you don't think it was directed at you at all. At me? No. no. I know you're attacking I, I'm, my gong. No, no I, I apologize. I just start thinking about, you know, all the things Professor Marianne Cummings and Howie Klein said, and even... Jim Earl about Biden and warned us and uh, around a year ago, they said this is exactly what was going to happen with Biden. And it turns out it's a lot worse than what they said. And it is the it You know, again, I will make the case for the Democratic Party going into the midterms. I will try to make a case if if I'm not going to go third party, but I'm really pissed off when Jim Earl, Marianne Cummings and Howie Klein are right and I'm wrong. Uh, and it makes know, David, me really angry. It's, it's starting. I, I just sense it's starting to happen. The the, the it's turning against Biden uh, and, and, and really, it's the artificial deadline of MLK, the MLK Day, no celebration. You know, when the King family said no celebration without legislation and he took the bait and tried to make it happen and he isn't going to make it happen. 
but it shouldn't mean the end of voting rights legislation. Where's Build Back Better? Where's Build Back Better? Where is the $15 minimum wage? Where is the eviction crisis? Where's the the ban on the moratorium on evictions? Do you know that there's a a covid emergency that expires in two days? And if he doesn't renew that emergency, close to 10 million Americans are going to lose their Medicaid. He he let the eviction crisis lapse. He didn't even know that he had to renew the eviction moratorium. This is not the guy that, you know, they said about Truman, you know, thank God the smoke filled rooms gave us Harry Truman when we needed him. This is not Harry Truman. We the smoke filled room gave us Joe Biden. Not Harry Truman. Well, you know, I I think a lot of people are disappointed. A lot of people who were more moderate uh, and and said, "Okay, this is the next guy up. Let's let's go with him." Uh, I think a lot of people are disappointed, especially this week. And you're, you'll the media seems to be piling on. I just saw an editorial, probably going to be in print tomorrow in the Washington Post, that very negative Biden. And so it's happening. And what one even suggested that that Harris cut cut her uh, cut off from Biden. Which where, where does that leave Harris? Thomas, the great Thomas Friedman, is saying <laughs> that uh, Biden should run with Cheney. And uh, <laughs> and you go well. There are a lot of a lot of people. <laughs> A lot of Democrats I know are saying, oh, I can't I can't imagine. I like Cheney now. There are, <laughs> some would say that, too. Hey, uh, somebody David, needs uh, somebody. Thomas Friedman. Somebody. Yeah. Okay. By the Is way, he, let me just let me just clarify that when I say. We need to go to war metaphorically. Yeah. That, that if you're going to use. I, know. I, I didn't mean yeah. to get. I mean. Medic- I go to war as in pass civil rights legislation, Medicare for all, that kind of stuff. Put uh, up your dukes. Put up yeah, your dukes. I got you. Hey, hey David, can I can I say something? Because I, I know uh, the Reverend is is coming up. Yeah, we, we, we don't. We're running keep, ten uh, minutes behind. So God's messenger. That was waiting. But yes, but I I wanted to say your show on Monday. I thought when you your your treatise on poo, uh, really got to me. I, 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 I really liked your medit. It was a meditation, Dave. There's our magic M word. It was a meditation on poo and poo and humor. You know, you said every everyone was a child once we everyone's funny. The guys that get paid millions for it. Well, they're the masters. But, you know, what is the thing that makes you funny? Right. It's this. He knew when to go to the poo. And and that that struck me, and and especially the line where you said, "I had to listen to it a couple of times." When the smart people want to get silly, and they know they're the smartest ones in the room, but they know also to go silly because people like silly. I mean, that, that there's the secret. That that's why, right? Yeah, you know, that's that, why that, people I love mean, Bob. That, that, that was his gift. That was the gift of every every great comedian. And then it made me think of Conan O'Brien in his last show where he talked about smoopid, right? Mm-hmm. Smart pe- people being stupid. That- Conan gave me the best advice as a stand. I used to do his show a lot. The first time <laughs> I did it, 
he walks up to me after my set. I did pretty good. He goes, your act is smart. I said, thank you. He goes, I hate smart. It was the first thing he said to me. I had never met him before. I had done a show. He goes, your, 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 your act is smart. I hate smart. And I, and I wanted, and I remember going, okay. Uh, you know, I was invited back, but I never forgot that. Like, don't be so smart. Make, make your joke. And I, I kind of rewrote my act gradually. You know, don't try to, don't try to be the smartest person in the room. The audience is not. And I think people who watch this show know I'm not. We got to wrap it up. I know. I, I know. Well, anyway, I thought that was a brilliant uh, piece of idiocy and respect for Bob Saget. Thank I you. thought, and it reminded me why, you know, I've known you all this, all this time and we've never, we've never seen each other take a dump either. Well, the, the segment, we kind of, we kind of, uh, thank you for uh, <laughs> setting the table for the Reverend. Okay, by the way, can I plug a couple of things before yes, I leave? But we are now 20 minutes behind. Speaking of poo, we're behind. Well, I was praising you, though, Dave. I know, I and that's you. what, but we are 20 minutes behind now. Okay. All right. Let me just say, uh, I'm teaching a class at a place called Stagebridge. Go to stagebridge.org. I'm teaching a course on, uh, you know, I've written all these personal commentaries, um, many memoirs. I'm teaching a story on finding the narrative of your life. You can take the course, stagebridge.org. And uh, you can listen to me, of course, on uh, Twitter, at Emil Amuck, 2 p.m. Pacific Live. Also uh, on YouTube, the Emil uh, Guillermo channel. I say Guillermo. Someone asked, you know, is Dave, David, you are pronouncing my name right. Thank you. Thank you. All you always have. And I respect you for that because all the, the anchors who've ever done intros for stories I've done or introing me, they've always mispronounced my name. You have done it perfectly. Thank Gil, you. Know. Thank you. Thank you, Emil. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn has dedicated his life to separation of church and state. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is a lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court Bar, as well as an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about. And I want to do an hour with you. We're running 20 mi minutes behind schedule. The nurses in America went on strike today. I don't know if you yep. saw that. National Nurses United, a labor union with 175,000 members. Uh, they had a day of action in Washington, D.C. and 11 states in America saying, help us. We are overwhelmed. We are at a crisis point. Uh, this is, this is indeed, COVID is indeed September 11th. It is December 7th. Uh, not January 6th. 
January 6th was the Kennedy assassination. You don't look into who killed Kennedy. You turn that in the political capital necessary to solve our health care crisis. You don't look back and harp on who killed Kennedy. You move forward and give us Medicaid, Medicare, civil rights. Biden is using January 6th for January 6th for nothing, for zero. We have, this is the moment to push for Medicare for all. We got Medicare after Kennedy was assassinated. Johnson didn't spend three years going boo hoo hoo, they killed Kennedy. This is what Biden has to offer. Boo hoo hoo, they stormed the Capitol. America doesn't care. Yeah, you know, it was horrible. So was the Kennedy assassination. Okay, what are you going to do now? Am I wrong for being just absolutely appalled by Biden's complete and utter lack of knowing how to use political capital? Uh, you know, you have to use it. He has to use it with uh, two intransigent jerks who happen to be. How would you approach I understand as we're taping this, uh, Biden is actually meeting at the White House with both Manchin and Cinema to talk about how they can get the filibuster annulled, at least for the purpose of voting rights. I don't believe he's going to be successful because I don't think that Manchin and Cinema are honest brokers. There's nothing more that they want. He's tried everything and he tried it a bit too late. I mean, I think that the very legitimate criticism that by the time he gave what was not a bad speech, I thought the other day, it was a speech that should have been given months ago. Uh, and I think he he deserves the criticism for that. But what do you do? What do you do? What is the David Feldman, President Feldman? What do you do to talk to people who have no interest in their country and who lie about why they're opposing changing the filibuster rules and then have the nerve still to say, of course, I I, I want to pass that legislation. I just want to don't want to do it, as I think Manchin said today, the easy way. I'm not what looking. What do you tell him? Okay, I'm not looking for a fight with you. Don't. I'm not, I don't, I don't want to argue <laughs> with you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You and I are in a plane, and the, the uh, two engines are going out, and there's lightning, hmm. and we're leaking gas, and the pilot says, "Folks, I'm trying. I'm doing my best," and you turn to me and say. What do you do? There, there's, you know, he's got one engine and it's leaking fuel and lightning. And what do you do? What do you do? You know what I would say? I'm not a pilot. He should have thought about this when he when when Biden was running for president. He should have thought about this eventuality because it was a likelihood. He he had a very narrow needle to thread when it sure. came to having the Senate. There was no guarantee that he was going to win the Senate until no. January 5th. 
Right. He should have known what he was up against. Otherwise, he shouldn't have run for president. See, what do you do? I've got mansion. I got cinema. What do you do? I, I don't have any sympathy for somebody who thought he could do the job and can't, especially when 800,000 Americans and counting are dying from COVID and you're not using this as an opportunity for Medicare for all. The guy is the guy is bad. He's, he's a failure. Guy, yeah, the guy, uh, he is a failure. There's no I, I agree with he's a failure, but I don't know that you could he could possibly or anybody could have figured out a way to deal with people who are not honest brokers. Manchin and cinema. I watched her little speech today when she explained why she wasn't going to vote to change the filibuster. It made no sense. She looked like a person making a hostage video <laughs> while she was given the little speech. And I think when you when you come, this was a, a bad, bad day, not only because of, of what she said. And I don't think she'll change her mind because I don't think she has a mind to change. I don't think she is a woman of principles. She starts out with the Green Party. She converts to being a moderate Democrat. And now effectively, she may as well be a Republican. I don't think you can. I don't think he could see that coming. And then today, on top of all this, by a six to three vote in the United States Supreme Court, his entire mandate for vaccination or weekly testing of every person in a company that has more than 100 employees was struck down by the Supreme Court because apparently the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the health part, they just they ignored that. And it's it's the beginnings of what I think, and we can talk about this later, is a long, uh, not a very long term. It could be a very short term effort to prevent the bureaucracy in Washington from doing anything because they will not be granted the right to uh, get generalized instructions from Congress in legislation. And then they're expected and, and it would be completely rational. <laughs> to go and do something about it, to to make decisions. You don't have there the people who are um, happiest tonight about that Supreme Court decision really are looking for a, a decision to be argued soon in a case called uh, West Virginia versus the. Uh, Environmental Protection Agency. And what's at issue there is a program that Biden's not even promoting. Uh, it's, uh, it's something Obama promoted, a, cl a clean air a bill. And uh, they said that uh, they overstepped their bounds in what they wanted to do in terms of environmental protection. As I said, Biden's not even interested in that. Another one of his failings, you could say, but it doesn't matter because it's, it's positioned in a way that they're probably going to reach the merits of this. And I think it's unquestionably true that they will vote to loosen or to strengthen the demands, the power of Congress to make these decisions and be very specific about what is entailed because and of course, that is like 
destroying the whole country. Because if you think and nobody thinks the United States Congress is capable of making decisions about how many particulates of a certain pollutant uh, are safe in the atmosphere, that's what experts are for. That's what people at the agencies at their best do. They know what they're talking about. Rand Paul doesn't know anything. He doesn't know anything about medicine. He doesn't know anything about the environment or hair replacement. One of those people. He's one of those people though, who says we, we don't want to delegate authority to agencies. That's the deep state. That's the Steve Bannon deep state. So this is a really, really miserable day for the country, and it happens to be a miserable day for Biden. But I care more about the country than I do about Joe Biden, who I think he he looks so tired. That That is true. I mean, I, I think the people who try to say, no, no, he's he's bright and shiny and shiny coin. Uh, they haven't looked at him lately. I mean, he really is tired. He is not going to run for president in 2024. And as I, I heard part of your conversation with Emil, we don't have much of a bench. Bernie is too old to run in 2024. Too old to run. Is he older than Biden? So what do we have? Is, is he is he too old to run? Yeah, I think I think Biden's too old to run, too. But I think Bernie's too old to run. And then what do you do? Go to the second so-called progressive Elizabeth Warren, who I I used to like a lot. Now I, I couldn't care less what what she does because she's she's given up most of the principles she had when she started running for president. She starts taking PAC money. She said she'd never take it. Then she said, well, there's some good PACs. But that and there are a couple, but not the ones she's taken money from. I don't see her where where is her commitment to medicare for all where is her commitment to cutting the defense budget i never hear her talk about it when i live up in massachusetts so 10 days or so out of the, the month when she's on television she's never talking about these things she's not talking about big bold initiatives so what do we do have kamala harris what has she done and you know it's and then Pete uh, Buttigieg, uh, the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago had an editorial written by somebody that says Hillary Clinton, that's the salvation. Bring her back. So she had her shot. She did a terrible job. She ran a miserable campaign. Now we're going to go back to her. I, I just think we got to start looking for and developing from the House at into the Senate and then into the presidential race, people who are honest progressives who really do believe that we need cosmic change. We need change in health care. We need change in education. We ch need change in the way we look at defense. And I don't see anybody out there uh, other than a couple of individual members of Congress in the House, several of whom are quitting because they're so disgusted and given up. So, yeah, I'm kind of in a uh, well, let me peel back a Let, let's go. bad place. Yeah. Let me peel yes. back some things that you said, because yeah. I want to talk about the administrative state uh, and faith in democracy. We do not have faith in democracy. Biden is president because we do not have faith in the democratic process. Do you remember the term Jimmy who? 
Jimmy Carter <laughs> came out of nowhere. Sure. It was Jimmy who? And then yeah. Ronald Reagan ran for president. And people said, are you kidding me? He's from out of nowhere. And then Bill Clinton came out of nowhere. And Barack Obama came out of nowhere. The American people, if you let the process, as flawed as it is, if you let it run its course, there's a filtration process that allows us to pick the strongest man. That filtration process did not take place in 2020. It took place in 2016. Whether you want to admit it or not, Trump was the smartest man. They could not defeat him. And they, you know, That's the worst right. president this country ever had. But the process, right. the Republicans and 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 what happened with the Democratic Party in 2020 is Obama and Clyburn and Perez said we cannot allow what happened to the Republicans in 2016 to happen to us. We cannot allow the people to hijack the process. We need to shut this down now. And they propped up Biden, who nobody wanted, and Harris, who nobody wanted. And when you get something that's handed to you without going through the filtration process, you're weak. If you can't, if you need help during the campaign, you're not the commander in chief. You're a failure. He was doomed to failure. They handed him the nomination. So how about a little faith in the democratic process and worrying about the bench? How about have I'm not arguing with you. How about a little <laughs> faith in we will see. We will see who steps up. He will or she will be vetted in Iowa, in New Hampshire after the midterms. It'll start. Who is let the people decide who cares who's on the bench? Somebody, oh, somebody. Wait, wait. Jimmy Carter came out of nowhere. I really wanted him to become president for one reason, because we had done a lot of polling and we found out that if you didn't want to give some kind of an amnesty, a pardon to war resistors, you couldn't get the Democratic nomination. So he does that. Then six months later, he starts up selective service again and increases the defense budget beyond what even some of the most conservative Democrats on the on the uh, Armed Services Committee wanted. So he was and he, he couldn't govern either. Then we get Clinton. Was he all right? Was he good? That's what the people wanted. How about the people who wanted Hillary Clinton? They, they wanted her. Well, what did she do? I mean, she says in her book that if in that second debate that she had with Trump, when Trump was creepily coming up behind her, she said, I thought about turning around and saying something to him. And if she had, she'd we'd be calling her Madam President. Right. She wasn't tough enough. She wasn't feisty I'd rather enough, have her than Biden. And she didn't. I'd rather have her than Biden with all the well, she, corruption. Um. I'd rather have Hillary right now in the White House than Biden. Yeah, I would, too. I would, too. But we don't 
if our votes counted for 500,000 each, we'd be in good shape. Why didn't she run again? Why didn't she run again? I I think she was burned out. I think she literally, I don't know anybody who honestly thought, and I include myself, that she could possibly lose to Donald Trump. I mean, we we had a fundraiser a couple of days before the election, and it was like everybody there was like, let's just joke about Trump. He's clearly an idiot. He doesn't have a chance. And and the pollsters, of course, were pretty wrong also. So they thought, I mean, I remember one person, we had a little breakfast, and uh, she says, uh, do you think it's it's okay that we kind of joking around about Trump? And I, I said, oh, of course it is. That's what you do. But she was. Um, Why didn't Gore? She run? was right. Why didn't Gore run in 2004? I mean, you, you well, talk uh, about cowardice. Well, Why not relitigate the election of 2000? We know he won the popular vote. We know he won Florida. Why didn't he run in 2004? When did his little affair come way after to be known? It was like in way 2006, 2007. Okay. And it was a massage um, that went wrong. It was a massage that went wrong, very wrong. Um, I think never having run for the presidency... I think if you come close, as close as Hillary did, um, and you lose, do you want to humiliate yourself again? Even if you think I can do better this time? Nixon did it. Nixon came back in 68. Reagan kind of ran in uh, 76, almost. Almost, yeah. But he didn't go through that whole cycle of running for the presidency. And if you can't go, and, if you can't go through the cycle, then don't be president. If you can't go, if if the cycle burns you out the first yeah. time, then then don't. You shouldn't have been running the first time. It's it's you know Gore gave up. He gave up in two thousand. Yeah, he did. He could have fought he did give the Supreme up. Court. What did you just say? He could have fought the Supreme Court ruling. How how would he have fought well, the Supreme Court ruling? The same way uh, Trump, chal- you know, you could challenge. It could have been taken to the, the Electoral Co- Count Act. You could, you, he could have fought. I think Barbara Boxer objected to the certification in 2000, uh, 2001. Yeah. He she had a legitimate, did. he had a legitimate claim to the presidency and he, and it should have been taken to the House of Representatives. I have faith, I have faith in the system. And, and, but I just don't have faith that the Democrats are willing to fight and work the system as hard as the Republicans are. You know, if you look at the Eastman memo, mm-hmm. you're a right. lawyer. W- yeah. Was it illegal? Is the Eastman, what he's outlining, where 
the the five seven point plan to throw the the election into the House of Representatives. Is there anything illegal to what he was suggesting? Only if it's even only if it involves illegal conduct aside from the strategy that he was proposing. The strategy that he was proposing is not illegal. That's why it is in the law. But what about uh, lying? signing as as we find three or four you know prominent uh prominent republicans did they signed false affidavits then you got the people in florida who uh were voting twice and, and ballot harvesting the very things that they always accuse the democrats of doing but um I don't think I mean, because Democrats, here's the other thing. Democrats don't think big. I mean, I've said this for years on this show and elsewhere. They don't think big. They have no big ideas. They have stupid names like Build Back Better that people don't even know what it is. To this day, like 20 percent of Americans are the only people. It's the largest number I've seen in any poll to actually know what's in the damn bill. So don't come up with a clever uh, kind of a bumper. I've never seen a bumper sticker even with the phrase "Build Back Better" right. on it. Let me, let me just ask <laughs> so you: you're a member of the, you're, you're a member of the Supreme Court bar. I'm not uh, a sentimentalist about America, and I'm not discounting the threat of the Republican Party. Did the system? To, as I'm reading about this, because I'm reading some new books about what happened on January 6th, I'm starting to believe that the system worked, the Democrats, the Democratic Party didn't. That, that it was really the Republicans who saved us from Trump. Uh, Raffensperger, the, the Secretary of State in Georgia. Yep. All these Trump judges who threw out every single court challenge that Giuliani and and uh, what's your name? Uh, Sidney Powell. Yeah, there wasn't a single judge appointed by Trump who let these challenges progress. It was the Democrats. The system worked. It was the Democrats who didn't work. It was Republicans who stopped Trump. Mike Espy, the, the Secretary of Defense, resigning. It, it, there, well, the only people who were left in the administration were the crazies. Uh, January 6th was, was the last gasp of Roger Stone, a lunatic, Steve Bannon, who had to be pardoned, a, lunar, a lunatic, and... Uh, uh, Mike Lindell, hey, a schizophrenic. <laughs> yeah. So the system worked, which is why they had to storm the Capitol. They had to resort to that violence because the system held. Yeah, um, it was horrible. Let me see. It was horrible, <laughs> but it was the Democrats who didn't well they impeached i mean they did you know 
Well, they did a few things. They did a few things. But, but the problem is, if, if you go into court and you say, uh, I'm challenging the results of this election, I have evidence, which is what Giuliani said, what Lindell still says. He's going to some big event over in about a week to, to rehash all of the stuff that he's been saying. But when he goes into court or when he files a lawsuit and there's literally no evidence, no matter what you are, who appointed you as a judge, you're not going to give it the chance to move forward because there's nothing to move forward with. So I don't think it was it's no act of great courage for these Republican appointed judges to say, we're not going to look at this because it was not a damn thing to look at. So I wouldn't get I don't give the Republicans or the judges that are Republicans any credit at all for doing anything other than looking at the obvious and saying it's a blank piece of paper. It has nothing on it. This case is dismissed. What could they do and maintain any integrity whatsoever? So when when Hitler was taking over, I would have been saying Ernst Rome is a closet case. Uh, he's addicted to methamphetamines. Hermann Goering is addicted to uh, morphine, dresses in women's clothing, is a latent, you know, is unhappy with his sexuality. Goebbels is cheating on his wife and is, is a cripple. These people are jokes. You know, the system will hold. I understand that. You can have a party run by degenerates and they can take over and, you know, Gates, Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene, Steve, ben you know, if you just dismiss them as the, the degenerates they are and don't pay attention, they will take over. I do understand that. Uh, I'm not trying to dismiss the threat from the, sure. the degenerates, the people who are desperately in need of psychiatric care, which the Republican Party is. I mean, if you look at Cawthorn, the guy, this guy needs help. Yeah. These are sick people, yeah. mentally deranged. Gates is sick. People are dangerous and they can't seek power. Um, well, they're also remember all of those sick people, though, have colleagues who will not to this day say anything negative about Donald Trump. I mean, there are the outliers. So the fact that Senator Rounds, well, I, I mean, I barely remember where he was from. Um, he, he says, well, you know, there's Trump lost the election and Trump comes after him. But the, the people who doubt that Trump is right, or I should say are willing to say Trump was wrong, is a fraction of the existing members of Congress. And when you look at who's running in these uh, House seats, um, they're people who are much more like Matt Gates than they are uh, right. Lynn Cheney. I mean, uh, right. Yeah, but we've always had, Cheney. we haven't we all, we've always had the George Wallace's, the Curtis LeMay's. I mean, we had in the Cuban Missile Crisis, the head of the Air Force, Curtis LeMay. Let's yeah. nuke Moscow. The Dulles brothers, Republicans who didn't believe in democracy, who they were. Right. I mean, it's not like this country hasn't been lousy with fascists. We, we've we, they've sure. always been there. Um, 
I don't think the media, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, should not be getting the coverage they get. They they were around in the 30s, in the 50s, in the 70s, in the 80s, but they weren't given the oxygen that they're given now. They were saying the same things. Uh, they weren't sure. making it to the front page of the New York Times the way they are now. Is that they, fair? They, of course, they don't deserve any of this coverage. Why do they give coverage to people who are clearly in? I mean, if you listen to Marjorie Taylor Greene and you listen to Matt Gates and Lindell, you know there's something wrong with them. Because even if you're a conservative Republican, but you know that these people are crackpots. Right. Right. You know that. So we don't need to prove they're crackpots. We've already established that. So there's no reason to do it. But why CNN continue to have Adam Kitzinger and Cheney and former congressman uh, uh, from Pennsylvania, Charlie Dent? Why do they have these people on? They contribute nothing except give the impression that the Republican Party is isn't really that bad. But we know it's that bad. The Cheney or Kitzinger, are they supporters of a women's woman's right to choose? Are they willing to cut dramatically into the defense budget? Answer is no. Right. So they don't belong on any serious network. And CNN, frankly, is as serious as it gets. MSNBC is not serious. Right. And the other ones are all crazy. But the, don't give them the air. Don't give any of these people airtime. If you have an R after your name that stands for Republican instead of rat, you shouldn't even be on CNN. You, you shouldn't elevate them. You ran Americans United for Separation Church and State for nearly a quarter of a century. You were in charge, right? Correct. I mean, I had a board of directors. And you had a mission statement and you knew what you wanted to accomplish. That's correct. And if there were some crazies, because I think about this show, and, and I think about this show, this tiny little show, I, you know, we carved out this little piece on the internet and created this community. And I think about running this little tiny show as a metaphor for a lot of things. And I know what I want to do. I know I want the show to start at five o'clock. I want it to end at 11. And I know that I don't want to. I, I know exactly what I want to do. I'm, I know exactly what I want to do. So we had a guest who said something incredibly racist on Monday's show. And a couple of people wrote to me and called me and said, why didn't you call him out on this? Why didn't you challenge this? And I said, mm -hmm. because uh, it wasn't important enough for me to stop the flow. I knew what I wanted. My, I had, a, I lost a little respect for him, and I didn't want to get distracted over one thing that he said. And yes, I should have called him out, but in the big sweep of time, I got bigger things to concern myself of. It was casual racism that he didn't mean. Uh, but wrong. Uh, when you look at CNN, when you look at MSNBC, when you look at Joe Biden and the Democratic Party, 
and even the Republican Party, they want to they live to get sidetracked by the minutiae because they have no grand vision of where they want to go. Nancy Pelosi, Schumer, Biden, they don't want to go anywhere. They don't want to take this country anywhere. And neither do the Republicans, you know, even uh, a theocratic state and, you know, making Jesus the emperor. When you get down to the people in charge, they want to focus on the little minutiae, take the little side roads and Mm -hmm. distract us. And uh, this is the problem with the leadership we don't have, as you said, the Democratic Party doesn't have a big think. They're not thinking about the big, all they can do is react. Big tech, big money, they're thinking big. They yes, know. They are. And, and all we can do is react to it because we all we're offering up are shop worn solutions to brand new problems created by big tech and big money. They are coming up with unimaginable threats to our lives, our democracy. And we just keep resorting to 100 year old ideas, the Sherman Antitrust Act. Uh, You know, let's overturn Taft-Hartley. We need more unions. You know, idea, ideas that they've already, the other side has already figured out how to circumvent. We're not going, yeah. bi- we need to go as big. If they go big, we go bigger. <laughs> and we're not remember hearing that. When, remember when uh, we had something called the contract with the American, We it first was the contract with America. That was the Newt Gingrich plan. It was all lined out. It was 10 very specific things. He got almost all of them passed. Then Ralph Reed and some of the people in the religious right said, thanks, we we all support that. But what are you going to do for us? We want a contract with the American family. So it took Newt about two weeks to come up with another 10 point plan. And he didn't get a lot of that. And so Ralph and uh, other people on the right, you know, were upset about it, but they had it. They had the big thought. It was what we talked about last week with Project Blitz. They got a plan. They have a, they have an outline of what they want to achieve and they have a step by step way to get there. What's the last, I mean, I, Everything is a repurposed old idea. Medicare for all is it's not it's a repurpose. It's Medicare from 60 years ago. Yeah. It's like now you like Medicare. Well, here's something that your little mind can digest. Medicare for everybody. (laughs) Hey, the climate, the climate's falling apart. Uh, A Green New Deal. Remember the New Deal from uh, 1933? (laughs) Well, we've added green to it now. Yeah, we I'm for Medicare for all. I'm for the Green New Deal. I'm for all this stuff. But these are not new ideas. You know, they're they're, there. We need big ideas because we got big problems. Why? Why do you think, you know, 
everybody knows that if whatever um, piece of the economic ladder you're on, you may want your kids to climb up a couple of rungs, but the truth is there's almost no chance they'll even get up one rung. But if you ask people, you ask conservative Republicans, why don't we abolish student debt? Why don't we pass dental coverage and eye coverage and ear coverage in Medicare? They go, we, we can't afford that. And you go, well, what do you want to do? They think they're going to get, they think they're going to be in the same laudatory position as the multimillionaires, that they could be the next Jeff Bezos. They look at him and he's going to space and they say, my kid could do that. I'm only, you know, I'm only working for $15 an hour if I'm lucky, but my kid is going to do better. And I don't know if they're lying to themselves, but the historical evidence for decade after decade after decade is that that is nonsense. They're not going to do that. It's so what I wish we would do this goes not just to formal education, but I wish the media would actually spend time on very specific issues. Right. Why is it that John Oliver in his, you know, 28 minutes or so of his half hour show, he can make interesting and use jokes and visuals that are funny. He can talk about water districts a political entity called water districts and people go i don't even know what this is by the end of the show it's like this is an outrage we should do something about it why can he do that (laughs) but politicians can't do that because hbo does not run advertising that's true but they're still (laughs) corporate run and they're and he is you know uh, Bill Maher's on HBO. He's not challenging the, the corporatists. You, you know, one 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 can 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 sneak by. Uh, yeah, I mean MSNBC is just a collection. Well, it's uh, why even bring them up? They're they're not worthy of. Uh, there are about yeah yeah. What what are what do you think are the big solutions, Reverend? What are the big, the big answers? Well, I mean, the prob- we know I what the problems are. What are the big answers? Well, we ought to use public schools for different reasons and purposes. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, we had a, one brief chance to do that. Daycare, pre-kindergarten should be in public schools, not we, we shouldn't be looking for for-profit companies to take care of four-year-olds. We shouldn't be letting churches indoctrinate four-year-olds um, and, and teach them something. It should, this is a public good. It's a public necessity. Are we going to have people in the next generation who are less comfortable thinking about anything than their parents are today? Uh that's one thing we've got. You have to cut the defense budget because if you don't, there's no money to do these things. Right. The perception will be you can't do that. We're afraid of it. Jimmy Carter was afraid of it. Jimmy Carter actually said on many occasions 
that the reason he had opposed, he wanted to pardon the resistors to the Vietnam War, but he wanted to start up selective service again, was because it would send a strong signal to the Soviet Union, who was at the time, of course, in Afghanistan. Does it, what is the logic of thinking you have to force people to do something in order to prove that those same people love their country. You would think that if there was a voluntary uh, sign up, as there was even after 9-11, that that would be a symptom that there are people in this country who really want to fight, literally want to fight, are willing to do so. If you draft them or you sign them up for draft this doesn't prove anything about the nature of the american people it it only proves that if there are a bunch of old guys running the congress they don't care what happens to 18 and 19 year olds right they really don't they're they're a nuisance young people are a nuisance in this country they're not our greatest uh, resource. My my friend I mentioned, Bruce Phillips, the folk singer, socialist from Utah, used to say, um, whenever the government says of young people, they are our most valuable resource. Smell the air. Look at what we're doing to natural resources and then tell me, is it a good thing or a bad thing (laughs) that they're considered resources to? We should be drilling babies. That's a great job. Children are the greatest natural resource and we should be drilling them for oil. Drilling them. We should be mining them. There's like $80 worth of uh, essential minerals in every child. So religion is used by the richest 1% to stop us from getting what we want. Can't have Medicare for all because they say, oh, okay, so I'm supposed to pay for your gender reassignment surgery. I'm going to pay for your contraception. I'm going to pay for your abortion. Can't have uh, daycare, nonprofit daycare, the schools, the public schools, because the religious schools, as you point out, want their cut. No, federal money should not be going to churches. Or, day, or, or church-run daycare centers, federal money should pay federal employees to raise our kids. Yes, I, if, if given a choice between my kids being raised by the state versus uh, the pedophiles who run our religious institutions, I'll take the state. <laughs> yep. Why do you think that something as ridiculous as... Uh, Glenn Youngkin, who is about to become the new governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, why do you think that he got so much mileage out of critical race theory? Why did the state of Florida pass a law prohibiting the teaching of that arena, even though I think if you asked DeSantis what critical race theory was, he'd have no idea what it was, but it sounded dangerous. And that's so he's now he's the governor. Now he's going to be a terrible governor in the Commonwealth of Virginia. There's no question about it. He has no instinctive sense of caring about anybody. But he found a little thing, a little topic that managed against, you know, a a corporate Democrat 
But um, I don't know, Reverend. He's I don't do a disaster. I don't understand, Reverend. Fewer and fewer people belong uh, to uh, organized religion. Yeah. More and more Americans have soured on organized religion. Why can't more and more politicians, especially coastal elitists, mm. start saying in Congress, I don't care what your religion is. Keep it to yourself. I don't respect you for bringing up your religion. I'm not interested. To, to, to silence these people when they invoke their religious beliefs. And that, you know, if you start bringing up uh, Christ, Israel, uh, you know, I'm a Jew and I only care. Yep. We're not yep. interested in your re who what your religion is that doesn't shut up like uh you've dedicated your life to exactly the right thing because all religion is all organized religion is it's it's a trick to manipulate people into blind faith into supply side economics weapons of mass destruction. It trains us to have a blind faith and it corrupts the public square. It, it corrupts discourse. It takes you away from fact-based evidence. But nobody has, you have the courage, but well, we all have to be respectful of religious people. Why? Well, because well, for the same reason that it's not important what their religion is or what their beliefs are what it's also uh, it's not i don't care you can believe almost anything right about anything you can believe in scientology you can but don't let it become the basis for policy but you can have a you know i i think stop me if i down this line before, but um, I finished all three seasons of that Leah Remini thing about Scientology, yeah. which won a couple of Emmys. Right. And um, I, I, I've all, you know, Scientologists, Unification Church, all these newer religions, uh, they always, always are talking to me. Uh, or, do you want to go to the Canary Islands for a legal seminar? Do you want to come to our party? Blah, blah, blah. And I never did it because I never really thought these folks were honest brokers. They just wanted me for some other reason. So I don't get, I don't get caught up in that. But the criticisms that she makes of Scientology um, literally could be made about any religion at all. I mean, she she ridicules the fact that L. Ron Hubbard thinks he's coming back. He was the founder of Scientology. He think he's he's coming back, reincarnated as another person. Well, Hindus believe that too. When she talks about the property ownership of Scientology and then compares it, it compared it to the Roman Catholic Church's possessions in terms of property in this country, and she's criticizes they buy buildings, but there are not many people in them. Go to the average Methodist church in the in uh, I don't know Maryland <laughs> on an average Sunday. They ain't going to be filling the pews unless it's Christmas or Easter. So the 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 criticisms that she makes of this one cult as she keeps calling it and the people who leave it 
She interviews them. It's three seasons worth of interviewing people who have left. Do you measure the usefulness of a religion based on the people who have left it? So many people have left organized Christianity, Judaism, Islam. They've left. But does that prove anything or everything about whether that organization should be allowed to continue? Should it get a tax exemption? Should These, these are issues that transcend one Scientology, one organization, one religion, true, false, or otherwise. So the, I, I think it, it, the best thing to do is just to keep religion out of it completely. You don't say, I don't want to hear about your religion. You can listen to somebody talking about why they're a Catholic or why they used to be a Unitarian and now they're something else. But uh, it, you, you've got to separate what they think about matters that are unprovable and what you could do to change policy in the United States. And, and there are people who did that. Uh, Senator Bill Bradley, was he had some problematic ideas in my mind, but nevertheless, he was always asked, what, what do you think about religion? He said, I never talk about religion when I'm in the middle of a political campaign. It's just not right. And Lowell Weicker, who was probably the senator I respected the most when I was lobbying, uh, he, he just he didn't care about what your religion was. He just wanted to make absolutely sure that it wasn't dictating policy in the United States. And We're that, at a you know, point it cost now. him his Senate seat because Joe Lieberman ran and said, well, look, this, this guy doesn't want to organize prayer in the schools. I guess he's anti-God. That's how he got elected. We're at a point now where it's more of a crime for a politician to be accused of being political than religious. Oh, you're at, that's you. You've brought politics into politics. That's <laughs> right. worse than bringing of religion it into it. It's unbelievable. Yeah, of course it is. It's horrible. Uh, very quickly, <laughs> did, did we get to everything you wanted to talk about? Because we're running uh, way behind today. Because somebody, uh, I could... want to talk about Mitch McConnell said one. He said two things correct in his entire life. One was he um, he opposed in a constitutional amendment against burning the American flag. And he had a kind of a sinister reason. I mean, he said, in, in fact, in 19, no, 2006, they actually had a vote in the Senate on the constitutional amendment to ban uh, flag burning. It was defeated by one vote. He voted against it he caused it to be defeated and then just a few days ago he said the following a post-nuclear senate would not be more efficient or more productive i personally guarantee it do my colleagues understand how many times per day this body needs and gets unanimous consent for basic housekeeping do they understand how many things could require roll call votes how often the minority could demand lengthy debate that is correct but if he's talking about who doesn't understand it that would be the democratic party because as i and a lot of other people said when amy coney barrett um, who was, of course, uh, on the wrong side of both of the cases involving vaccines today, 
um, if she hadn't gotten to the bench, there were so many things that could have been done, including demanding a reading of the congressional record every morning that will take it two hours to read, to delay, delay, delay. That's what McConnell says he would do so if they broke the, the filibuster. You change the rules. Well, you, you think for a second that he wouldn't be against the filibuster if he becomes the right majority leader next January? Of course, he's going to do that. The first thing he's going to do is get rid of the filibuster. So he's a liar. He's inconsistent. He's a hypocrite. And uh, everybody, even Jesus, was against hypocrites. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you, people will say and do anything to justify getting a homeless person to stop sleeping in their lobby. That's one of the things I've learned that yep. uh, think about this. Uh, there is a homeless person who is sleeping in your lobby and everyone in your apartment is a leftist until there's a homeless person sleeping in their lobby. That's how I see the Republicans and the Democrats. You will say and do anything to justify removing a homeless person from sleeping in your lobby. You will call yourself an Orthodox Jew, a good Christian, a leftist, a Democrat. You'll be all for the homeless. You will come up with a million reasons for why it's OK to have a meeting on how to get this homeless man to stop sleeping in your lobby. That's how I see uh, the hypocrisy in Washington, yep. D.C. I mean that. That's that's one well, of the. One see, of, no, uh, I use it. Absolutely. I agree with you 100 um, percent. And, and, and always an excuse for doing something. And all, then if you suggested, by the way, if you had the big meeting and somebody said, well, I don't know if we should throw the homeless man out uh, but what, what about if we uh, suggested the city council develop more places where homeless people can spend a week a month a year let's see if we can get them to spend the money then most of those people are also going to say wait a minute I, you know i've got bills to pay uh, I, we don't want to you know, a big I government noticed program that, the you homeless. know next to the laundry room there's this empty space that people use to store like luggage. What if we just carved out a little space for this guy and let him sleep there? Well, 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 are we supposed <laughs> to do that for everybody? Where does it end? Mm -hmm. Well, there's only one homeless guy in our lobby. Why don't we take care of him? Well, then yeah. it's like mice. You, you feed one and then the but I support Bernie. That's people will <laughs> say and do anything to protect their moral high ground and their stuff. Thank you, Reverend. <laughs> Thank you. I, I apologize for raising my voice, but when you curse the uh, way you do, I feel no, I just get worked. I know it's just <laughs> it's, a, it's just the stuff I'm thinking. I know I get that's, worked up. That's I my, my favorite, you know, my favorite a cartoon was in I, I you knew paul krasner probably the editor of the realist, realist magazine yeah. so paul i used to 
talk with him quite a bit. And he had a, a cartoon in one of his uh, early episodes or, or early editions of the magazine. Um, there's a guy discussing some political issue on television, and there are a bunch of people watching him in various seats around the television. On the television, the commentator says uh, something. I think that's a good idea. And the guest goes, frankly, I don't give a damn about that idea. Then what are the people that are watching in the cartoon panel? All of them fill it up with a much, much more upsetting four-letter word. What the shit? Yeah, I love this. <laughs> the reverend we have. Go to barrywlin.com right now, and you'll find a, a treasure trove of the man's sermons, writings, and appearances on some of the most respected television, radio shows, podcasts. And I always look forward to uh, having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I wish your wife was here instead, but... Uh, yeah, well, we've been through that. But. I know. <laughs> Thank you. Please Thank invite you. her back. We could use a conversation about COVID when she has time. Well, we, I, we will be um, visiting the West Coast for a bit, and uh, we may, it may be able to, uh, she may be able to drop in next Thursday. I would appreciate Let's, that. Okay. Thank you, Reverend. Stay Thank out of, you. Stay out of trouble, Reverend. O only good trouble. Sorry. Thank you, sir. Uh, let's now go to Aurora, Illinois, where Professor Marianne Cummings is standing by. She is a physics professor. She is also an elected, I think our only elected member of government here. Uh she is. I still a, find that astounding. Well, most people, people should run. I'm people sorry. Should run for something. People need but to run. People should run. If you, if you want to still be in the Democratic Party, run for precinct committee person. It's usually they're usually happy to have you run, and you may run unopposed, and then you actually get a vote, and you're like a, a local Democratic Party. You know, if you think it's worthwhile working with the Democratic Party, and it sometimes is. And it's a great way to meet people, right? Oh, absolutely. Like-minded people. And, and by the way, you know, uh, your precincts are within walking distance of your house by definition. And um, you actually can influence. I got people to vote for Bernie Sanders the first time around. He did extremely well in my precinct. Because most people, you know, it's like, oh, somebody's talking to me. Well, I guess I'll uh, listen to them. So, well, uh, let us do this. Let's go around mm -hmm. the horn and let's first go to Professor Ann Lee. And let's talk about a parent. Oh, we just there you are. Who did we lose? Oh, we lost the Reverend Barry. Uh, I guess I'm guilty of election fraud. Is that correct? Um, that's right. What did I do? Um, Mike, Mike Lindell claims that uh, there are 300 million fraudulent votes that were cast in the last election. And yeah. Phil Bump at uh, the Washington Post uh, uh, calculated that 
uh, nine-year-old children would be part of that that total, and 50 million Trumpists would be arrested as well. I mean, it was just you know Lindell's nuts, but it it uh, he uh, Bump decided to go. Well, we'll just well, let's just take his assumption, and then we'll run run it through real numbers, and it it's just absurd. And unfortunately, he is getting a little, a little attention for that, that fraudulent report. But it was just interesting that uh, Bump, who does a lot of their statistical stuff, uh, showed that how absurd the, the proposition was, just, I mean, on its face. And uh, I, I've kept a copy of the, the chart because every time Lindell opens his mouth, I'm going to throw that chart up there. Uh Stevens Keep from NPR had Donald Trump on. How'd that turn out? (laughs) It was pretty funny. You know, Trump, it was scheduled for 15 minutes. Trump didn't last nine minutes. And in Skeep, if you read the, um, the transcript, uh, NPR did a you know a verbatim transcript and Inskeep was really well prepared. He had he had literally every stupid thing that uh, and there are plenty uh, that Trump had said and he just he just pummeled him uh, every. It's really worth looking line by line because and and if you actually listen to the interview itself, Trump you know just was I incredibly stupid. And uh, Trump just hung up before uh, before uh, uh, Inskeep could really uh, 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 hone in on um, on more uh, fraud stuff. So what does and that say? What does that say about the future? the The Republican National Committee said it's forcing presidential candidates. Maybe if you want the Republican nomination, you cannot participate in any debate sponsored by the Commission on Presidential Debates. Now, the Commission on Presidential Debates is a disgrace. So so how am I supposed to feel about this? Because the the Commission on Presidential Debates should be disbanded. But why are the Republicans? what, what, What is it that the Republicans object to? Well, I, they just threw that up as more noise. I think uh, particularly, you know, it's another one of those things that's inconsequential and probably because uh, Trump did so poorly or just for whatever bizarre reason, he, he uh, you know, consented to an interview with NPR. I think that what we're seeing is these little weird, you know, sort of counter dis- disinformation programs uh, just like the proposition of replacing uh, Kamala Harris with uh, uh, Liz Cheney. I mean, that's right. just idiotic. But uh, obviously, you know, they're seizing on these things so that we don't pay attention to the real issue, which today was um, uh, arresting, uh, you know, uh, 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 Stuart Rhodes, of the the, the uh, you know the oath keepers or as I like to refer to them the oath squeezers, <laughs> um, they uh, you know it's just these it, it that's the big bombshell because it, it moves it moves the prosecution towards um, 
sedition. Yeah. We can actually start talking about sedition now. It's right. not just the, the January 6th as insurrection, as an, an autonomous or atomistic event, but rather the conspiracy, all the damn planning, which is obviously there, and the select committee is ready to jump on it. And this just front ends exactly where we're going to head to to fill in all the all the spaces. Okay, let, let, let me stay here, and then I'll call, call on Professor Bick. Let me open this up a little because it, to, in my mind, this indictment and this is the first time Merrick Garland has accused anybody from January 6th of sedition. And we've said over and over on this show, it wasn't an insurrection. It wasn't treason. If it were, somebody would have been charged with that. It was a riot that got out of hand. But now we have a Justice Department saying, hold on, this wasn't a riot. This was sedition. And and what what and, and here's what happens. People need to remember is you can change people's mind through action. In other words, last week I was dismissive of the idea that this was sedition. But when the Justice Department suddenly indicts somebody and says this is sedition, you know, I always talk about the tuning fork. I start vibrating with authority and I say, oh, maybe this is sedition. Like, And, I, and I'm going, OK, uh, I'm not so smart here. Merrick Garland knows something. This is sedition. I, I'm not going to argue with that. Let's play this out in the court of law. This is a, a major game changer. People respond to action when they see a president do something they get on board and they say, OK, I was wrong. It wasn't a riot. It was I'm willing to change my mind and say, if you say it's sedition, you know better than I do. Let's find out. Let's try this case. How important. Let me open this up to uh, Professor Adnan Hussein and Professor Bick and Professor Marianne Cummings. I think this is important that they're 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 calling it sedition. Officially, don't you? I think it is, David, and I think it's the right thing to do. And I, as I argued last week on the program, uh, I said this was an attempted coup because it was attempting to overthrow the will of the people, uh, which was to have Biden as president. It was clear in the popular vote and the electoral vote. There was no doubt. There was no great scam. There was no um, the 300 million fraudulent votes. That's very interesting. Um, you know, it, none of that stuff happened. It was fantasy. And, they, and Republicans were willing to lie and say anything to justify trying to change the outcome of the election. It, it, it was an attempted coup. This thing was planned ahead of time. Just because everyone who was involved wasn't in on the plan doesn't mean it wasn't an attempted coup. I, I don't know why we're trying to underplay this. I, I don't see what the, what the benefit of that is. Um, uh, on the other hand, we have to remember that what we should be aiming for is democracy. And people do not understand that many of our institutions 
are not only falling short of that mark, but they're actively anti-democratic, such as the U.S. Senate, such as the rules of the U.S. Senate, such as uh, the Electoral College, such as gerrymandering. All of these things need to be changed. This is what we need to fight for. In addition to a lot of other things, which you've mentioned this evening, you know, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, that type of thing. But um, if you don't have the basics right, if you don't have institutions that reflect the will of the people, then you do not have a functioning democracy. And there's been a lot of research on this, and it's been shown time and time again the, U- the United States, the political system of the United States does not reflect the will of the majority. In fact, since its founding, it, ha- it was constructed in order to reflect the will of an elite. That elite being white men with property. And we've pushed back against that for centuries and people have won important victories. But every time we do that, the elite doesn't just go, oh, well, they got, you know, um, senators elected popularly now. We can just sit back and relax. That's fine with us. No, they find another way to create to corrupt the will of the people. Okay, let me, let, you know, right. through campaign let, finance, etc. Let, let me, let me lobbying. Yeah, let me ask Professor Adnan Hussein and, and Professor Marianne Cummings about the Justice Department charging uh, this oath keeper with sedition. This is a fifty-six-year-old. Uh, he was in the army. He's uh, he went to Yale Law School. Uh, uh, Rhodes, uh, Stuart Rhodes, uh, and he is one of the leaders of the Oath Keepers, and they are saying that he was planning some kind of overthrow of a violent overthrow of the Capitol, even though he was not inside the Capitol. How do you rate this in terms of Merrick Garland going to the top. This is it's going to be hard to prove that the Oath Keepers were had a direct line to Kevin McCarthy and uh, Donald Trump and who? I mean, could this could this just be an Oath Keeper who was not at the Willard Hotel meeting with Bannon and Giuliani? What if it's just a crazy oath keeper and it's in the end, it's just more low hanging fruit and not going after Trump? Well, I mean, I don't disagree with anything Professor John um, said. I mean, he's absolutely correct. I think it's just a matter of where do does one put one's emphasis? I mean, should one be really exercised by this and, you know, bring the, you know, Hamilton singers and do a lot of symbolic stuff around it? Or, you know, should we be pushing the agenda that um, he mentioned all of those reforms? How strongly is this democratic uh, elite um, uh you know, all of the elected officials um, who have been belaboring 
how terrible January 6th is, how committed are they to that agenda of democratizing our system of government? They don't seem to be. I mean, we're being stalled here on, you know, voting rights and, you know, um, the gerrymandering and gerrymandering and all of the, you know, kinds of problems. Uh, you know, none of those really seem to be on the top agenda. So putting a lot of emphasis, a lot of media discussion on memorializing January 6th, one has to ask, what is it accomplishing? You know, what is that political capital? If you're they're going to make a big deal out of it, you know, what's the purpose of it? And if it's distracting from other kinds of fights and reforms that are materially more important or uh, in terms of political process more important, I just don't have the time to really get too embroiled and involved right. in the media hullabaloo around it. So this Oath Keeper, prosecute him. If you fi have evidence, prosecute him. See if he'll flip and turn on who else, you know, he, you know, has been involved in. See if you can expand the network right. to find out who really is um, invested in attempting to subvert democracy. All I think is interesting about this group is that, I mean, they're they're, you know, an anti-government militia, you know, who uh, believes that the Constitution isn't the highest uh, law, you know, um, that they should. Uh, or rather, they, they believe that you don't have to um, constitutionally, they interpret the Constitution and think that uh, in such a way, in a very narrow way, that anything that government does that violates what they think the Constitution says is no longer um, actually sovereign law. And actually, I have uh, uh, relatives who are in the military and, um, you know, it's very interesting. It seems like a whole lot of upper level, maybe not the generals, but, you know, upper level officer corps and class, you know, are part of groups like this. And there's a lot of pressure actually to join these groups. And that seems to me to be a potential danger. If you've got a problem, if they're doing illegal activities, prosecute them. But I don't think making, um, you know, a big symbolic show of how horrible it was for the norms of our of our democracy, which has been lost through generation and generation, if it ever really reflected the will of the people, because as Prof. John said, it was originally landholders who wanted to maintain their property rights. There were slaveholders who wanted to maintain, you know, the political system that incorporated from its foundation that kind of inequality based on racial hierarchy and enslavement of others, dispossession of indigenous peoples, and so on, it, you know, there might have been a brief period in the post-war period where some more people after the Voting Rights Act, after civil rights, where we had the possibility of a more democratic system. But that's a very brief part of our history and it was rolled back very quickly and has been ongoing for decades. So where is this democracy? I think that I think we need that radical agenda that Prof. John mentioned, but I'm not going to waste a lot of time right. worrying so much about January 6th unless we're going to go right after uh, all of these people. And it just seems to me, why do we have this gerontocracy? You know, we've got Nancy Pelosi, Biden. You know, these people are from the 60s. They should know what the struggles, what these struggles meant. Instead, it seems they've abdicated everything from the agenda of the 1960s of trying to bring in more democracy into the system. And we're stuck with them until we get rid of that group of, you know, that group that's controlling our government. 
Even Fauci is 81. Why is everybody who's in a position of authority, you know, uh, you know, we've got a generational problem here and it's time. It's far past time to overthrow those people, reform our, our government and actually reflect the will of the people. And, and I don't think one, that January and the 6th. One is really 80 year old that isn't in a big position of power is Bernie Sanders, who would be the one who would reflect the values of those uh, heady democratic times in the 60s. Very true. Very true. Professor Marianne, you crap on Nancy Pelosi. I want you to know, I just checked my favorite website, capitaltrades.com, app.capitaltrades.com. And you say that Pelosi isn't standing up to big tech. Did you know that she just sold one million dollars worth of Apple stock last week? Well, the speaker of the house. (laughs) <laughs> sold one million dollars of her Apple stock. Now that is making a statement against big tech. Thank you, Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I sort of am in disagreement with some of the people here. I mean, there was a serious. I mean, it was serious. There was a serious breach of of uh, security that has never we never got to the bottom of that. You know, by all by the structure of the Capitol Police. It all points to Mitch McConnell because all parties agree that Nancy Pelosi was not consulted. But, you know, the storing, the storming of the Bastille, it wasn't not even close. And, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about Dick Cheney. I mean, apparently Liz and Dick Cheney were the only Republicans in the House for that silly ceremony they did. You know, it's. Uh, commemorating the 6th of January. Now, um, all these things that that Democrats fantasize Trump and a lot of his ilk to be, Dick Cheney actually is. You know, that was significant that he appears on the floor with all of those Democrats fawning all over him. I mean, hell, it's like Dick Cheney did more like in the first week of his presidency through his puppet, George W. Bush, than like Donald Trump did in four years to destroy democracy. I mean, we shredded the Constitution with the Patriot Act. I mean, there was this, um, what do you call it, this this, uh, rendition where we basically normalized everything like the Geneva Convention and Human Rights Acts and anything we regard as just basic, decent civilization. That was shredded with the Bush-Cheney doctrine of uh, extraordinary rendition, um, enhanced interrogation. And they have little, you know, minions like the Sky Wu, who's now over a professor at Berkeley Law School. You know, they have them just doing all the legal scaffolding for that. So, you know, uh, I am far more disturbed by the fact that now the Democratic Party wants to normalize the Cheneys than I am about these yokels who stormed the Capitol. You know, it's just, it's crazy. You know, we should get to the bottom of why security was the way it was. And maybe you should prosecute people for, you know, making threatening comments. But that'll do us about as much good as when they were prosecuting these, you know, mostly mentally ill, young, isolated uh, Islamic young men a few years ago with this anti-terrorist nonsense. You know, over two thirds of the 
of the counterterrorism task force, over two thirds of the people that they prosecuted were literally mentally ill persons. Now, this is what they do. They're not going to go after real power, which is why, you know, if this is all that the Democrats have, and I think this may be all that the Democrats have, because a day after Biden's speech, I think he says this morning that, well, he doesn't think that he can do anything. You know, he doesn't think anything's going to get passed. But I'm going, oh, wow, that's a way to rally the troops. You know, Mr. President, he's, I, he's not I, because I, it. Can I disagree? Yeah. Hang on. Yes. Hang on for one second. With what? Well, first of all, with who was involved in this um, riot coup, whatever you want to call it, uh, the average age of the person involved was 40. These were not kids. Uh, a lot of them were were small business owners. They were not poor. They were not rural yokel. Yeah. They were mostly from the suburbs. Um, you know, I'm, it, I'm not worried about get those people, room. John. They're not a threat to me. I mean, they're not. Yeah. If they did something criminal, let's prosecute them. And they're being prosecuted by the hundreds. I, and, On I the other hand, that, and I agree with what Professor Hussein said uh, that, uh, you know, we, I'm not really into the spectacle here of, uh, you know, a candlelight vigil. You know, that does almost as much good as um, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Kinte cloth. But <laughs> it is important to hold these people responsible for trying to use violence to overthrow an election to to change the results of an election. Yeah, I'm saying, look, you know, let's let's let me push back on that point. You are right. We are not a democracy. We were not set up as a democracy, as we discovered when a real coup happened successfully in 2000, that there were many layers, in fact, between our election and and whoever, whoever got installed as the president. Most of the time, that wasn't an issue. And yeah, if uh, I guess if, if 300,000 of us that protest on Inauguration Day had instead surrounded the Capitol and made everybody piss their pants and switched a few electoral votes from George W. Bush to Al Gore, I think most people sitting here would have thought democracy was saved. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, these people were misguided. They were and and they were allowed to do something that Black Lives Matter could never do. If you saw the Black Lives Matter protests from two months before, I mean, there were shoulder to shoulder rows of riot outfitted Capitol Police. There are over 2000 Capitol Police. These guys and their only job is to protect the Capitol. It's not like they're protecting a whole city. (laughs) So it's like who had them all standing down that day? And, you know, it was the police who let these guys in. I mean, before the woman was shot, and that's when the crowd turned nasty, before the woman was shot, look at the way the police were behaving toward these guys. They like, you know, it's, they did not seem at all upset, a lot of them, that they even walked through the rotunda. But, you know, it's, it's, I don't mean to say that wasn't serious. That was a very, very serious breach of security. But who's responsible for security? That would be the Capitol Police and their board who answered directly to Nancy Pelosi. No, 
and Mitch McConnell at the no, time. No, no, no. Mitch no, McConnell no. actually had one of the, the architects. It's the it's that's the, ar- the so they answer to anyway. the architect's office. That that has been. I've checked the Washington Post fact check that that Nancy Pelosi yeah. is not in charge of security for the Capitol, that that's out of their hands. No, the board is. But the board answers to the Congress is a, you know, separations of powers thing. And it's the yeah, the, the architect of the Capitol, the sergeant of arms, the architect of the Capitol, the sergeant of arms of both the Senate and the House and the chief is a non voting member of the board. But ultimately, they can be hired or fired and they have to get approved by the Congress by two separate um, by two separate committees in both the House and Senate. But ultimately, who is in the loop that day? You know, but but I'm saying it wasn't that it wasn't serious. It was. But now if you're talking about there was a t- possible takeover of the United States, that wasn't going to happen that day. But um, a lot of our institutions were heavily damaged by the likes of Dick Cheney and George W. Bush. And it was just basically the core of Cheney's politics was these structures, legal structures to protect murder and open-ended detention of anybody that the president wanted to detain without legal challenge whatsoever. And they were invisible. I mean, these these structures are invisible. If you are on a no-fly list, you would never know you were on on a no-fly list until you had to fly someplace and then you couldn't address why you were on this list. This isn't a democracy, a massive surveillance state like we have, which Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer allowed to expand under Trump, the so-called existential threat to our country. If this is a massive surveillance state, this isn't a country of free people. This isn't a democracy. That's more the relationship of a master to servants or slaves. And we just have, you know, we're just normalizing this. The fact that Dick Cheney is now considered, you know, somebody who shouldn't be thrown immediately into the Hague, in front of the Hague. That's true. And into some prison. That's true. So it's like, it's not a matter of not prosecuting these other crimes. It's like, you know, when, when the... The Justice Department spent a year putting John Edwards on trial for campaign finance violation. And those of us who regularly read the National Enquirer knew exactly what happened. We didn't need a a year-long trial. He had an affair, and he covered it up with money from an old family friend. So get out. I mean, okay, that's important. He did violate maybe laws, but was that really our major concern? John Edwards is, you know, covering up his affair, you know. So, but these are kind of things that they think get people excited. And of course, it's kind of exciting to think about an insurrection and these people we don't like, so let's persecute them. But the reality is um, how many people, you know, if we're not getting a hold of our, if, if we're not getting a hold of the deep problems of our economy and our healthcare system, which I think was both was, was both you know undermined and revealed by COVID. I mean, yes, we're, we've got this huge spike coming up. It's probably going to be the last one, but you know, the Britain, which is very similar to us and has a lot of our same problems nonetheless do not have the same level 
of uh, of crisis in their healthcare system as much as it's been undermined by the Tories as we have in ours. You know, so after it's, our, our, it's at the breaking in, point, we our healthcare system is at the breaking point. Yeah. Let me let me take care of some uh, business here. Uh, it pains me to say that Professor Marianne Cummings, Howie Klein, and Jim Earl, and the rest of you told me so about Biden. Uh, so I just want to say that in the lead up to the election, you said this was going to happen. I wanted Bernie, mm-hmm. but I, 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 I'm wrong. I'm will. It takes a. Uh, I have to admit I was wrong. I, I would still vote for Biden over Trump. But you were absolutely right, all of you, about uh, you were actually wrong. I don't think it was going to be this bad. I don't think you thought he was going to be this ineffectual. So I owe all of you a, a mea culpa. And I want to give Professor Marianne Cummings a shout out because shout out, shout out for uh, calling out the bullshit from Professor Barbara Walter, who has this new book out about the end of democracy that everybody is quoting. She begins her book by talking about the kidnap attempt on the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. Is that her name? And mm-hmm. and when that kidnap attempt was made, Professor Marianne Cummings came on within two days and reviewed the BuzzFeed article and some other articles outlining how, well, uh, the FBI kind of dreamed up the idea of kidnapping uh, the the governor of Michigan and they kind of put the people together and it was like a kind of like app scam. And I sent you Mr. Douthat's piece. Did you get it, Professor Marianne Cummings? In the New York no, Times. No, I don't think I did. Oh, I sent which, it. That, uh, that he pretty much. Oh, D- Daffod is a Republican, he, uh, which means okay. uh, he's a columnist for the New York Times, and that would make him a centrist. But he is he's the voice of the right <laughs> in the Republican Party, and he pretty much said what you said a year ago on this show about the kidnapping attempt of the governor of Michigan. You were the first one to poo-poo it, that it was the FBI that dreamed up the, the kidnapping. It's not an example of the end of the 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 militia trying to kidnap the governor of Mi- Michigan isn't the sign of our democracy's decline. The FBI orchestrating the kidnapping is the sign of the FBI's decline. So I just wanted to thank well, you. You are. But that's nothing new for the FBI. I mean, but, you know, but um, we're overwhelmed. The Intercept has covered a lot. It has been covering stories like this for years, for several years, about the FBI counterterrorism program and how, you know, they basically five years ago, they were the ACLU filed a formal complaint that that part of the FBI was actually creating more terrorists than they were, you know, finding. Well, now we have a Justice Department creating a domestic terrorist unit. And my position is there's some bad hombres out there. And anytime you can 
uh, round up some white militiamen. Uh, I have no quarrel with that. Even a, even well, on Trump, even on Trump, what happens charges. is that there are other people that they know and people who would never have serious problems with the government start having enormous resentments when people they know are caught in traps like this. And so it actually creates more resentment and generates more paranoia among the population in general. Most people. Well, if you want prison reform in this country, arrest white people. The the Washington jail has been notorious for being a gulag. And it took the 60 insurrectionists white to be held at the Washington jail for Congress to take notice. So, Professor Mm -hmm. Jonathan Bick, uh, what is on your mind, sir? Well, David, um, I wanted to respond to uh, something you said earlier in the program, which was um, that the left suffers from a lack of vision. And uh, big ideas, big big ideas and big ideas. Uh, I think Ben Burgess started to touch on this and then his time ran out. Um, But he he said that uh, it it wasn't because the ideas of the left are unpopular. Uh, It's because the ideas of the left are demonized and also uh, and, and because the left has no power in this country. And whenever they do manage to get power somewhere else, this country makes sure that that power is minimized or eliminated. And they do it through violence and they do it through murder. Either mass murder, as in Chile under Pinochet, or assassination, like Fred Hampton in his bed by the FBI. So, um, and this has happened around the world. I mean, the United States supported Saddam Hussein partially because he eliminated the Iraqi Communist Party, right? And then once that was done, then if he didn't do exactly what they said, then that was a problem and he became an enemy. Right. Uh, You know, similar in Iran, you know, the the uh, Iranian uh, Communist Party was eliminated. And, and, and throughout the world, we go around the world making sure that the left is eliminated. And the only thing left is fundamentalist religious extremism. And we wonder right. where that comes from. I mean, people have to have some kind of organization in order to oppose empires in the world whether it's the British or the American, whatever. Uh, And they have to have some sort of organization. So you eliminate the left or leftist ideology as as even a something to be considered or that's even out there and and alive. They're going to turn to something else. So uh, I don't think it's a lack of vision. I think a lot of people on the left have important they are visionaries. They they do see alternatives to what we are experiencing now. But any time they get a voice, they're silenced. They're ridiculed. They're shut out. They're 
killed. So that's the problem with the left. It's not really a problem with the left. It's a problem with the right and the center that use extra legal uh, methodologies to destroy them. I, I, I did. Uh, I just I agree with you 100 percent. I also said that beating up on the left is tantamount to freeing African-Americans after the Civil War and then complaining about, uh, you know, why aren't they running their own businesses and why aren't they that that there are shackles on the left? There's there's no question. And, and I did say that. But there there is Bernie, who I think with his people, you know, I people keep saying he's too old. He's too old. Uh, everything Bernie has learned is the the blueprint for the left in America and leadership and and singularity of focus, basically Medicare for all and 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 speaking clearly. And, and I think my my problem uh, as I lurch further and further to the left, as many people do, uh, is where's the path? Where's the leadership? What are you offering? Where are the new ideas? I'm not I'm not complaining. I'm not criticizing, but we're not winning the way we should be. We're just beginning to elect actual leftists uh, for the first time since Taft-Hartley. I mean, we never, you know, we had liberals, we had Democrats, but we never had self-proclaimed leftists getting elected. This is the first time since, you know, uh, you know, yeah, you'd have to go back to Debs, right? You, you're very few. Certainly in the 60s, there there's a handful of open leftists. Uh, so well, I'd like I, to I see some concrete ideas. That's what I would like to see that are that are new and fresh that can take on these big effing ideas coming down the pike from big tech and Wall Street, because uh, I, I see Professor Hussein and Marianne Cummings and Professor Lee uh, souring. Go ahead. Resp any stop me before I speak again. <laughs> Well, uh, unfortunately, we've enabled all this stuff. I mean, I'm talking the royal we. Um, as long as you have us leftists have broadcast that we're willing in the end to just fall in line, support Democrats, they are utterly free to ignore us completely. So, <laughs> Professor you know? Hussein. Well, you know, this is this is going to be a perennial problem, but. You know, we all do what we can. I think that, uh, you know, people can be moved left. Maybe not Biden, but, but David, we've moved you left a little. And, and you know, we, we'll keep working on that. <laughs> I've moved so far to the left. I'm a fascist. <laughs> <laughs> Professor, Professor Hussein, what are your... Uh, uh, 
Well, actually, I, I was just surprised that, um, you know, we're into January, but you're still, uh, you know, raising uncomfortable questions and criticisms of the Democrats. So I'm overjoyed uh, that you haven't just flipped the switch uh, for 2022 in the long run up to what will be a dismal disaster in um, the upcoming congressional elections this November. So I will find because, I will um, find a reason to defend the Democrats. I will. Go ahead. Yeah, that's 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 fine. I mean, they they have their uses. They're very limited. But I do believe that um, Marianne is correct, that, um, you know, they don't really have to take into account our ideas. I think there are plenty of great ideas on the left. Uh, maybe we need to communicate them better. Maybe we need to um, find better ways to advocate for them. Maybe we need to put them together, not as just single issues, but find ways to have an integrated package. And I think that's in some ways what the Green New Deal was attempting to do, but it needs to be rationalized and understood as a coherent program and why. Instead, it's often represented as a kind of laundry list like the Build Back better, which also may have been, um, you know, more successful and, and galvanized um, actual popular uh, organizing if it had been presented in some way, not as a laundry list of a lot of things that everybody was trying to kind of just throw in, but as a kind of new vision of a social, um, you know, social life um, and the way that government can play a, a role. That's the kind of analysis and that's the kind of of, uh, coherence we have to be able to express but fundamentally there you know the interests are against that i mean the elite the tech world they have their own vision of society and it needs to be counterposed it's a vision that serves the elite but they're extremely good at soliciting our participation and complicity in it we're all on these media platforms we're all contributing to big data even though we don't you know consciously think of it and we're not doing the kinds of things that would be necessary to really resist it or impose democratic control over these processes. And that's why I think, um, you know, there has to be I think there has to be a movement around, um, you know, breaking up these companies. These are utilities. They're public utilities. They need to be, you know, uh, part of a, a social uh, uh, program um, and under uh, clear regulation and serve social utility. Um, because I think uh, the mainstream media, we're not able to get our message out. We're not able to communicate widely enough. And I think still the center is controlling the, the discourse um, and we have to find better ways to to combat that. And I think it is going to have to mean perhaps trying to take um, take down big tech or or public, you know, make public big tech and and think of it as the utilities for, um, you know, a modern modern life in the 21st century is that these have to be converted to social purposes. It's a big fight. Um, yeah. So and, I don't yeah. I don't know, you know what chance we have around this, but I don't think we can expect a whole lot from the Democratic Party. What we were just talking about is somebody like Thomas Friedman floating these ridiculous ideas of essentially migrating the neocons from where they were as this radical war, you know, you know, profiteering, warmongering uh, group that embroiled us in. These people should be utterly discredited. And yet here they are being rehabilitated 
and brought into alliance with the corporate democratic structures. They are the ones who are taking over the party, not the left, not the progressives, not the squad. And this has to be changed. And we're not getting anywhere by playing their game at this point. I agree. So I don't know what what the recipe will be, but um, I agree with Marianne that what we've been doing up to this point clearly has not been working. I want to find out what you want to talk about, and I want to find out what Professor Marianne Cummings wants to talk about. I think we have to come up with positions that are impossible to be against, impossible to be against. And for example, Jacobin has a piece about water bills entitled, It's Time to Eliminate Water Bills. Shockingly, two million Americans in the United States uh, don't have running water or uh, sanitation in their homes. 15 million people uh, in America get their water turned off. The Democrats should run on free water. Water should be free. And, And force as, you know, force a vote on that. Should, let me hear you tell me why water in America should not be free. You start with was it Laszlo's hierarchy of needs and you just get people to take impossibly absurd positions defending the notion that no if if your parents can't afford water you don't drink you don't have water let me hear get them to say that start with then again Obama drank the water. What is on your mind today, Professor Adnan Hussein? Then we'll go to Professor Marianne Cummings. Okay, well, just very quickly, since, you know, we can't get into all these things, and I do know we've got uh, other esteemed guests on the way, just I'm a little concerned about, you know, what's happening with this uh, Ukraine. And when I think of the neocons and the fact that, and so it's connected with that, that point, which is that the security establishment, the military affairs community, the foreign affairs uh, establishment forces, they are really adamant, it seems, in trying to foment um, a very, I think, dangerous uh, situation in the Ukraine with Russia. And likewise, the other wing we've been talking about is China. And we see that the security uh, MI5 has now designated Um, China is a top priority and has actually submitted um, a kind of warning, a security warning about a Chinese uh, British lawyer who has made a lot of contributions to uh, elected officials, parliamentarians across the different parties. And they're now issuing a warning against her and basically trying to hype up some kind of sense that if you're associated with um, China and you work on behalf of better relations between, say, the UK and China um, and try and exert some influence democratically. I mean, that's their system as well. I mean, you can make these donations. I mean, either we should clean up and get money entirely out of politics or you have to accept that there are going to be interest groups, you know, diasporic populations that have an interest in, you know, promoting good relations between their country of origin and their country currently of residence where they are citizens. And instead, there's all this fear mongering of hyping up 
um, forms of conflict that I think are really dangerous. Um, and these are the two cases, two news stories today that I was very concerned to see that um, the Russians have announced that, you know, uh, they're not going to take uh, off the table uh, deploying forces uh, to Cuba and Venezuela if the U.S. doesn't, you know, agree to, you know, uh, a solution in the Ukraine that, you um, is to their is to their liking and tries to impose sanctions and isolate, um, you know, isolate Russia with with Europe. This is really dangerous, and it just seems to me instead of trying to solve problems that we've got so many problems in the world, we're fomenting more problems. And I really feel that um, it's partly because we have seen that the neocons who should be completely discredited and isolated are increasingly in alliance with uh, influential factors in terms of military and foreign policy um, in the Democratic Party under the Biden administration. We've gained really nothing from the shift, it seems to me, in terms of foreign affairs with Biden as the president. It's status, it's, you know, continuing of the status quo. And if anything, it's even more aggressive in fomenting, um, you know, uh, dangerous uh, political and military conflict with two of the most important and powerful nations in, in, in world affairs, Russia and, and China. Wow. Who's on guerrilla history this week before we go to Professor Mary? Oh, on guerrilla history, we have a really interesting discussion uh, with uh, Salvatore Engel Di Mauro, who is a social, uh, who is a, sorry, a soil scientist um, who wrote a book, Socialist States and the Environment, Lessons for Eco-Socialist Futures. I can't think of a more important subject than an eco-socialist future. And he uses history to rehabilitate um, actually some of the policies of um, you know, socialist uh, countries in the post-war period and even today uh, from the, you know, usual image that's perpetuated in propaganda that they were just absolutely awful for the environment when in fact really it is, you know, capitalism and capitalist countries that are, uh, you know, mostly responsible for environmental degradation. So look for that. And I do just want to mention to people we have been talking a little bit about the global war on terrorism uh, since it's been 20 years uh, since its launching. We were just were talking about these neoconservatives being rehabilitated and still are, are part of our public life when they should actually be locked up in jail. Um, so uh, I'm sponsoring a talk by Arun Kundnani called What Was the War on Terror? Uh, January 25th, 4 p.m. There's Zoom registration, or you can stream it on Facebook at slash MSGPQU, the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project's Facebook page. And I'll also be interviewing Arun Kunnani um, on uh, the Mudgeless, uh, and that should come out sometime next week. And he is the author of a fantastic book called The Muslims Are Coming, The War on Terror, the, um, uh, Islamophobia, extremism, and the domestic war on terror. So look out for that. And lastly, I just want to say I was really honored to be part of the Red Nation podcast to talk about the global war on terrorism and its long history and roots, uh, the roots of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in the crusading society. So do check out. It's a wonderful podcast with Nick Estes and Jen Marley. So Red Nation, everyone should subscribe to that. Very quickly, what is the name of your parents' charity? And Peter B. Collins, Hannah, and I 
wanted to talk to you about doing something for oh that is that is uh, so kind and wonderful no, uh, it's no, called uh, rahima foundation r-a-h-i-m-a and it operates out of the south bay the the bay area and so what is south the web bay. what is the web address for the rahima for i think it was rahima.org so r-a-h-i-m-a dot o-r-g and who and does it people can donate they they uh do uh, food, uh, rent assistance, um, and um, other kinds of support to uh, people in need in the Bay Area. Started out with refugees, but continues to work uh, with um, other organizations and for supporting um, people who are in desperate need. Um, growing population all the time, uh, of course, uh, in the, the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I want to talk to you. Hannah and I were looking at the website. And I said to Hannah's my daughter, I said, what what do you notice? And she was the beans, the lentils, that it's the, 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 that the food, it's a Mediterranean diet that 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 this organ Rahima, R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. Go there, give money, please. And we're going to speak to you about doing something. But what struck my daughter and me was it's beans, it's lentils, it's yogurt, it's healthy food. It's not, so many of these organizations poison people with donuts and and sugar. This is, you you, you see. It, it, it is a California, you know, uh, organization. So the, you know, um, you know, good organic type food, uh, you know, healthy uh, lifestyle. You know, these are things, of course, they want to encourage, but also partly because they're just more nutritious. So it's better for people. And that's obviously a real crisis is that bad food is cheaper. And that's exactly the opposite of how it should be. So people often can't afford good, healthy food. Uh, and what they try and do is provide um uh, provide good, uh, healthy food um, that you would make, you know, those essentials that you need to make a healthy uh, meal at home. So yeah. cooking oil that's that's clean, um, beans, as you say, rice, um, these kinds of things, yeah, to sponsor and encourage, uh, you know, a healthy diet. I, I've been keeping Professor Marianne Cummings waiting. Professor Marianne. Uh, you know, I noticed that, it did, did remind me, because I did notice the other day that a a yellow bell pepper in the jewel costs more than the Happy Meal special at the McDonald's next door. It's like, okay, this is uh, now we see the violence inherent in the system. I think it's the farm bill. Pipeline. It's our farm but, bill. Every five yeah, years, we pass but, a, a farm bill that poisons yeah. America. Go ahead. What is on your mind? Yeah. Well, you know, I was just thinking because uh, an illustrious member of our chat room uh, one was was uh, defending Biden because the economy is roaring back. Is you this know? our so, physicist? Uh, is this our friend? I, I, wrote physicist? A, I, I read a, a little bit of fun and frivolity this morning in the uh, Financial Times. There was an article that was labeled Wall Street Bank set to report record profits for 2021. Damn. And they're supposed, and we're talking the usual criminals, World Crime League, J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, but uh, they're all supposed to uh, outdo their record profits that they set in 2020. But it's you know, a one-off. Cleaned up. They're saying it's a one-off. Yeah. 
I read the same article. They're saying they're going to have record profits this quarter, but they don't think they can sustain those profits. But because, you know, they'll never get bailed out ever again right. by the Democratic or Republican leadership, won't they? Hmm? Yeah. You read the same article, roughly $5 trillion in Fed spending. They got most of it. And it's been, what did it, What did they do with it? Compensation for a handful of their uh, top executive buybacks have been rampant. They noted, especially in pharmaceuticals, defense, oil and gas. Right. Hey, you know, they're Biden getting rid of they're getting right. rid of overdraft fees, though. Bank of America has announced that would be nice. Yeah. And Wells Fargo oh. announced today. I don't know if you read this. They are no longer going to set up phony bank accounts in your name and then take out loans and then charge they, you for it. They promised cross their heart. You know, they yeah. Girl Scouts honor. I'm sure they did. Yeah. So, you know, this is like but this is just so typical because I mean, this is oh, appalling what these guys are getting away with. But, you know, but this is why we have a media fixation on the Andrew Daxers or the, you know, the, the people who try to take over the Capitol. It's kind of like redneck bashing or Yoko or you know, whatever you call, want to call it. You know, it's, it's like, yeah, it's, it's fun. The, the libs like really feel good when you do that. It doesn't change anything fundamental for the real owners of this country. By the way, so, by know, the way, I, I've just I canceled a lot of subscriptions. I just subscribed to the Financial Times. It's very expensive. I subscribe to. The I know. Economy. I get a few free articles, and that's it. They cut me off, you know. And um, I, I'm doing. So. I've, I've really. I, I'm reading the Economist, Bloomberg, and the Financial Times. It's very expensive, but when you read this stuff and begin to see what these people want, you have two choices. My son, who's a Marxist, explained this to me. If you start reading this stuff, you have two choices. Join them or destroy them. <laughs> but you see what they're up to. You, you, if you mm -hmm. read, the, you know, read CNBC, read their thinking. They're, they are, they're Trump. They're read out Forbes. in the open. You talked about this. Like, will, right. like, th so you know what we're, like, I, I'm going, why am I reading Politico? That's just a reaction to what's in the Financial Times. Read what these people are up to. And the other person I would read is Matt Stoller. Um, I follow him on Twitter, but he also has a Substack that I read fairly regularly. I mean, he's he's into he can get into the weeds and the nuts and bolts of of, of acquisitions and mergers and monopolistic practices and things like that. Um, he was uh, he was Alan Grayson's chief of staff. <laughs> I was. I, I ran into him twice on Capitol Hill in that capacity. But anyway, he's very good for it doesn't like to be too political. I mean, I think he just he is not so very impressed with the Democratic uh, Republican divide either. But uh, he's a, a very good read to get you to understand the basis of power in this country. So. We yeah. are I, so, we're running by. That's what I'm saying. It's not to be contrarian. It's just like when you've got a bunch of corporate media types telling us all to look over here and be horrified. I want to look over there in the opposite direction.
And, you know, that's usually a good rule of thumb. We we have to wrap it up very quickly. What was, what was on your what's on your mind very quickly? So I I know everybody. No, but I was I did want to talk about that. But I think if we want to talk about this further, just how wealthy I think the big story from this whole COVID area is just the massive transfer of wealth from the rest of us to the very top. I think we're on now up to seven hundred and forty five billionaires. And that their net worth went from like two trillion to five trillion, kind of like you know, basically all the fees they collected in both the CARES Act and the Rescue Act this year, and of course in the Build Back Better, there's just going to be taking advantage of this massive public bond buying program. And uh, I wanted to get into what that really meant, you know, some of the infrastructure in the infrastructure bill, what that really meant for local communities. And it turns out there is a pile of red tape. You actually, communities actually have to apply for a lot of this money. Well, most small communities do not have the manpower or the wherewithal to get through the bureaucratic red tape that big corporations would do to apply for grants. So I think that requires a little, we can get into it uh, a little more next week, but, you know, I I think that we need to have a more coherent way of addressing just, just simply how the, the powers that be of both parties have used COVID as a way of just transferring wealth and long-term wealth, public wealth away from us into their donors. Yeah. Yeah. About as simple as I can put it. Yes. Well, thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, and thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. We're running... Uh, I I apologize for keeping uh, you waiting, and I should have alerted Professor Harvey J.K. and Professor Minsky. My apologies, especially this is a busy season. This is the busy season for Professor Harvey J.K. with FDR. Uh, This is the birthdays coming up, the speech on the the four freedoms. This this is uh, no need to apologize. I'm keeping score. Okay. And I'm losing. Uh, Biden. We knew. Biden. We knew that this was going to be bad. You were on the show, Professor K, during the debates. It was just shameless. We knew Biden was the last person the Democrats should have nominated. Is well, I have you know I know in that vein, as long as you apologize to me, I will, I will half apologize to Marianne because her her assessment of Biden's physical state is probably more on target than my assessment. Yeah, sure. he, he he's he looks like he's just spinning, you know. What? Uh, the 30s and Roosevelt, the 30s didn't have to happen the way they turned out. The right man at the right time. Correct? Yeah. Roosevelt. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, one could imagine 
even more significant kind. But yes, he actually was the right man at the right time. Biden? I, I don't think there's any question. But it, but please keep in mind that you know one of the I mean, there's so many different parts of his presidency that are significant, and one of them is the fact that he really did choose really good people to serve in his cabinet. I mean, Francis Perkins, Secretary of Labor, just an utter break with any kind of, every kind of tradition you could imagine. She was a woman, okay, which, you know, was phenomenal. Um, Harold Ickes, who was a progressive Republican, a white man who had been the head of the NAACP in Chicago for a while, had outstanding relations with uh, Native American reservations throughout the Midwest and the far West. and it was really just extraordinary. Harry Hopkins, who he brought in several months after he was already in the presidency, basically to handle, if you like, the, the initiatives that would emerge out of legislation and executive orders to combat poverty, provide jobs, get money out of the out of D.C. as quickly as you can into the lives of people. I mean, really, I, I, it's, you know, people on the left love to say, oh, but he did look what he did wrong and look at the sins he committed. Yes, and yes, and yes, and I, and I, and if anyone reads my stuff, I do not ignore them. But it is also the case that he he really was extraordinary, and in in the same way that in not in the same way, but in a fashion not unlike Lincoln, perhaps in his day, but just extraordinary. The the problem because all the more evident to me as we watch this debacle unfold now. I mean, but you know what? Sorry, can I just can I, can I just address I, I something okay. about what you said? I, mean, I said about- I sat patiently for quite a while listening, and, and everybody thing everybody said was definitely worth hearing. Okay, although it's funny to me when I hear Adnan talk about breaking up these big tech companies. That's the book you know that Josh Hawley wrote last year, right? And and everyone thinks I was crazy to say he could well end up the president of the United States. And I'm telling you, today. He introduced, or as a yesterday, introduced legislation that would ban congressional House and Senate representatives from their states playing the stock market. Yeah. Okay. He is. He is literally. As somebody said to me today on Twitter, the Democrats have gone so far right that he'll he'll be able to outpace them on the left if he keeps it up. Right. Okay. Is that different than what Ossoff introduced? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Ossoff. I'm not so sure. It's, I'm not so sure it's different, but it is the case that Ossoff, Ossoff got a quick nod, and you know, it said Hawley's is going along with all the other stuff he's doing. This kind of populism against big capital, even though it's it's all bullshit and it isn't at all very radical what he's proposing. But the idea is that he is dominating the, the discourse when it comes to this kind of of radical argument. Well, that, that's interesting. Uh, Who is Ossoff, by the way? Let that be a sign. Georgia Democrat, son of a rich man who never accomplished anything in his life other than getting elected to the Senate from Georgia. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi, I just Didn't said. Run a, run a media company in London, but I mean, he's an entrepreneur. Yeah, he's not yeah, an entrepreneur. Wasn't she it? the one who said we're capitalists? You know, we got to do this kind of thing. She she just sold one million dollars worth of Apple stock last week. That's her thumbing her nose at big tech. I'm selling a million dollars that she did. She sold a million. In, she knew when to buy, I bet. Uh, yeah, I mean, but could what would happen? Oh, but, yeah, but so, yeah, sorry. I 
I, I went off on a, I left behind a lot of points. But what, what I really have a hard time with, however, is that um, we really have a tendency on the left just to pull. It isn't that we just want to pull down Robert E. Lee's statue, which obviously was long time coming. He should have been tried and handled by the Republicans in his day. But it's also but it's the case that people on the left just have this need to pull down the folks who would literally represent their heroes. It's not like you have to portray everybody as a saint. You can acknowledge the tragic and and devastating kinds of decisions they made. But it's also the case that if we lose touch with the likes of Lincoln and, and FDR, it's all over. Well, nobody's really going after Lincoln. That's oh, no. That's have a, a look. Myth. Have that's a look a at the. Ha, no, have a look. Yeah, that's a myth. There well, was Lincoln, a, Lincoln is, of course, Lincoln. The, the particular thing in the western part of the country is um, his relationship to what could loosely and accurately be called. Well, I don't know. They wouldn't be accurate. The, the Indian Wars, because it's not really a war so much as just a you know, one-sided genocidal route. I did a. We did a deep dive on Bill Maher accusing the left of churning on Lincoln. There's one school in San Francisco that voted to rename and then and they backed yeah. out of it. They never tore down. Oh, did they? I never saw it. They backed they, out. They backed out. And then he brought up Bill. Bill Maher is an ignoramus and, and yeah, a liar. I, I've, I've thought that for a long time, especially when he was showing there were some films, some documentaries he was showing. Is that was that Pelosi's daughter who was making these? Yeah, I wonder how she yeah, got one of those yeah. Yeah. Utterly, she utterly reactionary and this bullshit. Utterly reactionary. This is his his libel against the left is that the the left in Springfield, Illinois, demanded that they tear down a statue of Abraham Lincoln at the Lincoln Library. And he got these big laughs. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. The left is saying tear down a statue of Lincoln at the Lincoln Library. You can't make this up. Well, Bill Maher's a fucking liar, and he did make it up. He's an ignoramus, and it turns out that they tore down that statue of Lincoln because it was a traveling statue of Abraham Lincoln going around the country. But, you know, he's he's really dangerous um, and stupid and right wing. Okay, and by the way, I'm, I'm helping you keep the list. So we got John Stewart. And we got anti-union, anti-union. Yeah. You've you've destroyed yeah. McGovern, McCarthy, Henry Wallace and Adley Stevenson. Well, I don't know. No, wait, please understand. I was never I, I would never want to be thought of as destroy, destroying Henry Wallace. OK, no. I just think there are questions that need to be asked. I have no reservations about taking down Carter. OK, I will say that it was a terrible presidency. I was reading. We're, we're in the shape we're in now because Carter Yes. Um, Alan Minsky. You, you look at somebody like uh, Josh Hawley saying, break up big tech. Is this, as Ralph Nader would call it, a left-right alliance? Could the left join Josh Hawley in calling for the breakup of big tech and enforcing antitrust laws? Can we trust the Republicans to go after uh, Bork's interpretation of antitrust law, which, which says you should only break up a company if it causes prices to rise, if it's bad for consumers? 
you know, this, uh, the person that Mary Ann uh, Cummings spoke of, Matt Stoller, of course, is a great guest to get on the subject. Um, you know, as for alliances uh, with, uh, you know, Republicans, you know, it's a good cause. And, and as far as you can tell, there's not something sort of that's sort of hidden inside the DNA of the of the of the logic of legislation that's going to undermine it. Then, uh, of course, there's no problem with voting for them. You still want to get them out of out of their offices as quick as possible, assuming they're. Um, they are more oh, well, or less I, aligned I otherwise with the Republican Party, which is a terrible political organization. I mean, and just on just on climate alone, uh, in the uh, Democrats are not good, but the Republicans are catastrophically bad. And considering right. where we are on that yes. subject historically, but Holly, um, um, crazy. I don't know, you'd have to look at the you have to look at the weeds of his proposal. He's but, a you crazy know, there Christian, are, Holly. There's no doubt that there are Democrats in Congress that it, you would really struggle to be worse man when it comes to their relationship with big tech bernie actually was it bernie and, and holly had a bill together and i and i know bernie, bernie had a bill mike lee from utah uh, that was a foreign policy thing no i bernie did but bernie backed out and i but it was before the january 6th stuff it was but not unrelated to certain kinds of those kinds of mm. those kinds of things probably because holly you know bought the big it was promoting the big lie as as best he could mm. um as I as I recall, but I'm pretty sure it was Bernie and, and Holly were doing a something together on that, and that ended. Yeah, I remember that too. I can't remember what it was. I thought I thought it was actually around the the price of the amount of money that was going to go out in the final Trump. Um, oh, was that Trump, I, again? Uh, I could, it, one could imagine if if Holly remember Holly's book came out last spring. So let's imagine there hadn't been a January 6th or whatever. You, one could readily imagine. Right. Marianne Cummings remembers it was direct COVID relief. In the, it was in the final volley of, of Trump payments on COVID relief that Holly okay. and Bernie bonded. Yeah. I'm glad you're reading the chat because that's good. So Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, Josh Hawley, these are all Harvard, Yale, Princeton law graduates. Uh, they are ultra right wing. They are uh, they flirt with theocracy. They're, they're kind of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Holly's got definitely a theocratic bent. Take take Trump off the, the table. Where are we without Trump? Well, I mean, I think it's I think I, actually I think between Thomas Friedman and The Wall Street Journal, they missed a great opportunity because, as you probably know, Thomas Friedman proposed a ticket of um, Joe Biden and Lynn Cheney. The Wall Street Journal ran an op-ed calling for Hillary Clinton to be to replace Biden Harris. And I think what was missed there was the opportunity for a Hillary Clinton Dick Cheney ticket. I think that would really be more Donald Trump. The Democratic Party. Well, but could we agree that Hillary? Two things we were saying earlier. Can we agree that Hillary? I'm waiting for the punchline. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I, that, I, I had to do a punchline. Come on. Her, her, <laughs> her horrible foreign policy, notwithstanding, and the killing of innocent brown people overseas, which is a serious problem that she she would continue to do. But for domestic policy, would you agree that Hillary would be better than Biden? Mm. I can't imagine her being this bad. I can't. Yeah, I can't. What's, what's I, I, bad I actually, about Biden? I'm sorry. What's bad, what's bad about Biden? I mean, to put him on that level of bad uh, is just a failure to um, to to get this stuff through 
Congress, and then when you fail to get your entire package through Congress, and now two two out of three of the signature elements, you know, then you just have failed presidencies stamped on you. Now yeah. it's true you've gotten very little except a pro business infrastructure bill through, right, and then the initial relief act. But now you have the cutting off of the mitigation of the impact of poverty measures that the relief act had in it. Yeah, you're you're in bad shape. So if that's if that's his his uh, scorecard, yeah, it'd be hard to imagine her doing worse in this context. But yeah, for I, what I, he what yeah. for what he was embracing, I think I, I don't know. I can't really see Hillary Clinton. Yeah, maybe maybe in this context, she would have done as much as is of, of this stuff as Biden has. Well, as long as you read the chat, I'll say Marianne saying that they're on the same. They basically have the same policies, and they do. I mean. Hmm. Does Biden think he's failed or does he just think these are minor setbacks? Does he know? Um, Does he know that he failed or does he think? Does does, does he know that he failed? Does he does it? Has it dawned on him? Yeah, I'm not I'm not talking about his mental acuity. I'm talking. No, I'm not even. No, what I'm saying is here's what here's this is something I've noticed from the very beginning. I, there's clearly something Ron Klain is is screwing him somehow. Why, for example, let, let's take the speech this week, which, you know, by Biden standards was was a good speech. I agree. OK, why would you arrange for the president to do that in the middle of the day? A speech of that importance. You I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Who's scheduling this guy? I can tell you, schedulers matter because it was my cousin up in Boston who made the mistake of, I think I've told you this, scheduling Dukakis to go to that military base and ride in that tank. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, somebody's scheduling Biden. I mean, has he ever spoken after six o'clock Eastern time? Did Trump? Since he's become president? Yeah, I think about Afghanistan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so that that occurred. And then not to have prearranged for I I don't know what I don't know what uh, you know who I'm talking about. I don't know what Stacey Abrams had in mind by not being there. I mean, she's a mixed bag in many ways. It's that 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 needs to be understood. But to not be there. That's her thing. I said earlier to Alan, we talked earlier this evening, and I said, is this like the vindictiveness of of a black woman because she didn't get the vice presidency? No, this this is her thing. Voting rights. That's her thing. But she didn't show up for the one time. What what does that mean? So what does that mean if Stacey, Stacey Stacey Abrams I agree with you is problematic. I think she's Harvard Law or, or one of those schools. And one of those. Yeah. I, I, I don't Harvard think she out. was all in on Bernie yeah, or Medicare for all, but she's certainly she was, she was not all in for Bernie. Right. And, and she wasn't. No. Right. And and but, but she's and by the way, she went over to Davos all expenses. She all expenses come right. But she is well, that better. Would than, that would suck if you went over to Davos and you didn't have your expenses paid. That's that true. Bank, I, that, that really bankrupted me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> one, one cheesecake over there would bankrupt me. But she <laughs> she's better than Kemp and she could win in Georgia. And she's running for governor this year. And yeah, she doesn't want to be seen 
with our president. I, I, Why? I mean, how do you explain that? It's not, you know, all I kept hearing was she had a pre, what is it, a, you know, prearranged something. I don't know if it was a dental she, appointment. Who knows? She doesn't want that stink on her. There's a stink. There were, there were a lot of, there were a lot of, um, um, of black activists in, in Atlanta who had said that they were frustrated with Biden and about 10 days out from the, when the speech was announced, they were saying we we're going to not intend um, because he hasn't done enough. You know, who knows? Maybe she was getting pressure from that group to be in solidarity with her, with them. Who knows? Well, but isn't, you know? is now, does not, he know? Yeah. So does he know, does he recognize that his administration is, you know, it's a lame duck administration, uh, apparently. It was a lame duck candidacy. Here's what, not to, not you know, I, I don't mean to be insulting. Uh, I hope this comes out right, but it sure feels like the Progressive Black Caucus, Clyburn, a lot of African Americans in the Democratic Party are responsible for Joe Biden. They saw him as... Obama's wingman, they, am I wrong that, that we, oh, yeah, I don't think he, I don't think he wins without a huge uh, effort by uh, the black um, political machines in obviously the three states where it was such a close margin of the four states, right? It was Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and well, not Arizona, Arizona, the black population. But, but it was the black, it, it was the African-American, uh, African-Americans in the Democratic Party that put the thumb on the scale in the primaries, right? Clyburn. Sure, uh, sure. At, at least down there. And it was sure, but even even more impressive is the massive, massive turnout that was generated because and, it was it was back to Obama levels and the, the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was not passed parallel to build back better because of an end run around the progressive caucus from the congressional black caucus. It wasn't that how the, that was that was a sort of the first group that was out of the box again. I think Clyburn and and Joyce Beatty were pressuring. Um, very and very very much in harmony with the White House. So the White House wanted that to not be stopped by the progressives. I mean, uh, right after, Jaya it, was all in, it was all in response to the Virginia election results, which is this absurd, I don't, I don't absurd, think, absurd way. I, I don't Virginia think. politics get overplayed in D.C. I, I don't think. I think. I think we have a lot of conservative. The, the that the uh, that they're not. I think, the, David, though, I think that was done, and the logic that was. I, I felt the primary logic of of um, of the Clyburns in that move right after the Virginia election was um, this is getting too bad for Biden. It's uh, it's going south on him. His presidency is in trouble. We got to get something passed here. That was their logic as, as they brought it over and pressured. It wasn't it wasn't to undermine Bill Back Better. So they basically basically the only Democrats in the House who actually showed um, uh strategic acumen were were the squad the six squad members they got it right everybody else got it wrong bipartisan infrastructure bill doesn't help biden it's bipartisan which means the republicans are bringing home the bait the republicans can run on it it's not it wasn't smart politically 
Well, uh, yeah, I, I of course stood fully with the squad. I found it appalling, and I was very upset that you know it only took about twenty more progressives to block it from going forward. Not even it was less than that. But I figured, I figured you might get a few more Republicans going on board for the passage of the bill if they crept the number up. But what did it pass by? It, it, I think it took uh, sixteen more Democrats to block it from the final vote. And they could have had those. There's, there's 16 decent progressives. I can name them off the top of my hand, head right now, you know, who are good enough to have gone along with that. Professor Harvey J.K., you voted for Biden. I voted for Biden. You were terrified of Trump. I'm terrified of Trump. There are people who listen to this show, people who are on this show, who say to us, how many times are you going to have the ball taken away from you, Charlie Brown? You know, Lucy with it's Lucy with Charlie Brown. Are you ready to abandon the Democrats? Are you ready to just say the hell with them? I'm no, I, I, no. Look, I, I don't. <laughs> the I, I said this a number of times to you. I vote defensively. I said to Alan earlier as well, you know, there's only there's only two pol- and only one of them I did I ever get to vote for anything. There was only a few politicians that I ever thought I really thought were were, were my politicians. You know, Bernie and Ron Dellums. Ron Dellums. Otherwise, from, the, otherwise it's only dead politicians I get to like. Yeah. Um Sorry, what I mean by that let me, is... Let me say this. So, look, on Sunday, we have this PDA town hall. Everybody should attend this one. There are two guests. One is this uh, historian from northern Wisconsin name of Harvey J.K. I've uh, heard And of he's going to be on our, our show this Sunday in particular because of the video that you mentioned from the Gravel Institute. Is it called the best presidential speech ever? Is that well, right? Most radical... Most miraculous coffee got changed. Yeah, I, I, I might have titled it a little differently, but that's beside the point. Okay. Let's call that right. And um, yeah. I didn't want to put the link in in the announcement because we don't want to take people away from registering for the town hall. Uh, but I want to put the proper title in so they can find it. And um, uh, and then the other guest is Jessica Cisneros. She's the first candidate that we've endorsed nationally. We waited for the districts to be set, unlike some other of our partners on the left. And so our first uh, candidate that we're endorsing nationally is Jessica Cisneros. And we're doing it in part for two reasons. One, she's exceptional. Well, three reasons. She's running against Henry Cuellar. You probably, there's probably been no primary inside the Democratic Party, at least since the Jim Crow era, where the divide between a primary challenger and the incumbent is as great. He is uh, anti-choice. He was the one Democrat in the House to vote against the PRO Act. Uh, he's Henry fucking Cuellar, okay? Biggest recipient of fossil fuel money, I think, in the entire Congress. And um, uh, she is a progressive across the board, Green New Deal in Texas, okay? 28-year-old immigrant rights lawyer from Laredo, Texas. And she will be our second guest. Look, I, I do not play defense on politics in the Democratic Party. I play offense against the moderates inside the Democratic Party. I think the base of the party is with us. And I also think we have, we, yeah, we should continue to try to hold on to uh, the professional managerial class, as it's called. We should try to hold on to even prosperous members of the professional managerial class just on the grounds that progressive politics will make for a better society. And they should go along with that, right? 
But um, we need to go to uh, the white working class out across the country and say our politics will make our society better, your lives better, your family lives better. We can't no longer, uh, you know, try to draw in all members of the American working class, which are a majority in the country. We have to try to use democracy and wrest it away from the oligarchic control of the system. And that is offense inside the party. You know, and, and, and I'm, I'm not wedded to the Democratic Party. You know, I'm also not, I don't have a preference for the left side of my body versus the right side of my body. So I call myself a leftist, right? It's just, you know, uh, it's okay, a, it's a real, can, real I, battle inside yeah. the party. And, and we're not winning, but we have to win. Okay. In my defense, I was asked about my oh, vote. No, yeah, 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 In my, yeah. I, my, my vote, I vote defensively. Okay. Yeah, but if you had a chance to vote offensively, if you had a great I do vote. No, no. Wait. I mean, I, that was a generic statement. I, I've very locally, my state representative, I absolutely adore her politics. Okay. Okay. And she won this uh, back in 2020. I was overjoyed. Okay. She also happens to be a very good friend. And she also happens to be the co-author of a Wisconsin Economic Bill of Rights that they're trying to get the Democrats to embrace. But I, what I was getting at is that generally speaking, when my students say, you know, why vote? I say, because you vote defensively. That's That was always my argument. You vote defensively. In, in the age in which my students have grown up, they would ask themselves, why vote? You vote defensively. And that's how I judged how to vote between Trump and uh, and Biden. But there's no way that I don't act offensively <laughs> on the offense when it comes to politics. Otherwise, I would not I wouldn't even show up for progressive Democrats of America if that's what I thought. Come on. No, no, okay. of course. I didn't mean that as a as a as uh, you know, yeah, I know you didn't intend just, it that just way, using but your phrase and struck me right here. <laughs> no, I, I was just using that to, to build up to, to just jump off of your language as a, as a as a springboard i just put the link into the registration i should say what it is that's the pda sunday town hall with uh harvey jk and jessica cisneros who by the way is just i mean she's the real deal because she grounds everything in uh, how it will impact her community she is really of form by the people of her community and so I think just an exemplary candidate. She almost beat Cuellar last time, lost by less than 3,000 votes, and she stepped right back up and jumped into it. Look, um, if she wins, it's March 1st, the very first primary. That will be a bellwether that progressives can take on and defeat these rotten Democrats. And not just rotten Democrats, but meh Democrats too, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and really, really build up. I mean, we've got a long way to go. We need, we need 218 progressives in the house not just democrats progressives and we need uh obviously 51 uh not 50 uh senators who are progressive or, yeah who are maybe 50 and a progressive vice president all that stuff to transform american public policy but we're a long long way from it but i think we have the winning arguments in terms of the american public let me ask you before we wrap it up uh and thank you for this I have these grand unifying theories that could solve our nation's ills. If you made me dictator for two years, the Romans, as you know, in their constitution or whatever laws they had, they allowed for a dictator for two years. Cincinnati would leave the, the farm and come into Rome to run the place for two years to get the place back up on its feet. If we ever decide to make me America's Cincinnati. <laughs> I have a couple of ideas, uh, which would include locking up a lot of white men. 
for white collar crimes. Just really, you know, do what we do to people of color. Just accidentally lock up a lot of corporate executives uh, and scare the shit out of them. That would be the first step. What are your grand unifying theories, Professor Harvey J.K.? If if you could tell Biden, this is what you need to do this and you you'll fly into the sunset and live happily ever after. I tell him, fly into the sunset. Take Kamala with you. We'll work it out. We'll work it out. Oh, by the way, make it a three-seater. Take Pete. Take Pete, too. Yeah. Yeah. And Ron Klain and Jen Psaki and Blinken, the Secretary of State, and everybody else from West Exec. But if he said, I don't know what to do, Professor. Right now? Tell me what to well, do. I mean, I've been telling you on this show, he obviously doesn't want neither Ron nor Joe have been watching this show. I've been saying it over and over again. You would think they people would say he had to go. Would. People say I had to go big. It wasn't a matter of going big. You have to trust your fellow citizens and you have to and you ba- it's Bernie was right. It's not me, us. And when he said not me, us, it wasn't only like the golden rule do unto others, which I know a lot of people heard. What he meant was that if I get elected, I'm going to need you turning out to make sure that the folks in Congress or the folks in the Supreme Court, wherever the folks are who will oppose your democratic aspirations, we have got to make sure they hear you. OK, I mean, he hasn't called them out in any way whatsoever. That that's that's been my complaint about the Democrats for so long. They have the Democratic leadership does not trust the american citizenry i agree that with you. to me it's the that's the problem it's been you know and we are a nation they think, of- they think every they think all americans are capable of literally becoming january 6th insurrectionists as opposed to as opposed to an active engaged aspiring democratic citizen who wants to f- reduce inequality enhance freedom you know the whole shtick they just don't get it. We are or, a, they, or they do get it. And look, they're so tied up with the money power that they fear the possibility of that. So, you know, we are a nation of cowards, period. And it's because there's no draft. We are a nation of cowards who don't know how to fight. My father came home from World War Two and they weren't afraid. They weren't afraid. Uh, right, absolutely. Absolutely. This is a, we're a nation of cowards and we we're cowering with our guns. And, you know, God forbid I have to go outside and shop and or, or sacrifice for my country. We're a nation of cowards and we're and we're terrified to put the country to the test. We're we're terrified when Trump came around. We 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 were they chickened out. We weren't willing to fight Trump. They said, just put a placeholder in there, put Biden in there and don't don't ruffle any feathers. Don't stir up the hornet's nest. Don't challenge the forces that created the vacuum that Trump took advantage of because we're a nation of cowards. Bring back the draft. My grand unifying theory is two years, you're 18. You serve your country for two years. 
period. I, I, I don't know specifically about a military draft, but I definitely favor two years of, of conscription pu- to public service. You, 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 you come and we're taking you. The state is taking you and you're going to live for two years on a, on a base. And if you don't want to learn how to shoot a gun, you're going to learn how to teach. But you're serving your country. And right. and if you don't and want if you to went do, to Harvard or Yale, you're doing KP. You do KP. And you don't like that. There's there's no public vouchers, no private public service to get my kid out of. It's you don't. it's bad enough. We don't have public schools, public service, period. Two years. That is an example of forcing people to defend the indefensible. Anybody who's against a draft, it doesn't you cannot defend not bringing back the draft. You cannot defend it other than cowardice, other than cowardice. Get people to admit they're cowards. You're a coward. You don't want to bring back the draft. You're a coward. You don't love this country. That's my grand unifying theory, Alan. I'm going to have to think about that one for a while. I mean, I I certainly have heard a lot of people advocate for that over the years. It's what destroyed this country. I'm a huge advocate for, uh, you know, universal uh, jobs guarantee through the the government operating as an employer. There's no coincidence. The Powell memo and Laird, Melvin Laird and Richard Nixon getting rid of the draft came around the same time. The minute you get rid of the draft, you create a generation after generation of self-interested citizens. Um, the um, by the way, I say that because I hate. I mean, my, I don't know. I hate I, my there's kids. A, there's a there's I, a, I, I hate a, a minor children. note on a, a Bob Dylan album from the 1990s called "World Gone Wrong," and uh, you know, he didn't write any of the songs at all covers, but the liner notes are brilliant. And in there, it just has a quip, which is, "Who would ever thought the courage would go out of style?" And I'm like, yeah, I think that's happened, you know, and, and it, it has. I mean, was this, is, that a, is that considered how, where is that now and what people in our society think is a, a redeeming way of behaving or a feature to, to show courage? I think where, I think where, where, where does courage appear you know, I think, in, in America? I think any country that spends more on defense than the 20 countries below it combined is a nation of frightened cowards any nation that has bought 400 million guns is a nation of cowards any country that thinks beefing up the police instead of social services is wise policy is a nation of cowards we are a nation of cowards Yeah, I mean, you know, that was the exemplary activity in our time. Someone at the trading desk having the courage to, you know, try to manipulate international currency markets. Right. (laughs) You know, we can write epic poetry about that. I could just sidebar that. I want to add that national service, okay, in cohorts would provide something that's been also missing a long time because. Our unions have been under siege. Solidarity. Mm-hmm. Generation might get to know each other better, might come to depend upon each other more, and might be willing to act politically, 
not only by, you know, mass demonstrations are all well and good, but you've got to be able to hang together beyond the day. And solidarity is utterly absent. Because there's no draft. You, you want to join, you, you don't want to learn the military. You're going to learn how to march. You're going to learn how to fire a gun. You're going to learn how to exercise. You're going to learn how to run. And you don't like that after basic training. Then go. Then you're going to be sent to AmeriCorps. Remember B Bill Clinton's AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps or the military? Two years of your life. You're going to be living to be 150. What's two years of your life to serve <laughs> yeah, your, right. your country? Right. Two, you can't give up two years. I mean, defend Defend yourself. How can you defend not being for that? And 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 Professor K, you talk about you know going big. The Democrats, the left has they have to present ideas that that are unopposable. That where you cannot you cannot be against it. You've got to get the opposition to say out loud. I'm against that. So you can just say, well, then you're a fucking coward. You know, well, it, and, by, and I'll go back to Adnan and Josh Hawley's argument about breaking up big tech. Talk about popular ideas. <laughs> Someone's something funny in that. Thank uh. you. Let, let's go by the fight for the four freedoms right now. And the Gravel Institute has a video that I'm going to watch tomorrow night. Maybe we'll watch it during office hours. Tomorrow. Oh, you haven't seen it yet? No, I was thinking of running it during office hours tomorrow. Well, that'd be, okay, yeah. I've been very pleased by the response. I'll How many minutes is it? How many minutes is the speech? Eight minutes. 18 minutes? Eight. Oh, we're going we're gonna to run it during office hours tomorrow. I thought you might have run it tonight. Uh, well, we might get copyright infringed. Mint. I was on a call last night for the meeting of all the, the heads of the progressive caucuses of the state parties across the country. And uh, Nina Turner was on the call, too, and she spoke and uh, uh, no collusion whatsoever. Just sitting there watching Nina speak. And she said, I have to tell everybody about something I saw. And it's completely brilliant. And it was uh, Harvey's uh, Gravel Institute video. Yeah, that that that's great to hear. That's very great exciting to hear. to hear that. That really is fantastic. Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of The Fight for the Four Freedoms, and we will be running his speech tomorrow at office hours starting at 8 p.m. during my time slot. And uh, thank you, Professor Harvey J.K. Thank you, David. Follow him always. on Twitter at Harvey J.K. Alan Minsky is executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. How do we follow you? Um, yeah, just uh, you know, uh, go to pdamerica.org and sign up. pdamerica, there's only one A in that, uh, .org. And um, also Harvey J.K. will be uh, one of our featured guests this Sunday on our town hall. I put the link into it right there. I'll do it again, the little Zoom registration link. And he will be commenting on uh, the video that we just spoke about. And our intention is to make the Economic Bill of Rights, as outlined by Roosevelt, the sort of the foundation uh, of a unified sort of progressive policy uh, policies that the progressive movement will uh, embrace. Fantastic. Yeah. And by the way, Dave, you didn't play our theme song tonight. Oh, you're right. But I do want to say, I do want to say that I contacted Mike 
Steinel and asked him a favor if he could send me the te- you know recording of it in which he did and so I could send it to my and my family so they could hear Alan and Harvey or sorry Minsky and Kay everybody just loves it <laughs> just oh, uh, Harvey can you is that a file that's easy for you to forward to what's me? funny is I thought I'm I might I will send it to you again I thought I had I will again as soon as we get off should, should alert me when it comes because it's I get so much stuff but thank you I, you know what quick question Professor speak. Harvey JK <laughs> oh thank you thank you David thank you uh, fantastic. Thanks, Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Misky and K, they go together like PB and J. Like Thelma and Louise, like Mac and Cheese, like Sacco and Benzetti, like meatballs and spaghetti. Allen's in LA, Harvey J's in Green Bay. When they get together, they got a lot to say, cause they're Misky and Kay. about democracy Miss King K Thank you there, Professor Mike Steinel. Always look forward to his new music. Jeffrey Epstein brought eight young women with him on his trips to visit President Bill Clinton at the White House. There are photos of Jeffrey Epstein posing inside the briefing room of Bill Clinton's uh, White House. These are photos that he hung at at his uh, Palm Beach mansion. Who do I have here? Who's talking? Did I not? you know, Netflix spent something like, I don't know, $50 million on their Netflix, their Jeffrey Epstein special. And it was produced by James Patterson, who was a neighbor of Jeffrey Epstein. James Patterson, who writes all those thrillers, right? And he and he wrote about Jeffrey Epstein and they gave him a contract over at Netflix 
to help produce this multi-million dollar investigative report on Jeffrey Epstein. And there's this brief mention of Bill Clinton. Maybe in this Netflix documentary, Bill Clinton might have been on the Lolita Express. We know that Clinton was on the Lolita Express. We know that Jeffrey Epstein visited the Clinton White House. All of that left out of the Netflix documentary produced by James Patterson. Why? Because James Patterson is best friends with Bill Clinton and writes thrillers with Bill Clinton. James Patterson is a piece of shit. And he covered up for the Clinton family and that multi, multi, multi-million dollar Netflix documentary that's supposed to be news where it focuses on all the prurient interviews with the victims that, you know, that dateline trope of salaciousness. Let's discuss the victims of child molestation, but let's not dig into who were the government officials who cover it up. Don't do the real journalism, Netflix, James Patterson, and get to the bottom of who aided and abetted Jeffrey Epstein. And who did Jeffrey Epstein have something on, like Bill Clinton? What was Jeffrey Epstein doing visiting the White House several times, bringing young girls to visit Bill Clinton, young women? Doesn't seem to be young girls, young women. Why wasn't that in the Netflix special, James Patterson? Let's take some calls before we wrap it up. Warren G., how are you tonight, sir? I'm well, David. Thank you. Um, I wanted One thing I wanted to um, try to inform you on, um, Pelosi probably didn't like actually call her broker and do the... Um, do the trades herself is basically a blind trust that does it no but i know no no, no. her husband so? no no her husband is a financial uh, advisor, advisor. He, that's not a blind trust that's, okay, the, that's the family trading she doesn't have their stuff in a blind trust they're buying real estate and they buy, they're buying stocks and they are trading hmm. that's not a blind trust a blind trust is when you put it in in, a, in an index, like to Jerome Powell, who's the head of the Federal Reserve. I've played fast and loose with that story. He right. had his money in an S&P index fund, and he sold about $5 million worth of index funds in October of 2020. It's wrong. He shouldn't be making those decisions when he's deciding whether or not to raise or lower interest rates. But he wasn't picking losers and winners. He was picking an index fund. The Pelosi's are picking stocks. Paul Pelosi is a piece of shit and he should be locked up for insider trading. Yeah, they, they try. They tried to do that a bunch of years ago, like passing insider trading laws on Hong on Congress and they it didn't go anywhere because it's bought and paid for. Yeah, they made it so you're not allowed as I think the Stock Act 
says you have to reveal all your trades in a timely fashion and you're you're not allowed to trade but you're allowed to tell your relatives to trade you can give instructions and this is why Richard Burr the head of the, who was head of he had a, the Republican senator Richard Burr was head of the Senate Intelligence Committee and he was just caught in February of 2020 he gets an intelligence briefing on covid he says i'll be right back and he just uh sells all the stocks that are going to be impacted by covid and you have it was, these actually, it was also richard claret the vice chair of the fed right he was the he, he was the other one apparently there was a, a new news article that um that elizabeth warren just um did on yeah. him so here's the thing the other, he's here, the other one yes, here's the thing Here, here's the thing that they say is it fair for people who serve in congress or the federal reserve not to be able to trade stocks when everybody else can to which i reply when you do public service that is sacrifice and Absolutely. if you don't want to make that sacrifice, that's that's OK. But you don't belong in public service. If you want to be a fireman or a firewoman, you uh, when you are saving somebody and you see jewelry lying on the table, uh, you can take that jewelry as you're saving somebody and the insurance company will cover that as missing. The sacrifice you make by being a fire person is you don't get to steal that jewelry while nobody's looking. Your job is to save people in a burning building. If you're tempted to steal those Rolexes, you should not be a fire person. Go find other work, become a stockbroker and steal money from rich people. If you want to be a congressman or a senator one of the sacrifices you make is you cannot trade on inside information and you should be arrested and put in prison paul pelosi you know if if, if you if your husband can't help himself and is trading 70 million dollars a year in stocks make a decision do you love your husband nancy or do you love your country pick between the two you can't have both you can't be speaker and you can't have this corrupt piece of shit named paul pelosi for your husband it's that simple don't take the job nobody's forcing anybody to serve to have the privilege to serve in congress it's that simple and she says she when she was asked about it, she says, is it fair? We're she's this, this a Democrat says we're a capitalist nation. Is it fair that that we don't get to trade stocks? That's what she said. She yeah. should be arrested. She's a disgrace. Yeah. This week on um, on spirituality and activism, we were talking about the Gaia principle. Are you familiar with this? No. What is that? It's a basically essentially putting the earth first um, is you have to think about the earth as being our only home that we have. And you have to really think about it that consciously. And it's a whole principle. 
um, what was it? The guy that we were hearing with Tom, it was, it was very interesting. I highly recommend you looking at it. And it basically, we leave the earth out a lot of times. And it, it's a really important concept to get, change people's thinking of it. So the, the whole Gaia principle is really important, yeah. I think. I just say my, my thing that I said at the beginning of the show is uh, I'm not going to say love, lead with love. I'm going to lead with human connection. What is the best for your neighbor? Always, always start from what is best for my neighbor. And we don't do that in this country. We have leaders from Congress to the White House, to the Federal Reserve, to corporate America, to academia who don't worry about anyone other than themselves. And that's the starting point. If you don't think about your neighbor, then you don't know right from wrong and you're a piece of shit. And too many pieces of shit are in charge. What is yes. better? What's best for your neighbor? The problem is, and we make excuses for these pieces of shit. I, I'm not as tolerant as uh, most people are. I'm an Old Testament lefty, as you know. Lock them up. Lock them up. We have 2.5 million people behind bars. Empty those prison cells out because they're not. Most of them are nonviolent offenders and start putting these pieces of shit in there. Just lock these Hunter Biden and 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 uh, uh, Eric Trump and Ivanka and Jared. These pieces of shit should be behind bars. Bill Clinton should be behind bars. George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Condi Rice behind bars lock these pieces of shit up and you just keep locking one piece of shit up after another eventually all you're left with are leaders who aren't pieces of shit other countries lock up their pieces of shit france israel they lock up their pieces of shit we're lousy with pieces of shit being in charge committing crimes lock these pieces of shit up dick cheney should be marched before the hague george w bush lock them up and they say well, it's not good for the country well how's it working out for you america you don't lock up your pieces of shit now you're run by pieces of shit including obama and our current president they're all yeah. pieces of shit Sorry to rile you up, but did you hear about the um, Ivanka and Don Jr. ignoring their subpoenas from the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James? Yeah, lock them up. Yeah. Lock them up. If they were black. Done. But we, what are you what are you waiting for? I don't know. I don't know what they're waiting for. I believe in law and order. I do. I'm an Old Testament lefty. There's right and wrong. Lock these pieces of shit up. I believe in America. I believe in law. Lock these cops up. Lock these corporate executives up. 
fill the prisons with these pieces of shit. We're locking up the wrong people. Our cops are beating up on the wrong people. Unfortunately, because our cops work for the wrong people. That's the problem. That That's what we're up against. The cops answer to the pieces of shit. Thank you, David. Thank you. Rodrigo, I'll see you at office hours. I'm hungry. I, I'm hangry. Is that what they call it, Rodrigo? I've heard the word used, but uh, I'm not sure people actually call it that. What? Hangry. Hangry. It means you're hungry and angry. Yes. Anyway. How are uh, things in Mexico tonight? Well, uh, there are more people getting killed in Acapulco, in the beach, but... Uh, Why is that? Oh, because they didn't pay one dollar in protection money which is amazing but anyway <laughs> what is on your mind tonight sir uh i started telling you about nfts uh on mon on the non-fungible non tokens yes and i wanted to tell you also that uh, nfts are composed of an address of you on your electronic wallet pointing to the proof that you own a 24 million dollar picture of a car and the address of the actual image on the internet which could be an image on facebook that disappears when someone deletes their account or an image on your website davidfeldmanshow.com that could disappear when you get hacked or you forget to pay the bill or uh, I mean, think about that. This is how NFTs are written. They could store the image on the actual wallet or on the blockchain, but that would be expensive. So they just store the address of an image on a regular internet server that anyone can hack. That's how the protocols the technical protocols are written. And I also wanted to say that Jamie Peck is right and there are no shortcuts. We keep trying to come up with new ideas to instantly defeat the far right, but the truth is we need to organize and educate people. And the leftists that are telling other leftists to get guns are trying to bring a gun to a fight with a tank, Tiananmen Square style. And finally, I wanted to tell you about <clears throat> one of the clearest examples of structural failures of capitalism that involves Viagra and bear control. All of Big Pharma is busily dumping billions into research to come up with the next substitute for Viagra slash Cialis 
to increase their share of an already oversaturated market that nonetheless is covered by most insurance plans. Meanwhile, the birth control pill has not changed in 60 years. The women who might die from blood clots, 0.3 to 1%, are supposed to just take it and hope that they don't die the first time their birth control pill tries to kill them. And women in the United States literally cannot find a doctor that will correctly diagnose them with endometriosis, which affects 10% of women. This is not an accident. This is how capitalism is supposed to work. An incredible business opportunity going to waste for 60 years while the entire industry tries to find a new drug to compete in an oversaturated market because the fragile psyche of men who have been brought up to believe their value as men depends on their ability to get a woman pregnant and raising their blood pressure on purpose on a regular basis is much better than giving them therapy with someone like Dr. Frad who will explain to them that the society that tells them their only value comes from their capacity to reproduce is lying to them. So I wanted to share this because it's an incredibly clear example of of capitalism working the way it's supposed to. And also if you don't mind, uh, I wanted to tell you that uh, I didn't hear all of your talk with Ben Burgess, but I think you were very wrong this time. Very wrong? Uh, He kept asking you for things that we could do to gain power, and you kept answering with things that should be done with power we don't have yet. Right. Well, yeah. Uh, so w- it's a question of the cart before the horse. Uh, I understand what you're saying. Uh, I think the way we gain power is prime the pump for the next financial crisis. Get the conversation going for Americans to understand that when I'm gonna I'm gonna mute you because I'm getting feedback. Okay. okay. Uh, let me just mute you. Uh, where are you? All I'm asking, Rodrigo, if you could uh, thank you. All I'm asking is we get the conversation going about what it takes, what it means to nationalize certain corporations. And that means to own a piece of certain companies. I've been talking about this a lot and I'm gonna continue to talk about it a lot because I'm not hearing enough about it. And I think a lot of people like me who don't understand economics and how corporate America works are gonna be left behind in this conversation And I think that when we bail out businesses, when we bail out the economy, 
the American people have to rise up and demand ownership in the companies we save. We don't have the vocabulary to ask for that, to discuss it, to think it out. It's never been discussed. You know, TARP, the Toxic Asset Relief Program, was passed in, I think, October of 2008 when George W. Bush was president. It failed in Congress. The Republicans voted against it. They did not want to bail out the banks. They did not want to give a trillion dollars to the banks. And it was rejected. It was bipartisan. There were some Democrats who also rejected it. They had to go back to Congress and ask again. And that's recent history where our Congress said no to the banks. In 2008, our Congress said no to the banks. We turned them down. And somehow they made a kind of deal where we'd give them a trillion dollars, we would own the banks, it would, and collect interest and make money on this loan. So we made money on TARP. We have to review that, go over that, because there's going to be another economic crisis. And the next economic crisis, the American people, the Democrats, our leadership needs to have the vocabulary to say to the American people, we're going to own these companies that we are bailing out this is how it works. We're going to own 40% of this company. So we're not going to run GM. We're just going to own 40% of it. Well, what does that mean? Do Americans understand what that means? I don't think most Americans understand what it would mean to inject capital into, say, Delta Airlines and save it and then own 20, 30% of that airline. We don't do that in this country. Other countries do it. Other countries nationalize industries. We're busy doing the opposite, selling off private service, uh, uh, government services to and privatizing them. We I don't think most Americans understand what this is, what that means. We got to get the conversation going so that the next Crisis is an opportunity for the left. Every crisis is an opportunity for big money for the right, because we don't understand how this stuff works. So we need to prime the pump and begin the conversation now about how to save the economy the next time it collapses, and it will. It may collapse next month. And instead of the Federal Reserve stepping in and doing whatever quantitative easing means, uh, instead of bailing out industries, lending them money after they destroy capitalism, we say, you know what? You now have a partner, Wall Street the citizens of the United States, a little piece of our social security. We have trillions in social security and people keep saying it's, you know, it's going to go bust. Well, George W. Bush 
in 2005 wanted to privatize parts of Social Security. What he meant was he wanted to turn those trillions of dollars over to investment houses so they could invest it and take a cut. But nobody talked about and what we should do is say, you know what? There's trillions of dollars in cash sitting around in Social Security. Why not put a little of it into the market? Why not get a better return on our Social Security? That's how you begin the steps of nationalizing more and more of our economy. That's how I believe you have a peaceful transition to socialism. We don't have to do this violently. We don't need to do this violently. If we understand how capitalism works, how Wall Street works, we can be the Trojan horses who take it over from within. All it takes is the next crisis. We force our government to keep stock in GM. We bailed out GM. We had stock in GM. Obama, this idiot, said, I don't know how to run a uh, an auto company. No one was asking you to own and run an auto company, Obama. We were asking you to keep the stock that, you, that the federal government had in GM so we could participate in the upside of that investment. Government research should not be free. If the NIH comes up with mRNA, we shouldn't be just handing the patent over to Pfizer or Moderna. We should have a piece of those profits. We should own a piece of Pfizer. They shouldn't own us. We should be owning them. We lack the ability to discuss this. We don't know. It's our financial illiteracy. If we got financially literate in America, we could own our economy. We don't own our economy. We could and we could start owning our economy by forcing our government to start buying up little pieces of Apple and Amazon and get voting shares. You don't need to just regulate these companies. The best way to regulate them is to own a piece of them. And we have to start talking about this. You know, Medicare for all was something nobody would talk about six years ago. Now it's it's dead in the water, unfortunately, but it's still something people have the vocabulary to discuss and debate. We don't have the vocabulary to talk about nationalizing industries in this country because none of us understand how the stock market works, how corporate America works. We have to prime the pump for the next crisis so we benefit and not corporate America. That's the show. I want to thank all our guests. And I'm not letting up on this. I, I know I'm a broken record, but I'm not letting up on this. Uh, my guests, Professor Ben Burgess, the Hershenfelds, Emil Guillermo, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, the professors and Mary Ann, Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Mary Ann Cummings, Professor Harvey J.K., and of course, Alan Minsky. We're doing office hours every Friday night, 
at 8 p.m. The first hour I will be hosting and I will be playing Professor Harvey J.K.'s recent speech at the Gravel Institute. If you would like to join our virtual studio audience, go to my website, sign up and sign up for my newsletter. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. Wrong one. I screwed up. Hang on. We have a good one. Hang on. I, I screwed up. Here we go. Is this it? This should be it. Hang on. No, I don't have it. Hang on. All right, come on. It's been... It's a six and a half hour show. Give me a break. I'm making mistakes. This runs pretty smoothly, all things considered. All right, here we go. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now. Vote the David Feldman. I do it right. Hang on. Talking politics and comments too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human. It's time right now. Vote the David Feldman show. He's talking politics and comments too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an enemy right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. 